Audubon's account of the New Madrid earthquake by M. L. Fuller. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Within the last few years, there has been a reawakening of interest in the New Madrid earthquakes as evidenced by the papers of Dr. W. J. McGee in the fourth volume of the Geological Society of America, Dr. G. C. Broadhead in The American Geologist in August 1902, and Professor E. M. Shepard in the January-February number of the Journal of Geology of the present year. In Broadhead's paper are given abstracts of a considerable number of contemporaneous and other early publications on the earthquake phenomena, but the description by Audubon seems to have been overlooked, as he was one of the few, quite possibly the only, scientist who was in the region at the time. His count is of interest. It is of significance that it agrees very closely with the descriptions of many of the residents, indicating that the accounts are probably not so distorted as has sometimes been thought. Audubon's description is in part as follows. Traveling through the barrens of Kentucky in the month of November, 1812, I was jogging on one afternoon when I remarked a sudden and strange darkness rising from the western horizon. Accustomed to our heavy storms of thunder and rain, I took no more notice of it, as I thought the speed of my horse might enable me to get under shelter of the roof of an acquaintance who, who lived not far distant before it should come up i had proceeded about a mile when i heard what i imagined to be the distant rumbling of a violent tornado on which i spurred my steed with a wish to gallop as fast as possible to a place of shelter but it would not do the animal knew better than i what was forthcoming and instead of going faster so nearly stopped that i remarked he placed one foot after another on the ground with as much precaution as if walking on a smooth sheet of ice. I thought he had suddenly foundered, and speaking to him was on the point of dismounting and leading him, when he all of a sudden fell a-groaning piteously, hung his head, spread out his four legs as if to save himself from falling, and stood stock still, continuing to groan. I thought my horse was about to die, and would have sprung from his back had a minute more elapsed, but at that instant all the shrubs and trees began to move from their very roots. The ground rose and fell in successive furrows like the ruffled waters of a, a lake, and I became bewildered in my ideas, as I too plainly discovered that all this awful commotion in nature was the result of an earthquake. The fearful convulsion, however, lasted only a few minutes, and the heavens again brightened as quickly as they had become obscured. My horse brought his feet to their natural position, raised his head, and galloped off as if loose and frolicking without a rider. Shock succeeded shock almost every day or night for several weeks, diminishing, however, so gradually as to dwindle away into mere vibrations of the earth. Strange to say, I, for one, became so accustomed to the feeling as rather to enjoy the fears manifested by others. The earthquake produced more serious consequences in other places. Near New Madrid and for some distance on the Mississippi, the earth was rent asunder in several places, one or two islands sunk forever, and the inhabitants fled in dismay towards the eastern shore. M. L. Fuller, U.S. Geological Survey
End of Audubon's account of the New Madrid earthquake by M. L. Fuller. Bashfulness by Anna Koromawit Ritchie. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or how to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. How often bashfulness passes for humility, for a painful want of self-appreciation, for a modest under-evaluation of one's own merits, the self-consciousness which gives rise to bashfulness almost always springs from sensitive self-esteem, a latent love of approbation, a nervous dread that others will not rate us as highly as we prize ourselves. What is it but self-consciousness which prevents a bashful person from entering a room without fancying that all eyes are turned upon him. What is it but self-consciousness which makes him fearfully certain of attracting attention if he ventures to move? What is it but self-consciousness which impresses him with the conviction that all ears are quickened to listen to the unmeaning words that hesitatingly fall from his lips? What is it but self-consciousness which causes him to commit any number of awkward blunders while he is speculating on the judgment that would be passed upon his most insignificant actions? People are bashful because they cannot ignore their own personality, cannot put self aside, and act as though neither others nor they themselves are thinking of their individual existence. Bashful persons never behave naturally because they are never unconscious of their own deportment. They never shine in conversation because they are haunted by the fear that they cannot do justice in language to the ideas which are struggling for utterance. They never appear to advantage because they are tortured by the instinctive knowledge that in spite of being very sensible, sober-minded individuals, they are always hovering on the borders of the ridiculous. If you laugh with them, they imagine that you laugh at them. If you sympathize with them, you cause them mortification. If you forbear to notice them, you wound them by your supposed indifference. They have a morbid horror of publicity, and yet they constantly become conspicuous simply by never forgetting themselves. Goldsmith, in his portrait of Charles Marlowe, illustrates a species of bashfulness which only exists in the presence of equals and superiors and degenerates into positive insolence and unbridled freedom when thrown in contact with inferiors. Here, self-consciousness is the moving principle again. Charles Marlowe was frightened into the most absurd exhibitions of bashfulness by the dread of making an unfavorable impression upon those whose opinion he valued. But, being totally indifferent to the appreciation of a hotel keeper or a barmaid, before them the bashful youth, 
who could not lift his eyes to the face of a lady, and had not the courage to address a few civil sentences to her respected father, was transformed into a very monster of egotism, arrogance, and impertinence. When we use the word bashfulness, we do not mean to confound the term with genuine diffidence, self-distrust, modesty, nor do we allude to the charming timidity which flings a roseate veil over the conscious cheek of the youth. The shamefaced of bashfulness is not diffidence or self-distrust, for it does not distrust its own intrinsic worth. It only distrusts that others will fully recognize that worth. It is not modesty or humility, for it does not humbly estimate itself. It is only fearful of the undervaluing estimation of others. True modesty is retiring, shrinking, humble, but is, it is at the same time self-possessed, composed, unconspicuous. A modest man does not commit the blunders of his bashful brother, because he is not confused by the failing efforts to seem what he is not. He does not conceive himself to be a brilliant person, or desire others to believe so, and does not comport himself as though brilliancy were expected of him. He does not fancy that he is of sufficient consequence to be remarked or remarkable. He goes on his way, if observed, unconscious of observation, if neglected, indifferent to neglect. He does not think of himself at all, and consequentially does not imagine that others are thinking of him. If his hidden merits are accidentally discovered, the blush that suffuses his cheek is not one of pained bashfulness, but of startled humility and pleasant surprise. His manner invinces that he neither demands nor expects consideration, and consequently it has conciliating tendency, inclining the world so niggardly to those who claim their rights to give modest worth its fullest due. Let the bashful man contrast his experiences with those of the truly modest man, and he cannot close his eyes to the great truth that the secret cause of his social discomfort is a torturing self-consciousness, and that the cure lies in ceasing to speculate upon what others are thinking of him, in ceasing to think of himself at all. End of Bashful by Anna Coralmawit Ritchie Read by Kelly S. Taylor Child Psychology and Nonsense by G. K. Chesterton this is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Read by Chad Horner.
in this age of child psychology nobody pays any attention to the actual psychology of the child all that seems to matter is the psychology of the psychologist and the particular theory or train of thought that he is maintaining against another psychologist most of the art and literature now magnificently manufactured for children is not even honestly meant to please children the artist would hardly condescend to make a baby laugh if nobody else laughed or even listened these things are not meant to please the child at best they are meant to please the child lover at the worst they are experiments in scientific educational method beautiful wise and witty lyrics like those of stevenson's child's garden of verses will always remain a pure lively fountain of pleasure for grown-up people but the point of many of them is not only such that a child could not see it it is such that a child ought not to be allowed to see it the child that is not clean and neat with lots of toys and things to eat he is a naughty child i'm sure or else his dear papa is purr no child ought to understand the appalling abyss of that afterthought no child could understand without being a snob or a social reformer or something hideous the irony of that allusion to the inequalities and iniquities with which this wicked world has insulted the sacred dignity of fatherhood the child who could really smile at that line would be capable of sitting down immediately to write a guessing novel and then hanging himself on the nursery bedpost but neither stevenson or any stevensonian and i will claim to be a good stevensonian ever really dreamed of expecting a child to smile at the poem it was the poet who smiled at the child which is quite a different thing though possibly quite as beautiful in its way and that is the character of all this new nursery literature it has the legitimate and even honourable object of educating the adult in the appreciation of babies it is an excellent thing to teach men and women to take pleasure in children but it is a totally different thing from giving children pleasure now the old nursery rhymes were honestly directed to give children pleasure many of them have genuine elements of poetry but they are not primarily meant to be poetry because they are simply meant to be pleasure in this sense hey diddle diddle is something much more than an idol it is a masterpiece of psychology a classic and perfect model of education the lilt and jingle of it is exactly the sort that a baby can feel to be a tune and can turn into a dance the imagery of it is exactly what is wanted for the first movements of imagination when it experiments in incongruity for it is full of familiar objects in fantastic conjunction the child has seen a cow and he has seen the moon but the notion of the one jumping over the other is probably new to him and is in the noblest word nonsensical cats and dogs and dishes and spoons are all his daily companions and even his friends but it gives him a sort of fresh surprise and happiness to think of their going on such a singular holiday he would simply learn nothing at all from our attempts to find a fine shade of humour in the political economy of the poor papa even if the poor papa were romantically occupied not in jumping over the moon but at least in shooting it of course there is much more than this in hey diddle diddle the cow jumping over the moon is not only a fancy very suitable to children it is a theme very worthy of poets the lunar adventure may appear to some as lunatic adventure 
but it is one round which the imagination of man has always revolved especially the imagination of romantic figures like ariusto and serrano di bergeric the notion that cattle might fly has received sublime imaginative treatment the winged bull not only walks as if shaking the earth amid the ruins of assyrian sculpture but even wheeled and flamed in heaven as the apocalyptic symbol of saint luke that which combines imagination so instinctive and ancient in a single fancy so simple and so clear is certainly not without the raw material of poetry and the general idea which is that of a sort of cosmic saturnalia or season when anything may happen is itself an idea that has haunted humanity in a hundred forms some of them exquisitely artistic forms it would be easy to justify a vast number of other nursery rhymes in the same vein of a more serious art criticism if i were asked to quote four lines which suffice to illustrate what has been called the imaginative reason when it rises almost to touch an unimaginative unreason for that point of contact his poetry i should be content to quote four lines that were in a picture book in my own nursery the man in the wilderness asked of me how many strawberries grow in the sea i answered him as i thought good as many red herrings as grow in the wood everything in that is poetical from the dark unearthly figure of the man of the desert with his mysterious riddles to the perfect blend of logic and vision which makes beautiful pictures even in proving them impossible but this artistic quality though present is not primary the primary purpose is the amusement of children and we are not amusing children we are amusing ourselves with children our fathers added a touch of beauty to all practical things so they introduced fine fantastic figures and capering and dancing rhythms which might be admired even by grown men into what they primarily and practically designed to be enjoyed by children but they did not always do this and they never thought mainly of doing it what they always did was to make fun fitted for the young and what they never did was turn it into irony only intelligible to the old a nursery rhyme was like a nursery table or a nursery cupboard a thing constructed for a particular human purpose they saw their aim clearly and they achieved it they wrote utter nonsense and took care to make it utterly nonsensical for there are two ways of dealing with nonsense in this world one way is to put nonsense in the right place as when people put nonsense into nursery rhymes the other is to put nonsense in the wrong place as when they put it into educational addresses psychological criticisms and complaints against nursery rhymes or other normal amusements of mankind end of child psychology and nonsense by g k chesterton composition and drawing from photographs an excerpt from sketching and rendering in pencil by arthur l guptill 1922 this is a librivox recording all librivox recordings are in the public domain for more information or to volunteer please visit librivox.org as the word composition means the putting together of things and the arranging of them in order so as to make one unit out of them all it is evident that we must first have good things to put together if the final composition is to be good 
this means that in starting work we should use extreme care in the selection of our subject not only as a whole but in each of its parts students more especially the beginners seem to be of the opinion that any object found in nature is a satisfactory subject to draw and they are led into this belief perhaps by hearing statements to the effect that all nature is beautiful it is not for us to deny this but it should be made clear that good pictures are not to be obtained ready-made by simply copying bits of nature at random amateur photographers are well acquainted with the fact that a successful photograph is not often secured by simply pointing the camera in any direction and making an exposure it is necessary to give some thought to the selection and composition of the subject experienced artists often do produce good drawings by recomposing poor material but the student will avoid difficulties if he chooses either something which is well composed in itself or which can be made so with few changes we have previously spoken of the advantage of using a viewfinder when selecting compositions and wish to call attention again to its value of the several types in general use one which we have already described as consisting simply of a rectangular opening two inches or so in length cut in a piece of heavy paper or cardboard is especially helpful when working directly from nature by holding it in an upright position and looking through it at the objects beyond it is very easy to select interesting subjects and to determine too how large an area or how much of an object or objects it is best to show to give the finest composition again it has another use for if the student is in doubt as to just what slope should be given to a roof line or slanting tree trunk a comparison of these inclined lines in the objects with the vertical or horizontal lines of the opening of the finder will be of great assistance in determining the correct slope or angle the finder will help the student also to judge correctly the values of light and dark as seen in nature for each tone of the objects can be compared in turn with the value of the cardboard itself the other commonly used finder or frame consists of two l-shaped pieces of paper or card which will give when lapped as shown at one figure twenty four an endless variety of shapes and sizes and it is for this reason much better than the other finder when working from photographs as soon as a pleasing composition has been selected this frame can be clipped or pinned in position on the photograph and left in place until the drawing is finished it thus serves to hide those parts which have no relation to the sketch and permits the eye to rest on the selected composition without distraction some art students carry a viewfinder of the kind first described with them constantly and gain a great deal of pleasure and useful knowledge of composition by studying different objects through its opening 
in making one cut several spaces through your card instead of one if you prefer of various shapes and sizes they need not be large as the card can be held near the eye in fact two or three small openings or a single large one can be made in a finder of postal card size sometimes threads are fastened across the openings from side to side and from top to bottom in such a way as to divide them into a number of small rectangles or squares those who have preference for this finder feel that it lessens the difficulty of laying out correct proportions when drawing from nature just as in copying a photograph or enlarging a sketch the work is simplified when the print or sketch is marked off into squares or rectangles several excellent compositions can often be found for the same object or objects when viewed from one point by showing more or less of the surroundings just as a number of satisfactory photographs can be secured naturally too an infinite variety of compositions of any architectural object can be discovered by studying it from various positions and under different lighting conditions when working from the photograph several excellent sketches can sometimes be made from different portions of one print especially if the picture is a street scene or a general view similar to that of the y bridge and cathedral published below on this page it is easy to frame a number of attractive compositions on this photograph and it would be to the student's advantage to do so figure twenty five shows three sketches made from this very picture it will be noticed that no attempt has been made to slavishly copy the values and details exactly as they appear on the print for it is seldom wise to do this but the general effect is indicated in a broad simple way there is perhaps no better manner of learning composition than by making such selections with the finder and also such sketches as we have shown here for this reason the following exercises are offered to fix in the memory the ideas which we are considering first of all obtain several photographs such as street scenes or general views each showing a number of objects which might make pleasing sketches and with the finder frame on one of your prints some selection which seems to compose well remembering that each composition should have a center of interest remember too that there should always be a pleasing relation between the shape of the picture space or margin line and the subject itself if for example a very tall building such as a skyscraper or church spire has been chosen it is as a rule best to draw it on paper placed vertically or to frame it in a vertical picture space whereas a long horizontal building or mass of buildings can usually be represented to the best advantage when enclosed in a horizontal manner this has been illustrated in figure twenty four the english cottage shown at one at the top of the sheet seemed when viewed in connection with the nearby trees to demand a horizontal treatment while the church tower at two suggested at once a vertical handling a group of buildings such as that shown at three usually calls for a horizontal space 
but if the horizontal masses are more prominent than the vertical the fact must be recognized and expressed thus the church at four is given a long low frame but if its tower alone was to be shown the contrary treatment would be more appropriate as a general rule it is well not to use circular or oval or triangular frames or margin lines on architectural drawings as such shapes often have little or no relation to the form of the architecture itself a square shape might be well related in this respect and therefore might sometimes do but from an artistic standpoint a square is usually less interesting than any other rectangle it is even true that certain rectangles are more pleasing than others one with a length just twice its width is not as desirable for instance as another which is one and one-half times as long as it is wide while even this proportion is less subtle and hence less satisfying to the eye than one about three parts wide and five long while discussing margin lines it might be well to mention that the line itself should never be so black as to draw the eye away from the subject the width and tone of line should vary in different drawings so as to always be in harmony with the sketch again attention should be called to the fact that sketches in some cases are carried way to the margin lines while in others they are allowed to fade gradually into the paper or vignetted as it is called in either of these cases if the exterior of a building is being drawn it will be found that the margin lines need not be far from the building itself with the exception perhaps of the line at the top as all spaces will appear much greater after they are rendered than before for such surroundings as are generally used add a sense of distance if too much space is left in such drawings the landscape and accessories may easily become too prominent in relation to the architecture when a selection has been decided upon and framed to a good proportion fasten the finder to the photograph and then on very thin tracing paper with a soft pencil make a simple tracing not in outline alone but in values trying to give the effect of the whole in a direct and simple manner with sufficient accent at the center of interest do not spend more than five minutes on the sketch and then frame the same object in a slightly different way and make a second tracing compare the two if one is better than the other why is it because you have shown more foreground or sky or because the frame has been kept of a size or shape better suited to the leading objects ask yourself such questions and then make perhaps a third and even a fourth sketch comparing them all with care and if one seems better than the others make a larger and more carefully finished drawing using this last sketch as the basis of your composition next try to find some entirely different composition in the same photograph using a new subject and make another series of quick sketches or tracings and again compare them and analyze each trying always to learn by this comparison 
why one composition is good and another not select a different photograph and repeat the process or if you feel that you have the ability to work in a similar way from nature do so choosing a comparatively simple subject so that each sketch can be done in a few minutes one will encounter more difficulty when working from nature for whereas on the photographs the forms and values remain constant in nature the values are always changing and the forms more difficult to represent we have previously had occasion to mention that subjects which are full of interest and good in composition during some hours are entirely different under changed lighting conditions and buildings which appear to good advantage at certain times of day are much less pleasing at others this is largely because the areas of shade and shadow are never the same for long part of the time they nicely balance one another so that the lights and darks are well related at other times too much light or too much dark appears at one side or above or below thus destroying the restful effect at some hours too there may be patches of shade or shadow so odd in shape as to prove distracting it is therefore well to do your sketching during favorable moments if this is possible returning if necessary to the same subject at the same hour during a number of days in succession until the study is completed if a subject which is otherwise good in composition exhibits a few unpleasant features either in nature or in the photograph it is perfectly legitimate to take certain liberties with them if by so doing the drawing can be improved without sacrificing the truth of the main idea should a tree for example seem a bit too small in relation to a building or too light or dark in value or should some shadow be too dense and black or form a displeasing mass it is permissible to make such changes as seem necessary to improve the composition providing the final result represents a condition which might be possible under slightly different circumstances without the breaking of any of nature's laws in landscape painting and decorative drawing more such liberties are taken however than are permissible in most architectural sketching or rendering for architecture must as a rule be truthfully portrayed the changes to better the composition being made for the most part in foliage shadows and the like to illustrate this matter of changes we have shown in figure twenty five sketch two the dark boat in exactly the same position as on the photograph this spacing is not wholly satisfactory as the boat seems isolated in the center of the sheet attracting by its placement more than its proper share of attention in such a case as this it would be better to improve the composition by moving the boat to the right or the left or it might be tied into the scheme by the addition of extra lines or tones amendments like this are always advisable and it is also wise to omit from a sketch such objects as have little or no relation to the subject itself 
and which for this reason detract from the main idea which the drawing is intended to express this means that we must observe the principle of unity which requires that a composition must be a homogeneous whole all its parts related and so thoroughly merged and blended together that they become a single unit in order to secure unity in a drawing only as much of the material before us is selected as relates directly to the subject of the sketch separate your subject from everything else that is visible and think of it as a single harmonious whole this rule applies whether your subject be an entire building or some portion such as a dormer window or some still smaller detail a door knocker for example once you have determined which of the ideas are to be rejected as irrelevant you must decide on the relative importance of those which have been accepted as essential for unity in a drawing depends not only on the selection or rejection of material but on its emphasis or subordination as well for unless each detail is given just the amount of attention that is proportionate to its importance the composition will not count as a complete and satisfactory unit failure to give sufficient emphasis or accent to the leading parts of a drawing causes a loss of force to the entire composition and in the same way neglect to properly subordinate the unimportant parts leads to confusion and complication to further illustrate this principle of unity let us consider some simple objects found in everyday use an ink bottle a turnip and a vase of roses might be arranged into a pleasing composition so far as variety of form and size and value are concerned but unity would always be lacking in such a group for these objects are not sufficiently well related by use to ever become a satisfying single whole it would be equally difficult to compose a coal scuttle a hairbrush and a cut glass pitcher but a comparatively simple matter to form an excellent composition of a loaf of bread partly sliced with knife plate etc or of a garden trowel flower pot and package of seeds fortunately nearly all objects of an architectural nature are so closely related that little difficulty is experienced in finding things which go well together so the delineator of architecture has much less trouble in this respect than does the painter of still life unity in architectural work is often injured however because certain accessories are too important in relation to the architecture itself it is not inappropriate to show an automobile at the curb before a colonial doorway but if it is indicated so large in size or made so conspicuous in any manner that it detracts from the doorway it then prevents a perfect unity in the sketch it is mainly for this reason that in rendering architectural drawings such accessories are often left in what sometimes seems to the beginner an unfinished state trees are shown in a conventional and inconspicuous manner 
clouds are often either omitted or only lightly indicated and shadows are simplified this brings us to a discussion of the principle of balance which is so closely related to the principle of unity as to be really a part of it in fact without balance there can be no unity for by balance we mean as the name implies the equilibrium or restfulness that results from having all parts of a composition so arranged that each receives just its correct share of attention every part of a picture has a certain attractive force which acts upon the eye and in proportion to its own power to attract it detracts from every other part if we find our interest in a drawing divided between several parts if certain tones or lines seem too insistent or prominent we know that the composition is lacking in balance and likewise lacking in unity as well it is impossible to give concise and definite rules for obtaining balance in drawings mainly for the reason that the attractive force of each portion of a drawing depends on an infinite number of circumstances which are variable a short straight line drawn near the center of a clean sheet of paper has a power to catch and hold the eye let the figure six or some other curved line be drawn near the straight one and even though they are of equal size the curved line will prove the more powerful attraction of the two in the same way a star-shaped form or a triangle has more strength to attract than a square or rectangle of like area this power depends not entirely on shape however but on the value of light and dark as well draw two squares on paper side by side the one dark and the other light and if the paper is white the dark square will exert the strongest force but if the paper is black the white square will jump into prominence again the attractive power of an object varies in proportion to its proximity to other objects if for example a man is shown at small scale in a standing or sitting position near the center of the sheet he will receive considerable attention if by himself but if surrounded by other objects he will seem much less noticeable then too a moving object or one which suggests motion will be more prominent than a similar object in repose let a man be shown running and he is seen far more quickly than if he is at rest objects near the edges of the sheet or in the corners usually arrest the eye more quickly too than they would if near the middle of the paper these examples are sufficient to show the difficulty of attempting to give definite directions for obtaining good balance the best suggestion we can offer is that the student make first of all as soon as a drawing has been blocked out in its main proportions a preliminary sketch such as we have described a painter is able to make many corrections in his work as he progresses until excellent balance in every part is gained 
but in pencil sketching where the nature of the medium and the limitation of time demand that the work be done very directly and with few changes it is difficult to make well-balanced drawings unless the artist or student has had considerable practice or unless preliminary studies are made almost invariably such studies save time and give results in the end that more than justify the labor spent on their preparation then by way of additional precaution as the final sketch progresses set it away from you at intervals or turn it upside down or on end or even reflect it in a mirror so as to see it in a reversed or changed position when so viewed the balance should still be good and if not the necessary adjustments should be made if some part seems too prominent either tone it down or accent other parts until balance is restored end of composition and drawing from photographs an excerpt from sketching and rendering in pencil by arthur l guptill 1922 read for librivox by sue anderson the game of scandal by anna cora mawit ritchie this is a librivox recording all librivox recordings are in the public domain for more information or how to volunteer please visit librivox.org have you ever played at scandal friend pure must be the heart that feels no sudden pang of conscience at that bomb-like question but the startling query in this instance mildly refers to a game called scandal the delight of juveniles too joyous to be very wise yet there is wisdom and warning enough in the game itself to force the conclusion that the origin was in the brain of some sage satirist who hid a sober moral with a sportive mask the players sit in a row the one at the head whispers to his neighbor a communication concerning some absent friend the neighbor whispers the news as he hears it to the one next to him who conveys the intelligence still in a whisper to the one nearest thus it is imparted again and again until it reaches the end of the line as the sentence is transmitted from mouth to mouth it is unintentionally unavoidably altered the words have been incorrectly caught by the listening ear with each repetition they undergo a change by the time the sentence has travelled to its journey's close it has passed through so many strange mutations that it bears not the slightest resemblance to the original phrase everyone is requested beginning at the last hearer to declare what information concerning mr blank or mrs blank or miss blank was confided to him and lo through these singular transitions the harmless assertion has become a monstrous slander this scandal was obviously the offspring of inadvertent unconscious misrepresentation 
as the story is traced back through all its crooked paths the most hilarious merriment is excited by its odd metamorphoses the young play this game in jest for the sake of the mirth it awakens their seniors are playing it in sober fatal earnest all the world over and like them for the sake of mere amusement i playing it daily without self-reproach playing it without dreaming that they are coiners of scandal and clippers of reputation playing it without reflecting that their game can produce more dangerous consequences than the sport of children let us not confound these comparatively innocent scandal-mongers with that venomous class whose adder stings are aimed with malicious purpose whose upas breath withers the freshest flowers of innocence upon its invisible touch whose defiled hands stir up mud in the purest streams of life whose splenic natures are constantly goaded on by envy and armed with the deadly weapons of hatred against those the sagest poet that the sun ever shone upon tells that there is no aegeus that can protect even the immaculate no might no greatness in mortality can censure scape back wounding calmly the whitest virtue strikes what king so strong can tie the gall up in the slanderous tongue since the world has no social perseus who can lift up an invincible sword to slay those gorgons they are not our theme to them the players in the world's great game of scandal bear little resemblance the latter are vivacious courteous agreeable respectable members of society if the whole truth must be spoken we are bound to admit that these graceful babblers are chiefly of the gentler sex since the world began women must have had an especial gift of speech for the very name of eve according to bookstore's hebrew lexicon is derived from a root which signifies to talk thus her temptations to indulge in idle strictures must be greater than those of her more taciturn brother but the amiable newsmongers who are playing this game of scandal with honeyed lips and smiling eyes mean no harm theirs are random errors shot in sport yet the shaft scathes be the hand by which it is aimed ever so white some charming giddy-pated creature with unbridled levity of tongue gives breath to a good story not particularly good-natured about certain poor dear friend of hers the news is whispered in the ear of her next neighbor kind miss clackett and being imperfectly heard or not thoroughly understood undergoes unintentional change as the famous game we have cited mrs clackett with eager volubility confides the secret to the first person she meets good mrs grimm mrs grimm chances to be of a satirical turn of mind and the tale assumes a sarcastic countenance 
it is wafted onward and until it reaches miss balm a very humane and tender-hearted gossip in her sympathetic bosom it is weighed down with such pressure of pity that the features of the travelling story are smoothed into a new shape a few more steps onward a few more pleasant touches from rosy lips and snowy hands and the original liniments are wholly obliterated but is this all what becomes of the heroine of this game how will she break loose from the tangled web woven by mere idle talk whither will she fly from the stabbing of inconsequent tongues if her lacerated reputation ever heal will not those wounds leave a disfiguring scar for life fairest prospects have been hopelessly blighted strongest ties of friendship dissevered loves transformed to hate hearts broken homes made desolate through the daily playing of this merry game of scandal at our firesides in our walks and our social gatherings the most zealous player having no evil end in view if told he has dealt a blow to a friend or done a neighbor wrong would meet the charge indignant and aghast yet the game goes on bravely from day to day we all play it quite innocent of malice give a buffet to the flying tail and send it onward half expiring with laughter at the quaint fantastic shapes it assumes without presuming to don the solemn robes of the social reformer which might float with as little grace as the usurped lion's skin in the fable may we not venture to suggest an antidote to the bane of this popular death-dealing game we fear it is one almost too simple to strike yet simplest herbs have counteracted deadliest poisons it lies in resolutely setting our faces against crediting any injurious rumour by the reflection that the story is in all probability an illustration of the marvellous metamorphoses wrought by that magical game of scandal which we and all the world are merrily playing end of the game of scandal by anna cora mawet ritchie read by Kelly Taylor Luminous Plants by Dr. Alfred Gradenwitz Read for LibriVox.org Some species of beetles, as is well known, are endowed with a strange luminescence, and the beautiful phenomenon known as phosphorescence of the sea is, in its turn, due to the light given out by certain of the lower organisms. Many organic substances exhibit luminous phenomena of a similar kind, and butcher's meat, at a state of beginning decomposition, as well as rotten wood and withered leaves, possess a luminescence readily perceived by the eye when at rest. Naturalists have frequently discussed the question as to what profit those organisms may derive from their remarkable power, and it seems possible that certain animals avail themselves of their luminescence in attacking their prey frightening their foes, or lighting the environs when seeking their food. 
not only the luminescence of insects but that of other organic substances as well should be ascribed to a vital process being due to bacteria that is to vegetable organisms settling on the surface of the substance in order thence to spread to other bodies professor h mollish of the university of prague has closely investigated those phenomena of vegetable luminescence during his voyages of discovery in the tropics and after his return to europe according to his researches the luminescence of butcher's meat so far from being an exceptional phenomenon is an absolutely general fact occurring even in the case of relatively fresh meat which is quite susceptible of being used as food the bacterium phosphorium which gives rise to this luminescence accordingly is a very widespread occurrence being found in all ice cellars in which the meat soon after its arrival is again and again contaminated by those luminous fungi eggs kept in salt water and boiled potatoes will take the same characteristic luminescence either spontaneously or on coming into contact with meat and the same applies to dead sea fish and other sea animals in the case of which the phenomenon takes place at the very beginning of disintegration before any bad smell can be noted professor mollish therefore unhesitatingly asserts that at least during the hot season a large portion of all the fish in the market is sold in a luminous condition without the knowledge of the public but without any detriment to health in contradistinction to sea fish freshwater fish do not show any spontaneous luminescence but become luminescent on coming into contact with sea animals or with butcher's meat contaminated by the bacteria as the presence of free oxygen is required to enable these to give rise to the phenomenon this would seem to be an oxidation process in which only the bacteria situated near the surface partake so as to come into contact with atmospheric oxygen it is true that the amounts of oxygen taking part in the oxidation are extremely small being detected by no known chemical reagent some experimenters have accordingly suggested a very intimate connection between this luminosity and the process of respiration considering the former as the immediate outcome of the latter outside of the oxygen a certain amount of water is indispensable to give rise to the phenomenon as shown by the fact that bacteria placed on a glass plate owing to the evaporation of their water will cease to shine after five to ten minutes in order to recover their luminosity after some water has been added professor mollish's researches thus show that the luminosity of living organisms is a chemical process giving rise to the formation of a hypothetical substance in the interior of cells which in the presence of free oxygen and water becomes luminous this the experimenter calls photogen the luminosity of animals shows a characteristic difference from that of plants bacteria in so far as the former is observed only intermittently while cultures of bacteria may remain luminescent for months and even years provided there be a sufficient supply of food professor mollish then succeeded in preparing with a glass flask filled with sterilized gelatin vaccinated with a culture of luminous bacteria a cold lamp which though being of less intensity than the flame of even the smallest candle perfectly sufficed for scientific researches photographic purposes 
and even for certain practical uses. As luminous beetles have at any time been used by the natives of tropical countries as ornaments, fishing and hunting utensils, and as optical telegraphs in warfare, the possibility of eventually increasing the intensity of those living illuminants sufficiently to allow of a more extensive utilization should by no means be discarded. The most striking difference between this living light and the one given out by other illuminants is the perfect absence of heat rays. Nature thus realizes the ideal of modern engineers, namely, the production of light without heat. While being free from any material heat radiation, this light, however, is by no means of simple composition and, for example, comprises chemical rays. Molish, accordingly, succeeds in photographing luminous cultures in their own light and various other objects in the light of the bacteria. Living light does not seem to contain any black rays acting on the photographic plate, while its physiological effects are as striking as those of any other light. If, for example, the germs of certain plants, peas, lentils, etc., be placed at 1 to 10 centimeters distance from a living lamp, they are seen during their growth to approach towards the luminous bacteria, two kinds of plants thus attracting one another in virtue of the radiating energy given out by one of them. End of Luminous Plants by Dr. Alfred Gradenwitz This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The Mosaics of Ravenna, Italy, an excerpt from Ravenna by Conrado Ricci, translated from the Italian, 1907. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Ravenna Felix is the legend stamped on many ancient coins to recognize the fitness of the epithet we must look in history for records of ravenna's past greatness and in surviving monuments for traces of her splendor contrasting her former glory and prosperity with her present solitude and silence her citizens are reminded of the words ascribed by dante to the troubled shade of her ill-fated daughter no greater grief there is than to recall in misery past happiness the sea which once bathed her walls and towers has now withdrawn to a distance of several miles the crescent-shaped harbor strengthened by the emperor augustus with marble sides to be the station for the adriatic fleet with its two hundred and fifty ships perished under the assaults of man or of the elements and is now buried under alluvial deposits classe the great seaport adorned with stately public buildings with the warehouses of commerce and the barracks of the roman soldiery fell under the longobard fury of farwald and lutbrand and caesarea the suburb on the causeway connecting classe with ravenna flanked by churches and palaces of which hardly even the names remain was raised to the ground the marvellous palace of theodoric was stripped by charles the great of its precious marbles and mosaics 
the capitol the bridges the fountains the golden gate stately public edifices and churches all have disappeared ornaments and treasure were abstracted or destroyed in the middle ages during the renaissance and in the past century lutbrand carried off the regisol in the sack of the city in the year fifteen twelve the french gathered a rich spoil of silver baldacchini and enamelled crosses the monks sold the treasures of gala placidia so lately as the year eighteen fifty four workmen employed to clear a canal broke into fragments an ornament of gold set with garnets believed to have belonged to theodoric her marshy soil and the shallowness of the lagoons which surrounded her were at once the safety and the destruction of ravenna the swamps protected her on the land side the shallow sea forbade hostile fleets to approach her seeking a place of refuge secure against surprise the latest emperors and afterwards barbarian kings here established their capital the seat of imperial government was transferred from rome to ravenna by the emperor honorius about the beginning of the fifth century and three important periods in the history of art subsequent to that date may be noted the first of these periods which we shall call the roman extends to the year four seventy six when the line of the roman emperors of the west terminated with the overthrow of romulus augustulus by odoacer this period of about seventy-five years includes the names of honorius gala placidia and valentinian the third the second period which we may call the barbaric and which lasted for seventy-two years is the age of odoacer theodoric and other gothic kings the third period is notable for the reconquest of italy by belisarius and narsus during the reigns of justinian and justin after whose time the fortunes of the city constantly decline as in the first of the three periods which i have marked out for notice tradition centers in placidia so in the second its interest for the people of ravenna is summed up in theodoric whose name at this day is as familiar in that city as though he were still a living prince or had been dead so short a time that old men could still remember him it was his ambition to resemble the great roman emperors and refined by his byzantine education he took singular delight in cultivating the arts and in adorning his favorite city of residence with those superb monuments of which i am about to speak a marvelous edifice is the church first dedicated to the saviour by theodoric consecrated later to st martin when from the decoration of its roof it took the name of san martino de cielo gioro and again consecrated in the name it now bears of san apollinaire nuovo of the original building erected by theodoric to be the church of his court and enclosed by him within the ambit of his palace nothing decorative is seen externally since both the portico and the bifora window with two lights are of the renaissance while the round bell tower shaped 
like a minaret and entirely eastern in aspect probably dates from the ninth century when bells came into general use as we enter between the rows of columns said to have been brought from the villa pinciana in rome and contemplate the splendor of the mosaics the architectural and decorative taste of the artists employed by the romanized goth come upon us as a complete surprise above the windows and below the vault of the apse originally adorned with mosaics like the walls of the nave was formerly to be read the inscription theodoricus rex anc ecclesium a fundamentis in nomini domini nostri jesu christi facit in his scheme of mosaic decoration theodoric divided both walls of the nave of the church into three zones in the uppermost zone of the left-hand wall are thirteen designs each illustrating a parable a miracle or some other incident in the life of christ in the middle zone are figured sixteen holy personages prophets and saints in the lowest zone we see at one end the city of classe with its harbor and lighthouses at the other the virgin and child seated between angels similarly on the uppermost zone of the right-hand wall are thirteen groups representing incidents in the passion of our lord or subsequent to his resurrection in the middle zone are other sixteen holy personages while in the lowest zone are seen at one end the saviour seated between angels at the other end the palace of theodoric with the churches of ravenna rising behind it the mosaics of the uppermost and middle zones of both walls remain almost wholly intact as do also the designs at the ends of the lowest zones but in the greater part of the intervening space in these last the work of theodoric's artist has been replaced by other work of half a century later under the colonnades of the palace as originally depicted were seated diverse personages of the gothic court above the curtains added by later artists vestiges of six heads can be discerned and traces of three hands are still visible on the columns the figure of theodoric on horseback has likewise been removed from the pediment of the palace and from under the gate of the city another larger seated figure the outline of which can still be traced but no trace remains of the mosaics which originally adorned the wide spaces extending between the saviour and the palace on the right-hand wall or between the madonna and the city of classe on the left-hand wall of the nave at the present day we see in their place on the left a long row or procession of virgins on the right a similar file of martyrs but these are substituted work of the second half of the sixth century the original decorations occupying these spaces have been wholly obliterated from which it may be inferred that these decorations represented either subjects illustrating tenets of the arian belief or more probably incidents in the life of theodoric himself but if so why should these have been cancelled and others substituted 
theodoric died execrated by the orthodox church not so much perhaps for the arian tenets he professed as for the cruel persecutions which stained the closing years of his life more especially the martyrdoms of boethius symmachus and pope john i consequently every reference in art to his person his triumphs or his faith became hateful and was suppressed the old chronicler agnello testifies to this when he relates that the archbishop bearing the same name as himself about the year 560 reconsecrated this and other churches of the goths a little before he had mentioned among the churches expurgated by the archbishop this church of san martin in cielo gioro the period intervening between theodoric's death and the archbishop's accession to the episcopal throne was a brief one barely thirty years but within that short space of time most momentous changes had taken place in the government in the form of faith and in the art of ravenna the goths had been vanquished and driven out of italy the byzantines under belisarius and narsus had entered on possession bringing with them a new splendor and new artistic feeling developed to their fullest extent in the decoration of the churches of san michele in afrisisco san vitale and san apollinaire in classe and of all the other churches of ravenna which were completed between the years five forty and five forty seven by julian the treasurer the difference existing between the mosaic work of ravenna under the rule of the late western emperors and of the goths and that executed after the re-establishment of the eastern empire and the institution of the exarchs is clearly seen when studied in their form feeling technique and even in their material substance and confirms what we are told by cassiodorus and by other writers that theodoric partly from individual taste partly from policy employed roman artists direct inspection of the work itself is of more importance in this case than any other evidence and it is surprising to find how long the obvious difference to which i refer has escaped the eyes of the historian and the art critic laying aside therefore for the present the study of those other monuments in ravenna in which traditional roman forms everywhere prevail as in the mausoleum of placidia in the baptistery of the cathedral and elsewhere let us limit ourselves wholly to confronting the two styles as they are seen in the church of san apollinaire nuovo that portion of its mosaic work which we may call roman rejects all ornament and seems to borrow its forms from statuary the figures of the prophets in full face wrapped in their mantles with a book or a scroll in their hands seem true and direct reproductions of statues the chiaroscuro is scarcely interrupted by the rose in their flesh tints or the red in the binding of their books standing firmly on a ground representing the base in perspective they vary the pose of their hands and the sweep of their robes in attitudes which are all to be seen in ancient sculptures the folds of their garments admirably shaded in varying gradations of tone 
reveal with accuracy the forms they cover their heads well set upon strong necks when viewed closely show an ample scale of tints as many as fourteen full of force and daring in the use of purples and violets their hair curls and clusters in natural curves the same art is revealed in the designs of the uppermost zones though as these include groups of figures and rural backgrounds the coloring is a little more varied but always without decorative excess without violent tones discreet harmonious very different methods and artistic ideals are shown in the two files of figures in the lowest zones already referred to as representing virgins and martyrs the points of junction with the original mosaics are plainly seen and the different quality of the mastic all care for form seems to be lost in the anxiety to produce decorative effect the figures succeed one another without variety as though all were cast in the same mould the sense of chiaroscuro has almost entirely disappeared the folds of the white robes of the martyrs are indicated by long dry angular unshaded lines often greatly disfiguring the person the hands are all alike the feet heavy clumsy sometimes deformed the hair on the misshapen heads resembles the tiny skull caps worn by priests the flesh tints have no chromatic variety but are based on four or five tones at most the virgins opposite doubtless produce a different effect but not because their forms are better they surprise and dazzle by the splendor of their robes embroidered with gold and flowers of their diadems necklaces and girdles glittering with gold and gems the very ground on which they tread is sprinkled with flowers while the delicate interlacing overhead of the palm branches laden with fruit heightens the glow of this marvelous ineffable procession which from the monotonous repetition of a single figure acquires something of a musical rhythm a sameness as of a litany surprising and exalting but the beauty is wholly decorative not of form it might be said that as with the roman artists the feeling for form has been inspired by severe classical sculpture so with the byzantines the decorative influence has been imparted in contemplating the gorgeous textures of the east the chromatic diversity of the tesserae which enabled the byzantine to express an infinity of details serves the roman artist to model better and to throw into relief in the female figures of the uppermost zones we find no luxury of ornament the lightness of their vestments and transparency of their flesh is attained by the union and fusion of many tints whereas in the faces of the virgins mouth eyes and nose are indicated by outline rather than by shading so that while for their flesh two or three tones only suffice to pass from red to white a hundred vivid colors and a bountiful profusion of discs of mother-of-pearl seem hardly enough to furnish the gems and embroideries of their garments we must however recognize that if in design and so to speak in substance 
the mosaic work of the roman tradition is more solid and beautiful the byzantine with its unrestrained luxury of ornament is more magnificent and consequently more decorative be this as it may no cloth of gold could spread itself out more superbly than do these mosaics wherein are depicted the king's palace and the churches of ravenna the harbour with its ships and lighthouses the walls and roman buildings of classe the long files of martyrs and virgins the wise kings of the east following their guiding star the madonna and child the redeemer seated between angels above these the prophets and holy fathers of the church still higher the small well-filled designs illustrating the life of christ his parables and miracles the man sick of the palsy takes up his bed and walks the man possessed with devils has them cast out when they enter into the herd of swine which rushes down into the sea the paralytic of capernaum is let down from the roof to be healed by christ christ sits as judge and divides the sheep from the goats in this mosaic the angel on christ's right hand who has charge of the sheep is radiant in robes flesh tints and aureole the angel on the left who has charge of the goats is overshadowed as it were by a livid purple light diffused over his whole person the poor widow of the parable gives her might the pharisee with upraised hands stands by the temple gate and thanks god that he is not as other men are while the publican with bent head smites his breast and prays god to be merciful to him a sinner swathed in grave clothes revealing his wasted frame lazarus comes forth from the tomb the woman of samaria in a garment of varying hue stands by jacob's well holding in her hands the pitcher of water she has just drawn while she looks at and converses with our saviour the woman who has suffered from an issue of blood for twelve years touches the hem of christ's mantle and is healed the two blind men of jericho raise their sad faces in anxiety to know whether their sight is to be restored white-haired peter and andrew with rough gray locks leave their nets to follow christ and become fishers of men christ holds in his hand the five loaves and the two fishes wherewith the multitude is to be fed in the final group on the left wall of the nave is the figure of a youth presenting baskets to christ archaeologists have hazarded many conjectures as to the occasion to which the picture refers all however have agreed in believing that the figures of christ and the disciple have been renewed while that of the youth bending down is ancient and might possibly form part of a representation of christ's entry into jerusalem careful examination however reverses this judgment the figures of christ and the disciple are ancient the youth and the baskets are restorations of last century these baskets altered by an ignorant restorer were the jars containing the water which was changed into wine at the marriage in cana of galilee 
the bent figure is that of the serving man who is testing the miraculous liquid on the opposite wall of the church we have the tragic presentment of christ's last sad days upon earth during which more mundane matters fail to receive his attention his neglected beard grows rough and ragged revealing perhaps the arian belief that the son is not of the same divine essence as the father in the first group we have the representation of the last supper the disciples recline on the triclinium christ has said that one of them will betray him some look inquiringly at their master others cast withering glances at the suspected traitor in the next group christ with eleven of his disciples are seen on the mount of olives the kiss of judas whose treachery is expressed in every line of his face and figure christ is led off to the judgment seat he stands before caiaphas and sanhedrim he foretells that peter will deny him peter denies his lord judas offers back the price of betrayal pilate washes his hands christ is led to calvary the women weep at the sepulchre finally two simple and serene compositions the disciples journey to emmaus and christ shows his wounds to doubting thomas end of the mosaics of ravenna italy an excerpt from ravenna by conrado ricci translated from the italian 1907 read for librivox by sue anderson the murder trial of james sullivan by anonymous from the new york times september twenty fourth eighteen fifty one this is a librivox recording all librivox recordings are in the public domain for more information or to volunteer please visit LibriVox.org. oyer and terminer tuesday before chief justice edmonds alderman kelly and chapman the court met at ten a m the district attorney called on the case of Antoine Lopez, indicted for the murder of Michael Foster, 4th Ward Policeman. James M. Smith, Jr. applied for a postponement of the trial of the prisoner on account of the absence of witnesses. The district attorney said his only objection to this course was that he had three witnesses in close confinement who could not give security. One of them had a wife in great distress. The court ordered $50 to be paid to the witness Sanders for the support of his wife. The case then went off for the term. Caution to jurors. The clerk having called the panel of jurors, and 35 not answering to their names, the chief justice said that although he was reluctant to impose the fine of $25 every day, as it would amount to something serious, yet he should go on and do so, as he was determined to have the assistance of the intelligent citizens whose names were in the jury box. The general impression was that a juryman was only liable to pay one fine of $25, when the fact was he was liable for every day he stayed away from his duty during the sitting of the court. The case of Angelo Squarza, indicted for the Spruce Street murder. The district attorney moved that three witnesses for the prosecution be put under recognizances and stated that a fourth witness had gone away, which compelled him to postpone trial until next term. The district attorney moved in the case of James Sullivan, indicted for the murder of Edward Smith on the 10th of August last at a house in Cliff Street.
the prisoner a man about thirty-five years of age of the appearance of an ordinary working man short in stature and a native of ireland was put to the bar the hon robert h morris and mr buckley appeared to defend the prisoner the district attorney and mr hall for the people twelve jurors were called and took their seats when mr morris challenged seven of those peremptorily they having served on the panel which tried mulvey the eighth who had also sat on that case was excused by consent and a ninth challenged peremptorily a mr bailey on being challenged for favor said he had formed an opinion of the case from reading a report of the coroner's inquest the juror was examined by the court and severely reprehended for forming an opinion on a newspaper version of the case the juror said in his defense that his opinion was not so firmly rooted but that it could be removed by evidence and he would try the prisoner according to the evidence adduced mr morris offered to withdraw the challenge but the district attorney renewed the challenge the chief justice read the law as settled in the supreme court in the case of the people versus mather in the fourth of wendell mr bailey was disqualified according to that decision to which morris for the prisoner accepted a juror who had sat on the trial of clark for murder was challenged peremptorily by mr morris as also five other jurors making in all thirteen peremptorily one was excused on account of having conscientious scruples against capital punishment the following jurors were then sworn in the usual way to try the prisoner one washington m thwarman two l d burdett three david delancey four john chassel five william h brooks six george bacon seven alexander s colbert eight william c lehman nine richard mortimer ten jason mccann eleven peter w Steele, twelve john allison the district attorney briefly opened the case for the prosecution the prisoner at the bar was indicted for the murder of edward smith on sunday night at number four cliff street about one o'clock p m that house is a two-story brick house having an attic it is partially occupied by a mrs ferris as a boarding house the deceased was a boarder and occupied a room in the upper story the prisoner with his family occupied the back room in the second story with his wife and child and a cousin they were not boarders but had that portion of the house on the sunday alluded to the deceased was sitting upstairs with a friend when he heard a noise as of the breaking of furniture or dishes from the room of the prisoner the deceased went to the room a scuffle ensued and although the deceased had interfered to protect the wife yet in accordance with the old adage she turned upon the intruder and in the scuffle which ensued among them the deceased received two wounds one of which proved fatal in less than an hour the police have been sent for previously and came about the time of the fatal blow but could not find the knife although they found a piece of cloth with which it had been wiped frederick g leroy m d by district attorney i am a surgeon of the new york city hospital on a sunday in august last was called to cliff street to make a post-mortem examination found two smooth-edged wounds both inflicted with a sharp knife one on the left shoulder one in the groin the former about four inches in depth one inch in length which laid the bone bare it was done with a sharp pointed instrument it narrowed as it went in the serious wound was in the left groin it was four inches in depth about two inches in length it had divided the principal branch of the main artery at the limb there was also a wound at the femoral vein a mere puncture it had been caused by the same instrument but turned and made larger 
the cause of death was the large loss of blood from the artery and vein thus wounded by the jury the wound on the shoulder might have been made either from behind or before the deceased the wound in the groin must have been from the outside eliza h ferris by district attorney i lived in cliff street last august took the whole house myself kept three rooms myself and let others the second story was let mrs sullivan had the back room mrs martin the front mrs sullivan did not board with me edward smith boarded with me between four and five weeks he was a quiet sober man on the day he was killed i was at home giving the men their dinner on the first floor mr brennan mr welch mr fitzgerald and mccabe my husband was at home with our two sons two small children and four other persons during the dinner i heard a noise of something breaking upstairs i applied to one of the men at dinner and he went upstairs it was fitzgerald i said i'd go up myself to make peace i met sullivan's wife at her own door outside on the landing about the breadth of two boards i saw sullivan and spoke to his wife saying go in and make peace in the name of god she said go in and i went sullivan had a small weapon of the substance of a small poker in his left hand he was breaking some things on the table crockery ware he was alone i told him if he did not respect himself he must respect me he raised his hand and slapped me with his right hand on the cheek then my husband called me downstairs sullivan said nothing to me but his wife told him not to hurt mrs ferris i then went down to my own room and stood by the door could not see the door of sullivan's room the next i heard was smith came downstairs with his hand to his side he came into the dining room and said he was stabbed and was going before his god mr morris objected to the evidence of what the deceased had said the court decided it to be proper and mr morris accepted by the district attorney that was all i heard smith say he died in about ten or twelve minutes i had not seen him from bedtime the night previous until i saw him come down with his hand to his side this was on sunday about one o'clock i had not heard the voice of smith but i heard a noise on the landing near sullivan's room the same as jostling and heard the breaking of things as before it might have been half an hour or three quarters the scuffling was going on but i was in such a frightened tremor that i could not tell what it was doing smith had blood about his person all over and blood also on the stairs some person went for an officer i sent my own son before smith was stabbed and after i came downstairs saw no officers downstairs until smith was stabbed and captain leonard was the first one that came i went up in person along with the officer the room sullivan was in was locked and his wife was outside i told the officer to break open the door and then mrs sullivan gave the key to the policeman I believe his name was Sullivan also. The policeman went into the room and seized the prisoner, Sullivan. I stood at the door. He, the prisoner, was standing in the jamb of the door, or close by, on the left side where the lock is. I can't say what the prisoner said. The weapon I spoke of was of iron, about the size of a poker, for the grate of a stove. The counsel for the prisoner declined to the cross-examination of the witness for the present. Mary Moran examined. I am first cousin to the prisoner and board in his family, consisted of his wife and two small children. In August last, I know Smith. On the Sunday spoken of, we were about sitting down to dinner when the little girl of Sullivan's asked him for some money. He said he had none. His wife replied that he was able to spend his money himself. He said nothing but turned round and began to break the things. His wife began to cry, and then Mrs. Ferris came up from below stairs. 
I saw him take the skimmer from the wall to break the things, and I told him not to break the things any more. He took up his hand and gave me a slap here, pointing to her shoulder. When he gave me the slap, I took the baby and carried it into the front room. It was two months old at that time. I then heard Smith coming, but don't know if he came from the garret or not. I heard him say it was a shame to be breaking more of the dishes. At that time, he was standing alone near the wall, and Mrs. Sullivan was at the front room door. Smith said that Sullivan was no decent man. Sullivan said that he had a right to do as he minded with his own. Smith said that for the next thing he broke, he would have to suffer. No sooner had Smith said the words than the prisoner began to break more things, and Smith took hold of him by the hair and slapped his face. The prisoner also took hold of Smith, and they scuffled outside the door, having each other by the hair of their head. They were thus pulling and slapping each other, when Mr. Martin came out of the front room and I went in, she shutting the door on me and shutting Mrs. Sullivan out, and then I did not see anything until after Smith was stabbed. I next heard Smith cry, murder, he was killed. He said this going down the stairs. Mrs. Sullivan was outside. I remained outside. When Smith took hold of Sullivan, Mrs. Sullivan took hold of Smith by the hair of his head. After Smith was wounded and Sullivan taken by the police, Mrs. Sullivan handed me a knife. It was a pen knife, not very large. It was not open, could not say how large. I put it in a bag in the back room. The court here suggested the propriety of the jury viewing the scene of the murder, and for this purpose took a recess. Evening Session Mary Moran recalled by the district attorney. I think the knife I spoke of had a dark handle. I do not recollect seeing a rag which had blood on it. I do not know where the bag was, but think it hung up in the closet. Mrs. Sullivan was in the room. The knife was not like the one now produced, as I think the handle was larger. I do not remember of any rags having blood except the cravat that Sullivan had on. It was like the one now produced, which he had on at the station house. Mr. Morris declined asking the witness any questions. Richard Brennan, examined by the district attorney. On the 10th August last, I boarded with Mrs. Ferris in Cliff Street. I knew Edward Smith from his boarding there, occupied the same room with him, the front floor on the third story. I was with him on the Sunday he was killed. We were sitting in the bedroom. He was just dressing himself in a clean shirt, had no coat on. I had taken my dinner. I believe he had black cloth pants on. When I was eating my dinner, I heard a noise in Sullivan's room. It sounded like breaking of crockery ware and a great muss between a man and his wife. Heard the noise going up, and after we had got up, it was like the breaking of furniture. Smith asked me what was the matter of Sullivan. I said that Sullivan and his wife were quarreling, and Smith said when he went down he would try and settle it. He went down and stood across the jamb of the door with his hands folded. Mrs. Sullivan was in the opposite room. Smith said it was a shame to be making such a row on the Sabbath day. He had a sober wife and ought not to be going on so. Sullivan replied he had a right to be doing as he liked in his own place. I was on the same landing as they were at that time. Just at the moment that Sullivan said he had a right to do as he liked, Smith went into the room, and I remonstrated with Sullivan, telling him it was a shame to be breaking things. Things appeared then to be a little quieter, and I told Mrs. Sullivan I thought all would be quiet and I went out to get some matches. When I came up, Mrs. Sullivan was crying, and I advised her to go and hide herself. I believe she did so. I went up to my own room, and then I heard a scuffling, and looking down I saw the prisoner and the deceased lying across the jamb of the door, half in and half out. Another boarder came up, and Smith kept telling the prisoner not to pull his shirt about. 
and mrs sullivan then came out of the front room and began clawing the deceased mary moran then came out with the child on one arm and assisted in clawing the deceased he had a very valuable watch and i was afraid it might disengage it from his neck after they were separated the two women kept clawing and tearing him and sullivan came out of his room and struck him a slap on the face the deceased then became very angry and made a blow but whether he struck the prisoner i cannot say at this time mrs ferris came upstairs caught hold of my trousers and besought me to go down and i did so a few minutes after this smith came down with his shirt torn i said for god's sake do not go up again he persisted in going up but asked who had his watch i said i had he said all right i begged of him not to go up i thought to terrify him from going up by telling him to look out for the knife a few moments after he came downstairs and said i'm stabbed i'm killed he was bleeding in the most horrible manner i don't suppose ten seconds had elapsed he had only eight stairs to go up and i heard it as soon as he got up it must have been the moment he reached the landing that he received the blow i cannot tell who was at the head of that flight of stairs i heard smith say nothing more than that i'm dead i'm stabbed i'm stabbed i heard somebody else give a kind of ball some kind of noise it was principally a man's voice smith came into the room where we used to eat our meals laid down on the floor and died i saw a wound on the shoulder near the arm and one in the groin i saw his pantaloons afterwards the same as now produced here a pair of pantaloons were exhibited to the jury which had been evidently saturated with blood and a cut on the left side the shirt was covered over the body of smith after his death which accounted for the blood on it i remained in the hall after the death of smith and the first officer that came in i delivered up the watch to him the next man that came was an officer and they asked where the murderer was i said upstairs and they went up and i saw them no more until they brought the prisoner through the hall he said nothing the prisoner's room was on the left hand and a person going to the room would receive a blow on the left i was at the foot of the stairs trying to dissuade smith from going upstairs and i heard the prisoner's voice as if from the landing i am certain i did see him as well as hear his voice by morris when smith asked who had his watch and i told him he was about four steps up the first flight of stairs towards the room of the prisoner james welsh by district attorney i lived at number four cliff street in august last i knew edward smith and was at home the day of his death on that day he was not in at dinner heard smith remonstrate with sullivan on the folly of breaking the little things smith went to go down to dinner and sullivan went back to the room to break the things smith followed in they clenched and rolled on the ground the women then came and helped sullivan they had a struggle and sullivan ran toward the cupboard in his room they had been outside before this i ran downstairs because i was afraid of a small pistol which sullivan had used the fourth of july and i was afraid i might be the victim next i met smith coming downstairs with his shirt torn he gave it to me and turned back to sullivan i followed him and saw sullivan meet him on the lobby and i don't think two seconds had elapsed before smith turned round and said i'm stabbed he came down and the blood was spouting over him which made a young woman faint and he came into the dining room where he died he was laid on his back by mr ferris who was giving him a glass of water i said there's some on the bureau but finding he was losing his swallow i went up to dr henry and when i came back i found the policeman at the door and sullivan taken off when i got in i went with the officer to the room of sullivan and found a number of pen knives in the closet which the officer took possession of i saw a rag in the hands of a policeman which had blood on it at the time they were struggling smith had sullivan by the hair 
and he had Smith by the shirt, who was endeavoring to get loose from the woman. I could not say that Smith struck any blow or that he didn't. He was not in a position to strike a blow. Cross-examined. I was below Smith, and he was between me and Sullivan, about five steps between us. I took hold of Sullivan once to endeavor to loosen him away from Smith, as I knew he would not follow up the thing. By the district attorney. Smith was a looking-glass and picture-frame maker, and sometimes worked in a shipyard. By Mr. Buckley. I think there was an unfriendly feeling between Smith and Sullivan before this. By the district attorney. On the Saturday before this, I met Smith, and he asked me to go with him, and he would introduce me to a namesake. We went together to a public house where Sullivan came in, and Smith said, Mr. Sullivan's going to stand around for us all. Sullivan said, it ought to be his turn on the double. Smith then began to joke Sullivan as to which had the most money, and he went out and brought in a book with $35 in it. After he had counted it, his wife waited outside for the money. Sullivan indicated ill temper at the time, but was under the influence of drink. John L. O'Sullivan, one of the second ward police, examined by the district attorney. I was the first officer at the house on the day that Smith was killed. A son of Mrs. Ferris came to me at the station house and I went down. On going in, I said I was a policeman. I found the passage full of people, and on going into the basement, I saw a man lying on his back. He was alive. On returning into the hall, I met the witness, who had the watch of Smith, and he gave it up to me. As it was dark, someone said he would go up with me. We went up and saw the prisoner's wife standing by the door. I asked her to open it. She said she had not the key. I said I would break open the door and put my foot against it when she gave me the key. Sullivan was standing by the table convenient to the door. I immediately endeavored to secure his hands, and Officer Klein, who had followed on, immediately took hold on the other side. We searched his person, but found nothing. He did not say anything. We could find no knife and took him to the station house. On the way there, he became very ugly and wanted me to let go of him. I asked him where the knife was, to which he replied that he had the knife and he would not be going so easily. I took him to the station house and locked him up, at which he got excited and requested me to knock him on the head and kill him. I then returned to the house and searched the place for the knife, but could find none. I saw a rag with marks of blood upon it, as if a man had wiped the blood off his finger on it. The room was in great disorder, furniture and crockery laying about the room, and knives and forks. Saw none with blood on them. By Mr. Buckley. I'm sure the prisoner, in his answer to me, referred to the knife with which Smith had been stabbed. He also told me in the cells that he didn't stab Smith and didn't know who did. Officer Klein of the second ward was examined and corroborated the testimony of the last witness as to the arrest of the prisoner. I asked him how he came to kill the man. He said, if you had been placed under like circumstances, you'd have done the same. John Donnelly examined. I am one of the police and proceeded to search the house. Did not find anything until after Sullivan had been taken away. Then we found a small penknife. We also found a number of penknives, also a rag which lay there. There was blood on it, and we carried it to the station house. Rag now produced. I did not observe any marks or bruises about the prisoner. He made a statement to me in his cell at the station house. I asked him how came the blood on this rag. Mr. Morris objected to this testimony, but was overruled. District Attorney. What was his reply to your question about the blood on the rag? Witness. He said he was cleaning a table knife. I said, what? He would not make any answer. It was about an hour after he was arrested. The knife found on Mrs. Sullivan had no blood on it that I could see. 
James Leonard examined. I am captain of the Second Ward Police, and was so on August last. I went to Sullivan's house on the occasion referred to. I went into the room where the body was. The man was not dead. The other officers just then arrested Sullivan, and the women were taken into custody after that. We made a search for the knife in the room and all the adjacent rooms. The condition of the room was chairs upset, cups and saucers on the floor. The dinner was on the table, boiled leg of mutton, I think, and I saw a small poker bent at the end, I think, that was found outside the door. The wounds could not have been inflicted with that. Everything about the man was such a gore of blood that we could not tell exactly where the wound was. I spoke to him, but he was too far gone to reply. There were marks of blood on the stairs. The prisoner was a good deal excited from liquor and had a black eye, but I could not tell when he got it. For the defense. Margaret Martin examined by Mr. Morris. I live in Cliff Street in the house of Mrs. Ferris. On the day of this affray, I was in my own room with my child when my door was pushed open and Mrs. Sullivan entered with Mary Moran and Mr. Sullivan had hold of his eldest child. I asked what was the matter. Mrs. Ferris told me Sullivan had struck her. I told Mary Moran to stay in my room lest anything should happen to the child. I saw Sullivan and spoke to him. He said his wife had abused him, said he would go out and drink more. Smith then came down. Words passed between him and Sullivan. Smith said something, and the other asked if he called him a blackguard. Smith said no, but he was a ruffian, and a ruffian was a man who destroyed his property and who proved it in the street. There was a scuffle after this. The two men had hold of each other, and Mrs. Sullivan took hold of Smith and said, Do not kill my husband. I turned into my room and saw nothing for a long time. Saw Mrs. Sullivan rush upstairs and Smith after her, clutching her by the pole and pulling her down on her back. Cross-examined. Told the officers I did not know anything of it, as I did not wish to appear in court. I had a sister with me that day. She was downstairs. She might have fainted and me not know it. I went out on the landing at the time. Smith ran to prevent the prisoner breaking the things. I saw them have hold of each other. Did not hear Smith call out that he was stabbed. I did not know that Smith was stabbed until two hours after he was dead. They said the doctor had hopes of him. At the time my husband opened the door, he said Smith was stabbed. John Martin, examined by Mr. Morris. The last witness is my wife. I was out walking with my sister-in-law at the time of the occurrence spoken of came home and was through the hall going upstairs when I heard a voice, and Smith came down all over blood, crying, I'm stabbed. He had a wound in his shoulder. I went into my own room and locked the doors, and in a few minutes Mrs. Sullivan came and asked admittance. I refused to let her in, but my wife interfered for her, and I let her in. Did not see Sullivan at that time. By the district attorney. When I saw Mrs. Sullivan, she was trying to fasten her own door. It strikes me my door was locked, and that I went in and locked it from behind. Catherine Cullen, examined by Mr. Morris. I reside with the last witness, was out walking with him that day. When we came home, he went upstairs, and I into the dining room. Smith brushed past me. By the district attorney. I did not sit down, but went into the middle of the room and asked if my sister was there. I was told no, and left. Smith came down and said he was stabbed. Mary Moran, recalled by the court. I did not know that the package of knives were in the house. I did not put a knife in my bosom. I never put a knife in my bosom. I know Mrs. Foster. She is the lady who opens the gate for me at the tombs. Here Mr. Morris said he wished to have Mrs. Foster here, as there was a rumor that she had found a knife in Mary's bosom. The district attorney said he had heard the same rumor, but it turned out to be untrue. 
the case here closed on both sides and mr morris summed up for the prisoner admitting that smith was killed as charged but that the evidence went to show that the wife and sister of the prisoner were equally as guilty as he was the learned gentleman made an eloquent appeal to the jury to acquit the prisoner the district attorney closed the case for the people contending that it was a case of willful murder and that the evidence was conclusive of the guilt of the prisoner the chief justice charged the jury on the law and the facts of the case the jury retired at nine o'clock and in three-quarters of an hour returned into court having found the prisoner guilty of murder he manifested no emotion of guilt or surprise at the result the jury were polled at the request of the prisoner's counsel and all answered in the affirmative the district attorney said he should defer the trial of the poisoning case which required considerable investigation until next term the persons were then discharged and the court adjourned to saturday at ten o'clock end of the murder trial of james sullivan by anonymous read by colleen mcmahon history of northern europe to the beginning of the fourteenth century by hans Pilutz, from a history of all nations from the earliest times volume nine the age of feudalism and theocracy translated under the supervision of john henry wright this is a librivox recording all librivox recordings are in the public domain for more information or to volunteer please visit LibriVox.org. recorded by piotr natter the civilization of the age of charlemagne was already decaying when the north german or scandinavian tribes first entered upon history these were split up into as many political groups as there were tribes fitted by their surroundings for a seafaring life the norman and danish vikings had for generations been the terror of the frankish kingdom they had founded prosperous states on both sides of the english channel and in southern italy they had likewise settled in byzantium and at the beginning of the crusades taken an active part in the affairs of asia minor they had tenaciously preserved certain salient features but had otherwise adapted themselves with surprising skill to their new surroundings and thus developed a new and peculiar national type which acted as a stimulus on their neighbours the introduction of christianity among the northern germans marks a decisive stage in their development its beginnings are coupled with a name of ansgar whom louis the pious sent out as a missionary the final triumph of the mission is due to archbishopric of hamburg bremen as in other countries the change of faith in scandinavia brought about disturbing social and political changes here christianization led to the extinction of the ancient popular freedom and of the independent life of the tribes the old folk freedom met with a heavy blow when the old tribal kingships disappeared in the ninth and tenth centuries and were replaced by vast territorial kingdoms a system of social orders similar to the romano-german feudal system took its place in many cases but everywhere the kingship claimed increased power which was gradually recognized many emigrated who found the ecclesiastical and political innovations unbearable this led to remarkable settlement in iceland in which the primeval germanic conceptions of law state morals language poetry and legend were to lead such a wonderful second life far into historic times the scandinavian invasion of the west frankish kingdom and of england did not come to an end until the tenth century about the time of henry i of germany 
One of his contemporaries was Harold Harfagr, fair-haired, who died in 933. After the defeat of the provincial princes, he united Norway under his sway. Another contemporary of Henry was Gorm the Old, died in 936, who first gave the Danes political union and became so dangerous a neighbour to the German king that the latter's victory over him was considered particularly glorious. It took the royal house of England longer to overthrow the under-kings in Sweden. Eric the Victorious succeeded in the main in doing so in the second half of the 10th century. In this period Christianity was established in Scandinavia, but was more than once forced back by the heathen reaction. Intermittent conflicts broke out between the closely related nations. In these fierce intestinal wars the strength of paganism gradually broke down and decided the victory of Christianity, which opened Scandinavia to the influence of the Germano-Romance civilization of the European West. The reign of Canut the Great, 1014 to 1035, who ruled over Denmark, Norway and England, marks a great stage in the development of the North but the king could not ensure the undivided continuance of his vast kingdom after his death. However, after he had definitely won Denmark for Christianity, the victory of that religion in the other Scandinavian kingdoms was only a question of time. Not that it immediately proved strong enough to curb the uncontrollable native savageness of the royal house. In short, at first it effected only a mixture of unreconciled old and new institutions, the history of Denmark especially bears witness to this fact. After manifold struggles during which Norway again became independent, Canute's nephew, Svein Estridsson, had succeeded to the throne of Denmark. He organized the Danish church by erecting and making provision for a native bishopric. Religiously inclined, he lacked his uncle's military virtues. His attempt to win back England proved a failure nor could he shake off his feudal dependence on Germany. The country reaped little advantage from the rule of Svein's five sons. That of the youngest, Niels, was particularly disastrous to the royal house, because his son Magnus brought on a family feud by murdering his cousin Canut Lavard. The latter was the second son of the deceased king, Erik Eingott. His successful administration of Schleswig and his close alliance with the German king Lothar who had bestowed the land of the Vents on Canute as a fief, and crowned him king of the Abodriti, aroused the mistrust of his weak uncle Niels. His son Magnus killed Canute Lavard on Christmas, 1131. Eric, the brother of the slain man, took up arms to avenge his death. In vain King Niels besought Lothar to protect him, although he rendered homage to the German king and paid him tribute. After an enforced absence, Eric appeared in Scania in 1134 and won a decisive victory. Footnote. Scania is the old name for the southern extremity of the present Sweden. It was usually a part of Denmark until 1658. End footnote. Magnus fell, and Niels was afterwards slain by the enraged people of Schleswig. Eric Emund's reign, 1134, to 1137 was no less disastrous than his predecessors. He was also murdered three years after his accession. A furious dynastic conflict and civil war ensued. Finally, Eric III the Lamb, 1137 to 1147, triumphed over the rival claimants of the crown. Against his son Svein, 
1147-1157, arose the pretender Canute, the son of Magnus. The ensuing civil war threatened to split up Denmark into several small states. Conrad III of Germany was too weak to interfere, but Saxony, under the wealth Henry the Lion, returned to its national task of Christianizing and Germanizing the Vent provinces. In this Henry met such success that Denmark exchanged the protection of the German king for that of the Saxon duke. Thus Denmark became more of a Saxon than a German province. At the Diet of Meresburg, in May 1152, both pretenders appeared before King Frederick I. Canute came with his protector, Henry the Lion, and Svein with Archbishop Hardwig of Bremen. The German king decided in favor of Svein, who received Denmark as a German fief. In his turn, Svein had to invest Canute with Zealand. Young Valdemar, the son of Canute Lavart, received an independent principality in southern Jutland. But the animosity engendered by the late bloody feuds soon set this arrangement at naught. The opposition was strongest against Spain. He could not ward off the Slavonic pirates, and finally preferred to buy the protection of the Duke of Saxony. This disgrace was made more insufferable by the king's wastefulness. As a result, Canute and Valdemar were proclaimed kings in Jutland. When Svein attacked them, his soldiers deserted him, and he had to flee to Germany. With the aid of the Vents and the Saxon duke, he succeeded in having his lands partly restored to him. According to agreement, Svein was to retain Scania, but Canute was to rule in Zealand, and Valdemar on the mainland. At a festival celebrated in Roskilde, in honor of the reconciliation, Svein took his two cousins by surprise. Canute was killed but Valdemar escaped with his wounds to his Jutish followers. They rose to support their king. On his pursuing Valdemar, Svein was defeated in 1157 and killed in flight. Thus the Twenty Years' War ended, and King Valdemar I, 1157-1182, found recognition everywhere. Valdemar was a prince of ambitious spirit, great insight and ability. He recognized the needs of his people, and was fortunate in the choice of his means to satisfy them. His amiable personality made King Valdemar beloved, and enabled him during his long reign to restore his kingdom. As he was not strong enough to beat off the Vends, he had to accept Henry the Lion as his feudal lord. He fought as his vassal against them, only to leave almost all the conquests to the Saxon. When Valdemar conquered Rügen alone in 1168, the duke claimed half the booty, and went so far as to expose the Danish coasts to the Vents in order to enforce his claim. It was not until Henry had become embroiled with the German emperor that Valdemar could make his land more independent and let the feudal tie fall. He found a faithful helpmate in the politic and soldierly bishop Absalon of Roskilde, the later archbishop of Lund. From the ecclesiastical side, he furthered Danish independence, although his repressive economic measures caused a peasant revolt. It was Valdemar's policy to await developments in the struggle between Henry the Lion and Frederick I. When he saw that Saxon was definitely crushed, he espoused the cause of the emperor and assisted him at the siege of Lübeck. When Valdemar I died, in 1182, he left Denmark much more powerful than he had found it. The succession of his son, Canute VI, 1182-1202, to 1202, however, met with some popular opposition. 
but the clergy and nobility succeeded in beating it down. The old democratic forms of government began to fall into abeyance, and Denmark developed into a hereditary monarchy limited by the estates. Canut no longer recognized the feudal suzerainty of Germany. To maintain his independent position, the Danish king constantly opposed the Hohenstaufens. An instance is his joining the League of the German Princes against Henry VI to avenge the murder of the Bishop of Liège. He likewise eventually favoured the intrigues of the Welfs for their restoration. Canut subjugated Pomerania, which Henry the Lion had failed to do in 1184 and 1185. The king could henceforth adopt the style of a king of the Danes and the Vents. During the contest for the throne which followed the death of Henry VI in Germany, he thought ultimately to get possession of the German districts on the right bank of the Elbe. In 1200, the Danish king made Adolphus III of Schauenberg, the Count of Holstein, surrender Dietmarschen and the strong fortress of Rendsburg. Taking advantage of the internal conflicts of the nobility of Holstein, the Danes broke into the land in the autumn of 1201 and conquered it. Adolphus was finally captured and imprisoned in a fortress on Zealand. Germany thus lost her trans-Elban lands, and as the counts of Mecklenburg joined Canute, the life-work of Henry the Lion was annihilated. The future of the Slavonic countries lay in the hands of the Danes, from whom the rich lands on the Baltic could now scarcely escape. The execution of these plans of conquest fell to Valdemar, a brother of the king, as he had died without leaving a son. Valdemar II, 1202-1241, later called the Victorious, was not only king of the Danes and Slavs. To his other titles he added that of Lord of Nordalbingia, for Count Adolphus III finally ransomed himself by the surrender of Holstein and the installation of a Danish garrison in Lauenburg. The German War of Succession secured Valdemar in his dominions for some years, but the rise of the unified kingdom under Otto IV, after Philip's assassination, filled the Danish king with anxiety about the maintenance of the trans-Elban lands. By a skilful stroke of diplomacy, he went over to Otto, who, unmindful of national interests, recognized the Danish right to these lands and made them independent of the empire. The Baltic seemed about to become a Danish sea. Valdemar's crusade against the Estonians, in 1219, resulted in the conquest of an important post on the east of the Baltic. To be sure, the king's national schemes of conquest did not achieve such lasting results as the order of the Brothers of the Sword were then winning in Livonia and the neighboring provinces, or the order of Teutonic Knights achieved later in heathen Russia. It was a blessing for the German kingdom, in its intestinal disorders, that the flower of German chivalry could take into its hands the propagation of Christianity and civilization in these districts. The German knights and nobility also called a halt on the Danish power and rescued the Elbelands and Pomerania, which the crown itself had forfeited. It was Count Henry of Schwerin, however, who took the final step. He captured the Danish king by stratagem and recovered his land. Then, together with the other East German princes and counts, he gained a decisive victory over the Danish king at Bornhuvet. Holstein, too, now returned to Count Adolphus IV of Schauenburg, and the German ports, above all Hamburg and Bremen, rose to new prosperity. For centuries the German element predominated in the Baltic provinces. 
This predominance was completely assured by the decay of the Danish power. Valdemar II, who had spent his last years in enacting beneficial legislation, died in very old age in 1241. His second son, Eric, called Plaupenny, 1241-1250, succeeded. His oppression enraged the peasants and clergy, especially as his forced subsidies did not lead to victory. Consequently, his position soon became dangerous on his falling out with his brother Abel. The latter had received Schleswig from his father, and his father-in-law, Adolphus IV of Schauenberg, conferred the regency in Holstein on him at his retirement to a monastery. He strenuously defended the four sons of Adolphus against the claims of the Danish king. At a meeting in Rendsburg, Abel had his brother seized and put on shipboard. Here Valdemar was murdered. A few months later, Abel celebrated his coronation in Roskilde, on which occasion representatives from Danish cities first appeared with the clergy and nobility. Abel sought to strengthen his throne by a popular government. Consequently, his short reign, 1250 to 1252, was beneficial to a constitution which was soon to be tested. For after Abel had been slain in a battle with the Frisians, and his son had been made captive by the Archbishop of Cologne on his return from his studies at Paris, the Danish magnates chose the late king's brother, Christopher, as his successor. His reign, 1252 to 1259, was very turbulent on account of his fierce conflict with the clergy. During its course, the Archbishop of Lund excommunicated the king and laid the interdict on Denmark. The ensuing ecclesiastical distress drove the hard-pressed peasants to armed revolt. In the midst of the terrors of a peasant's war, the king suddenly died in 1259. It was rumoured that a fanatical priest had administered poison to him in the Eucharist. Nevertheless, the regent Margaret, his mother, secured the succession to her minor son. The struggle with the episcopate was concluded only by the death of the Archbishop of Lund in 1274. Notwithstanding, the crown had forfeited its influence over the church, which rose to proud independence with the nobility. In the ensuing war with his brother Eric, who claimed Schleswig by right of inheritance, the king and his mother were long held captive by the rebels. They stripped the king more and more of his rights and domains, while his chief officials gradually formed an almost independent council. When King Eric, in November 1285, was assassinated, his minor son, Eric Menvet, was allowed to succeed, but the latter, in turn, was soon subjected to humiliation by the unhappy outcome of a war to which the escaped murderers of his father had incited the Norwegian king. The king's struggle with John Grant, Archbishop of Lund, was still more disastrous. After having escaped from prison, the archbishop invoked the aid of Boniface VIII. The pope decided against the king. On Eric's refusal to submit to the Pope's arbitration, Boniface excommunicated him until he finally submitted. A Norwegian war, which Eric had undertaken in behalf of the expelled Swedish king, Birger II, ended in disgrace, and only led to further alienation of the crown domain and to oppressive taxation. The king's attempt to reduce the German Baltic provinces also proved a failure. Accordingly, when the king died in 1319, he left his office stripped of esteem and power. As he had left no sons, the feudal nobility found convenient means for extending their influence in the coming election. 
to secure their innovations, they had to promise the cities and peasants a part of the spoils wrung from the crown. For Eric's brother, Christopher II, 1320 to 1326, had to buy his election with a formal capitulation which recognized as legal the existing narrow limitations of the royal office. Every succeeding king was to be bound to confirm them. This charter of January 2, 1320, not only confirmed to the clergy its rights and liberties, but also made the levying of tithes dependent on its consent, and established its exemption from temporal jurisdiction. The charter freed the nobility from the duty of foreign military service, and confirmed all its rights as against its subjects and vassals. The king's right to make war was to be conditional on the consent of the clergy and nobility. The enfeoffment of Germans and their admittance into the royal council were prohibited, as well as the granting of church offices to foreigners. The concessions which the charter made to the burghers and peasants were naturally much more meagre. It promised the former undisturbed trade and security from illegal dues, the latter got protection from the oppression of royal bailiffs and the abrogation of unjust services. In general, this Danish Magna Carta contained the guarantee of justice on the basis of the law of the land. To secure this, an appeal was to lay from the king's court to the Diet as the highest court. Henceforth, new laws were to be issued only with the consent of the prelates and nobles in Parliament assembled. Thus the feudal reaction made itself felt even in the north, and reduced the royal office to dependence. The two other Scandinavian countries play a less important part in the history of the time. Much later than in Denmark, the monarchical principle triumphed over the remains of the primeval German organization. The descendants of Harald Harfagr had many conflicts for the crown of Norway. Repeatedly several ruled the whole kingdom conjointly, or divided it according to the old racial divisions. The result was a constant diminution of the royal right, which gave the clergy especially a disproportionate predominance. After King Magnus, at the end of the twelfth century, had fixed by law that the prelates should decide which of the royal princes should ascend the throne, two parties arose. The clergy and their adherents formed the so-called baglers, that is, crozier-bearers. The National Party, on the other hand, took the name of Birchlegs. For almost a century these parties rent the country with their antagonism. When the clergy lost its predominance in the second half of the 13th century, order finally returned. This enabled royalty to rise again from the days of King Hakon V, the old, 1217 to 1263, who added Greenland and Iceland to his domains. At the same time, the German Hanseatic merchants settled in Bergen, which became the foremost northern trading center. Hakon's son, Magnus VI, 1263-1280, secured the restored order by introducing the principle of primogeniture into succession. Still, the prelates formed a sort of state within a state, because they were not only exempt from all temporal jurisdiction and military duties, but also had the exclusive appointment of their bishops and other officers. The son of Magnus, Eric, 1281-1299, first put an end to this evil. He forced the clergy to pay him homage, and to render their share of military duties. Eric was followed by his son Hakon VI, 1299-1319, who was the last of the house of Harald Harfagr. 
By opening the succession to the female line, with the consent of the Diet, he paved the way for the future union of Norway and Sweden. The history of Sweden to the close of the thirteenth century consists of a long line of civil conflicts, feudal struggles, and throne revolutions. Here, too, the primary result was the irksome predominance of the warlike nobility, which curtailed the royal power as well as the old freedom of the lower classes. Even the mighty Jarl, Erl Birger, who had virtually ruled Sweden for his brother-in-law, Erik Eriksson, and after the king's death without issue, in 1250, had had his own eldest son Valdemar, 1251-1275, proclaimed king, could not establish lasting peace. Birger died in 1266, after he had laid the foundation of the later Stockholm, and opened up Swedish trade by the admission of the German Hanseatic League into Sweden. Thereupon the younger brothers of Valdemar rose against him, and drove him to Norway, in 1275. While trying to regain his kingdom, the Swedish king fell into the hands of his brothers, who made away with him. King Magnus, 1275-1290, held his own against the noble insurgents only by force and treachery. He sought to curb them through severe laws, and particularly to shield the peasants from them. With this in view, he tried to raise the position and influence of the church. When he died, he appointed the marshal Torkel Knudson regent for his minor son Birger. After Birger II, 1290-1317, had begun to rule, Torkel remained the most influential man about the throne. Sweden now advanced rapidly. Finland was conquered and Christianized. But the taxes which these wars necessitated weighted heavily on the people. The younger brothers of the king used the prevalent discontent to raise a rebellion which brought about the dismissal of the all-powerful marshal. Soon after, the king was taken by treachery, but released at the request of his brother-in-law, King Erik Menvet of Denmark. The conflict soon broke out anew, and Birger II had to concede the independent rule of certain districts to his brother, and be content with the royal title. But he planned revenge. Instigated by his Danish queen, he surprised Erik and Valdemar in 1317, and let them starve to death in prison. This deed caused a general uprising, which drove Birger to Denmark. His accomplices were killed by their enemies, who did not spare the king's son. A diet, consisting in part of representatives from the cities and peasantry, then made Magnus the three-year-old nephew of Birger king. Through his mother he was a grandson of Hakon of Norway, which gave him hereditary claims to that kingdom. Since the feudal dependence of Denmark on Germany had fallen into abeyance, the influence of German civilization was brought to bear on the northern kingdoms more and more by the north German seaports. Their confederation, which had reached far into the interior, was called the Hanseatic League. Hamburg and Lübeck had set the example in 1241 by making an alliance to protect trade and commerce in the district between the Elbe and Trave. The origin of the Hanseatic League, however, is shrouded in darkness. It seems that several city confederacies, bound together by community of foreign trade, gradually coalesced into one great league. Its name, Hansa, did not come into use until the middle of the 14th century. Originally, this name belonged only to the Cologne merchants, who, under Henry III, established a factory, or guildhall, in London. 
for a time Cologne retained its leading position, and its allied Westphalian cities, together with the Prussian ones, formed a separate group of the Hanseatic League. Lübeck formed a second group, at the head of the Vendish and Pomeranian cities. Visby, at the head of the cities of Livonia, formed the last one. But Lübeck surpassed all the other cities of the League. It was the chief market of the Baltic coast as early as the 13th century, for all the interior towns were dependent on it. This found expression in the almost universal acceptance of the Lübeck Code of Laws. Even the Prussian city of Kulm adopted this code in a modified form, which spread to the extreme northeast. The unity of legal conceptions rising therefrom contributed largely to strengthen the community of the cities based on their economic life. This bound especially Rostock, Wismar, Stralsund and Greifswald, Stettin, Anklam, Stargard, Demin and Kolberg to Lübeck. The tie spread later to Danzig, Dirschau, Elbing, Braunsberg, Königsberg, Memel and other towns. Visby, on the island of Gotland, was at this time the most important centre of the Baltic trade. As early as 1225, long before the origin of the Hanseatic League, a corporation of German merchants existed there. It was the oldest of its kind, and was later called the Gotlandic Corporation. German merchants had also settled in Riga, the chief town of Livonia. Thence they had penetrated the interior of Russia, where the Gotlandic Corporation had an important staple at Peterhof. But toward the close of the 13th century, this body gradually lost its leading position in that quarter. This fell to the rising power of Lübeck, which stepped to the head of the Hanseatic League. It now exercised fully the rights and duties of its position. It called the meetings, or Hanse days, of the League, and directed their proceedings. Likewise, it carried on correspondence and negotiations in the name of the League with foreign powers. These meetings regulated all the internal affairs of the Hanseatic League, such as commerce, and also had legislative functions. Short records of the proceedings were kept, which grew in fullness with the increased importance of the body. They were later known as the Hansaretsesse, and are a precious source of the history of this remarkable union, which alone made the German name respected abroad during the 13th and 14th centuries. The Scandinavian countries especially, which were not as yet in a position to utilize their rich resources through their own energy, finally fell into economic and political dependence on the militant German merchants. In Sweden, into which the Jarl Birger first admitted the Hanseatic League, Stockholm soon became its chief centre. On the coasts of Scania its merchants had profitable fisheries. In Denmark, the German merchants first settled in Copenhagen, in the street which still bears their name. They also had stores in various neighboring places. In Norway, the center of the league was at Bergen. At first, Cologne had had a large part of the English trade, but later on, the towns on the North Sea, and especially Hamburg and Bremen, competed with it. Hamburg finally surpassed them all. In London, the stores and dwellings of the salesmen of the League were called the Steel Yard, and lay between the Thames and Thames Street. These merchants, who had to be unmarried, and fell into groups of masters and apprentices, lived according to a monastic rule. They enjoyed the special favour of the English kings, and granted them all sorts of privileges and liberties, asking in return only for their support in case of an attack on London. The Hanseatic League had similar stations in Ipswich, Yarmouth, 
Norwich, Lynn, Boston, Hull, and York. They also took root in Ireland and Scotland. After Lübeck came to represent the League, the German Baltic towns took a more active part in the English trade. Thus the leading role, first of Cologne and then of Hamburg, was transferred more and more to Lübeck. The connection of the League with the Netherlands, and especially Flanders, was no less profitable. Here again Cologne had at first had the greatest share, but in the second half of the 13th century Hamburg and Lübeck became strong competitors here also. The chief Hanseatic settlement in Flanders was Bruges, which continued for some time to be the most important European trading centre north of the Alps. The League had also stores in Hent, Antwerp, Dinan, Ypres and Dam. The Baltic and North Seas were really German seas at the time. Not only Russia, but also Scandinavia and England were in commercial and maritime dependence on the German merchant. That such a power combination as the Hanseatic League could arise throws a peculiar light on the condition of the declining empire. It led to relations which are quite impossible in a well-organized state. It was nothing unusual for imperial cities to make independent treaties with foreign powers, and the princes of the empire did the same. Now some towns also belonged to the Hanseatic League, which were subject to a prince, and consequently ought to have been represented by him. But these towns acted as independently as their fellows. Nothing but conflict could ensue between the towns and their lords, and widen the old gulf between the citizens and the feudal powers. This appeared nowhere more strikingly than in the state which the Teutonic Order had founded in Prussia. This religious military order completed the benefits conferred on the northeast of Europe by the Hanseatic League. The Teutonic Order was founded at a time when the crusading spirit was at its height in Germany. It had entered the competition too late to achieve the success of the Knights Templar or those of St. John in Palestine, but it was this fact which enabled it to preserve its original spirit and fulfil its double mission. For this order was characterized still more than the other military ones by that strange amalgamation of chivalry and monasticism which determined its direction and success. Thanks to this quality, and to its far-seeing grandmasters, this order succeeded in founding an epoch-making civic organism. The original dependence of the Teutonic Knights on the Hospitallers soon fell into abeyance. Confirmed by Pope Innocent III in 1199, the order first sought to gain a foothold in the Holy Land. Through grants, exchange, and sale, it acquired considerable lands in the neighborhoods of Beirut, Toron, and Acre. To the northeast of the last-named city, it erected among the hills its strongly fortified chief seat, Montfort, or Starkenburg. The difficulties of its early conditions explain the diligence of its administration, which afterwards enabled the order to win its successes. But its future did not lie in the east, even if it were possible to hold up the tottering Christian rule against the onslaught of the infidel. The third grandmaster of the Teutonic Order, Hermann von Salza, 1211-1235, the friend and counsellor of Emperor Frederick II, recognized this. Therefore he sought another scene, where the knights might devote themselves to the crusade against the heathen. Just about this time, Konrad, Duke of Mazovia in Poland, sought aid against the heathen Prussians. For the attempts of the Cistercian monastery of Oliva to convert the warlike race beyond the Vistula had had no lasting results. As a reward, 
the duke offered the order the district around culm generally called culmland its conquests were to be ruled solely by the order after an examination of culmland herman von salza accepted the duke's proposal and had the emperor and pope solemnly ratify the grant then he sent a detachment of knights in twelve twenty eight under his representative herman balk to the lands of the vistula from the castle of vogelsand on its left bank they began their skirmishes not until twelve thirty two did they settle on the right or prussian bank of the vistula on its heights they erected their first fortress toron the present thorn many other names of places familiar to the order in palestine were in like manner given to prussian towns in twelve thirty four the reinforced knights won a great victory over the prussians near the river zorge soon many crusaders who preferred to fight nearer home joined the settlement of the order they were generally used for greater invasions during which the invaders hastily built strongholds from these as a centre the garrisons remaining gradually subjugated their neighbours thus the conquest of pomezania was directed from marienwerder following the course of the vistula the knights invaded pogesania and there built the chief stronghold of the order elbing from which the neighbouring frischeshaf offered convenient communication with the east on its coast arose the mighty towering castle of balga from which southern ermland was brought under the yoke of the teutonic order the basis for its later conquest of samland was Königsberg, which was built above the valley of the pregel in the extreme northeast near the outlet of the kurischeshaf into the baltic the order erected memel as a defence against the wild hordes of the robbing samites starting from kulmland the teutonic order conquered pomezania pogesania and ermland in twelve thirty nine its progress in the other districts seemed already to make the victory of the order sure when in twelve forty two the first general revolt of the prussians broke out the fact that also its western neighbour svantopluk of pomereln joined the insurgents and threatened to cut off its communication with germany at times put the order in a critical position only a tedious war reduced the six revolted provinces to subjection again christianity made more rapid progress through the erection of bishoprics for kulmland pomezania ermland and samland the capital of the order was the castle of elbing where a landmaster dwelt as representative of the grandmaster who lived in palestine continual conflicts went hand in hand with the slow colonization of the country through german immigrants from the middle of the thirteenth century they were directed chiefly against the samites and their southern neighbours the lithuanians the latter threatened the very foundations of the order once more the victory of the lithuanian prince mindvok in the summer of twelve sixty one was the signal of a new general uprising of the prussians the unanimity and suddenness of the revolt caused the state of the order to be overrun for the moment it had to give up all its provinces with the exception of its most important fortresses as its forces were insufficient to crush the uprising germany sent a crusading army for its support the order found it the harder to overthrow the rebels because mestvin the duke of pomerania made common cause with them the german knights had fought for their existence almost a decade when the victories of the marshal of the order konrad von tierberg turned the scale in their favour in twelve seventy two pogesania was subjugated again to secure communication with pomezania and kulmland 
and the thoroughfare from the Vistula through the Nogat to the Haf, the order began the erection of the castle of Marienburg in 1274, on the heights above the right bank of the Nogat. But another decade was to pass before the subjugation was completed, under the landmaster Mangold for Sternberg. The nature of the contest had almost depopulated the land. Most of the remaining people retreated to the impenetrable forests and swamps. Still fewer nobles made peace with their masters so as to retain their old possessions or receive new ones. The task of the order now consisted in introducing inhabitants into the conquered districts who might lay the basis of a new and higher civilization. This was done in various ways. Some of the German crusaders simply remained and received estates, for which they pledged themselves to perform certain military duties. Then, again, other German noblemen stayed on the same footing and formed a sort of provincial nobility. The peasant population had also to be revived through immigration from the West. As a general thing, the order transferred enough land for the founding of a village to an agent or locator. It set the terms on which he was to proceed in dealing out this land to peasants whom he was to attract himself. In return for his labours, the order gave him a manor, and made him bailiff of the village. Generally, these villages were ruled by the Code of Kulm. Thus, the wasted land filled up with hundreds of flourishing villages, whose peasants reaped rich harvests. The superfluous grain became an important article of export, most of it being sent to England. But the cities also grew, under the careful administration of the order, Besides the oldest towns, Torn and Kulm, many others sprang up in the 13th century and were filled with German craftsmen and merchants, who received quite extensive privileges on the basis of the Code of Kulm. Thus the Teutonic Order had become the lord of the land, and as such had its rights and duties, but it still preserved its old half-military, half-monastic form, only that it naturally changed somewhat. This made necessary a modification of its rule, which was originally the same as that of the Templars, and, though revised, about the middle of the thirteenth century had become unsuited for the conditions under which the order lived. It is the more wonderful, therefore, how, out of the simple organization of the Teutonic order, a system of government was evolved which satisfied the severest demands. The whole body of the knights, henceforth, were the officials who ruled the new colony. The landmaster, the commander-in-chief, the warden of the hospital, the marshal, and the treasurer became the heads of the most important branches of the administration. The whole district was divided into about twenty commanderships. The commander of the respective religious house of the order was the governor of his district, and the knights who belonged to the convent were his officials. Thus a bureaucracy sprang up beyond the Vistula, which was unique in that every ruler was a servant at the same time. This fact made the Commonwealth possible, and explains the brilliant results achieved by the rule of the order. The manner in which the order excluded the interference of the Church in its affairs is also highly characteristic. It not only foiled the attempts of the Archbishop of Riga to bring Prussia under his ecclesiastical rule, but even invaded his proper sphere by its coalition with the Livonian order of the Brothers of the Sword. In the long run, it was not compatible with the interests of the Teutonic Order to have its chief seat in Palestine. In 1302, 
the Grand Master Gottfried von Hohenlohe had already proposed, at a meeting of the general chapter in Memel, the removal of the residence of the Grand Master of the Order to Prussia. When his proposal was rejected, he voluntarily laid down his office, but was still considered the head of the body by the knights in Germany. In Prussia, Siegfried von Feuchtwangen, Hohenlohe's chief opponent, henceforth ruled the Teutonic Order. Disruption was imminent, which gave the Archbishop of Riga another opportunity to attempt the expulsion of the knights from Livonia. Events had shown that Gottfried von Hohenlohe had been right. Consequently, in 1309, the order resolved on the removal of the residence of its Grand Master to Prussia. They selected Marienburg, which had the best possible location. The castle was completed to serve as an official residence. About this time the ducal house of Pomereln became extinct. Thereupon Margrave Valdemar of Brandenburg advanced his hereditary claims to the succession, but the Teutonic order took the part of a Polish pretender against him. It conquered Danzig for its protégé, but fell out with him later, and drove him out of Pomereln. Then it bought out Valdemar's claims, and added this important district on the left bank of the Vistula to its territory. The order now finally ruled the lower course of the river completely, thereby it had direct communication with Germany, and completely rounded off its state. End of History of Northern Europe to the Beginning of the 14th Century by Hans Prutz Oscar Wilde the aesthetic apostle's first appearance in new york society from the new york world sixth of january eighteen eighty two this is a librivox recording all librivox recordings are in the public domain for more information or to volunteer please visit librivox dot org recording by rob marland oscar wilde the aesthetic apostle's first appearance in new york society Mr. and Mrs. A. A. Hayes, Jr., of 112 East 25th Street, held a reception yesterday afternoon in honour Mr. Oscar Wilde. Mrs. Hayes's pretty suite of Japanese rooms furnished pleasant surroundings for the now famous apostle of English aestheticism. Their careless artistic grace must have commended them to Mr. Wilde's good opinion personally mr wilde not being a japanese young man suggests entirely different surroundings it is allowable to consider him in this light since he is supposed more fully than any one else to embody in his person his views of life which is to say the relation of the man to his aesthetic environment personally mr wilde suggests greek porticoes and doric columns with open spaces looking towards the blue aegean and nearby the venus of milo or a chaste diana to furnish the necessary antithesis to consider mr wilde from an even more artistic point of view he might fitly make a third of this calm group his face is that of a colossal maiden untroubled by heated visions but over which at times beams a certain joyousness wholly greek at the sight of the largeness or beauty of nature in its lines it is essentially feminine but these are on so large a scale 
that their soft curves indicate none of the weakness which might hastily attach to the adjective otherwise his broad sturdy physique is as english as if trained in athletics instead of aesthetics practically mr wilde accommodates himself with great amiability to the more contracted limits of modern life at least in a foreign country in spite of his physiognomy and adopts without constraint the current coin of society not to mention with greater circumstance mr wilde's personal appearance would be inconsistent with alluding to him at all he wore a prince albert coat tightly buttoned and held in his hand a pair of light gloves his broad collar was half hidden by his coat though revealing a blithe blue scarf but was not worn as low as that of mr nicholas smith nor was his hair of greater length than the cut usually adopted by the philosophers of the tribune in short his manner exhibited the unconsciousness of a gentleman and in that respect was unlike the indigenous aesthetic not to say asthmatic types with which we are familiar the lion of the occasion he was very appropriately lionised towering above all the women who clustered prettily about him and above most of the men but roaring very gently he expresses himself very graciously concerning our country and evidently expects more sympathy for his views in our broader less crystallised opinions than he has found among the british philistines of these views he speaks with great seriousness as if their earnestness lay like a burden upon him but he expresses himself with a rhythmical fluency which shows he has long grown used to it and this takes the edge off one's sympathies in admiring the literary form mr wilde is enthusiastic in his admirations of others and especially of mr whistler whom he declares to be the first painter in england but he maliciously adds it will take england three hundred years to find it out in paris mr whistler finds appreciation is at home but paris is artistic and recognises art when it reveals itself in whatever guise of mr whistler's infantile simplicity of character mr wilde is even more generous in praise such bits of conversation were tossed hither and thither among the crowd which surged about the stranger although after yesterday the term is scarcely appropriate and with mr wilde at least the conversation rarely dropped below a certain level lifted into a somewhat rarer air than is usual at afternoon teas to mr wilde this seemed to be native ether and however short-breathed were those he conversed with the circumstances of the situation did not allow it to appear as group effaced group before him wherever he moved the crowd naturally swayed leaving breathing-room behind following him into the dining-room with well-bred curiosity making a faint excuse over the punch-bowl to see him quaff his tea this attention 
the hero of the occasion received with that calm unconsciousness which distinguishes his actions and if he perceived the agreeable impression he created he did not let it appear during the reception mr wilde stood in the middle parlour and back of him was a gigantic japanese umbrella covered with grotesque figures of gaily coloured paper the long thick bamboo handle rested on the floor under a table at mr wilde's left and protected him on that flank on the other side was the partition dividing the two parlours and in the enclosure thus formed mr wilde remained like a heathen idol most of the time between three and six p m daylight was excluded from the room by heavy dark curtains closely drawn and heavy portieres fell over the doors the gas was lighted within but it fell upon mr wilde softened and tinged to a delicate pink by the coloured shades fastened upon the globes of the chandeliers this rosy light softened whatever there might be of harshness in mr wilde's features and made more gentle the gentle expression of his smile his posture was full of grace and strongly brought to mind the pictures seen in punch with the element of caricature of course left out the rooms were filled with articles of bric-a-brac but not a lily or sunflower or anything else supposed to be intimately connected with mr wilde's philosophy was to be seen the dresses of the ladies were not more sad-coloured than those seen at the receptions of people who were philistine or indifferent in all the rooms conversation was carried on between groups independent of mr wilde but whatever the latter said was eagerly listened to by the groups which stood around him the parlours and the refreshment room were crowded all the time the reception lasted among the company were mrs hamilton fish mr robert garrett mr and mrs latrobe of baltimore the reverend dr henry c potter the reverend mr douglas of trinity parish judge brady miss brady judge barrett corporation counsel and mrs whitney mrs beeman and the mrs evarts mr allen evarts mr and mrs j h choate mr and mrs a a lowe the marquise lanza mrs commodore baldwin mrs carlton mr and mrs edward potter mayor and mrs grace mrs parron stevens mr and mrs canokan mr j g gray miss bristed mrs e j hawley mrs wilds mr f h hamlin mr and mrs f o french miss ryder mrs shack mrs and miss marie mr and mrs ludlow fowler mrs w l strong mr and mrs h e pellew mr and mrs r h l townsend mrs john h davis mr and mrs edward tuck mr and mrs henry rogers mrs and the mrs routh mr and mrs t b musgrave mrs wakefield miss folsom dr octavius white mrs john bigelow colonel and mrs morse mrs j h draper mrs george meyer 
mrs trotter mrs colden murray mr w h bishop mrs w e rogers miss blatchford judge and mrs abram r lawrence mrs john lilly and mrs mack mr wilde's abode has been kept somewhat of a secret it is understood that this was done because a number of harmlessly insane persons wished to interview him and his managers do not wish to have him bothered since his arrival he has received many invitations to social entertainments from members of rival sets of society but he has been protected against the designs of all and has accepted none of the invitations this is in accordance with the desire of his managers who stipulated that his social as well as his lecturing engagements should be under their control and who well knowing the importance of his forming only the best social connections have so far allowed him to go nowhere except to mr hayes's mr wilde's agent said yesterday that mr wilde was about to have published at philadelphia a poem explaining his philosophy which he brought over from england there are two or three things in that poem added the agent enthusiastically which i think will go to the very bottom of things at this a mild shudder of mingled delight and alarm ran around the room and agitated all the fans at one happy moment mr wilde advanced a little from the seclusion made by the rod of the japanese umbrella and the partition and was instantly surrounded by ladies who stood grouped in the form of a horseshoe with the heels of the shoe represented by mrs john bigelow and the marquise lanza mrs bigelow with her characteristic hospitality took occasion to secure mr wilde for dinner on sunday evening and the young poet in promising to be prompt showed that he felt that in coming to new york he had come among a people who are hospitable and discriminating at once end of oscar wilde the aesthetic apostle's first appearance in new york society plagiarizing aristotle from the refutation of all heresies by hippolytus of rome one hundred and seventy to two hundred and thirty five a d this is a librivox recording all librivox recordings are in the public domain for more information or to volunteer please visit LibriVox.org. aristotle then makes a threefold division of substance for one portion of it is a certain genus and another a certain species as that philosopher expresses it and a third a certain individual what is individual however is so not through any minuteness of body but because by nature it cannot admit of any division whatsoever the genus on the other hand is a sort of aggregate made up of many and different germs and from this genus just as from a certain heap all the species of existent things derive their distinctions and the genus constitutes a competent cause for the production of all generated entities in order however that the foregoing statement may be clear i shall prove my position through an example 
and by means of this it will be possible for us to retrace our steps over the entire speculation of the peripatetic sage aristotle's general idea we affirm the existence of animal absolutely not some animal and this animal is neither ox nor horse nor man nor god nor is it significant of any of these at all but is animal absolutely from this animal the species of all particular animals derive their subsistence and this animality itself the summum genus constitutes the originating principle for all animals produced in those particular species and yet is not itself any one of the things generated for man is an animal deriving the principle of existence from that animality and horse is an animal deriving the principle of existence from that animality the horse and ox and dog and each of the rest of the animals derive the principle of existence from the absolute animal while animality itself is not any of these non-entity as a cause if however this animality is not any of these species the subsistence according to aristotle of the things that are generated derived its reality from non-existent entities for animality from whence these singly have been derived is not any one of them and though it is not any one of them it has yet become some one originating principle of existing things but who it is that has established this substance as an originating cause of what is subsequently produced we shall declare when we arrive at the proper place of entertaining a discussion of this sort substance according to aristotle the predicates since however as i have stated substance is threefold namely genus species and individual and since we have set down animality as being the genus and man the species as being already distinct from the majority of animals but notwithstanding still to be identified with animals of his own kind inasmuch as not being yet moulded into a species of realized substance therefore it is that when i impart form under a name to a man derived from the genus i style him socrates or diogenes or some one of the many denominations in use and since in this way i repeat i comprehend under a name the man who constitutes a species that is generated from the genus i denominate a substance of this description individual for genus has been divided into species and species into individual but as regards the individual since it has been comprehended under a name it is not possible that according to its own nature it could be divided into anything else as we have divided each of the forementioned genus and species aristotle primarily and especially and preeminently entitles this substance inasmuch as it cannot either be predicated of a subject or exist in a subject he however predicates of the subject just as with the genus 
what i said constituted animality and which is predicated by means of a common name of all particular animals such as ox horse and the rest that are placed under this genus for it is true to say that man is an animal and horse an animal and that ox is an animal and each of the rest now the meaning of the expression predicated of a subject is this that inasmuch as it is one it can be predicated in like manner of many particulars even though these happen to be diversified in species for neither does horse nor ox differ from man so far forth as he is an animal for the definition of animal is said to suit all animals alike for what is an animal if we define it a general definition will comprehend all animals for animal is an animated substance endued with sensation such are ox man horse and each of the rest of the animal kingdom but the meaning of the expression in a subject is this that what is inherent in anything not as a part it is impossible should exist separately from that in which it is but this constitutes each of the accidents resident in substance and is what is termed quality now according to this we say that certain persons are of such a quality for instance white gray black just unjust temperate and other characteristics similar to these but it is impossible for any one of these to subsist itself by itself but it must inhere in something else if however neither animal which i predicate of all individual animals nor accidents which are discoverable in all things of which they are non-essential qualities can subsist themselves by themselves and yet if individuals are formed out of these it follows therefore that the triply divided substance which is not made up out of other things consists of non-entities if then what is primarily and preeminently and particularly denominated substance consists of these it derives existence from non-entities according to aristotle aristotle's cosmogony his psychology his entelechy his theology his ethics basilides follows aristotle but concerning substance the statements now made will suffice but not only is substance denominated genus species and individual but also matter and form and privation there is however as regards the substance in these no difference even though the division be allowed to stand now inasmuch as substance is of this description the arrangement of the world has taken place according to some such plan as the following the world is divided according to aristotle into very numerous and diversified parts now the portion of the world which extends from the earth to the moon is devoid of foresight guideless and is under the sway of that nature alone which belongs to itself but another part of the world which lies beyond the moon 
and extends to the surface of heaven is arranged in the midst of all order and foresight and governance now the celestial superficies constitutes a certain fifth substance and is remote from all those natural elements out of which the cosmical system derives consistence and this is a certain fifth substance according to aristotle as it were a certain supermundane essence and this essence has become a logical necessity in his system in order to accord with the peripatetic division of the world and the topic of this fifth nature constitutes a distinct investigation in philosophy for there is extant a certain disquisition styled a lecture on physical phenomena in which he has elaborately treated concerning the operations which are conducted by nature and not providence in the quarter of space extending from the earth as far as the moon and there is also extant by him a certain other peculiar treatise on the principles of things in the region beyond the moon and it bears the following inscription metaphysics and another peculiar dissertation has been written by him entitled concerning a fifth substance and in this work aristotle unfolds his theological opinions there exists some such division of the universe as we have now attempted to delineate in outline and corresponding with it is the division of the aristotelian philosophy his work however styled concerning the soul is obscure for in the entire three books where he treats of this subject it is not possible to say clearly what is aristotle's opinion concerning the soul for as regards the definition which he furnishes of soul it is easy enough to declare this but what it is that is signified by the definition is difficult to discover for soul he says is an entelechy of a natural organic body but to explain what this is at all would require a very great number of arguments and a lengthened investigation as regards however the deity the originator of all those glorious objects in creation the nature of this first cause even to one conducting his speculations by a more prolonged inquiry than that concerning the soul is more difficult to know than the soul itself the definition however which aristotle furnishes of the deity is i admit not difficult to ascertain but it is impossible to comprehend the meaning of it for he says the deity is a conception of conception but this is altogether a non-existent entity the world however is incorruptible and eternal according to aristotle for it has in itself nothing faulty inasmuch as it is directed by providence and nature and aristotle has laid down doctrines not only concerning nature and a cosmical system and providence and god but he has written more than this for there is extant by him likewise a certain treatise on ethical subjects and these he inscribes the book of ethics but throughout these he aims at rendering the habits of his hearers excellent 
from being worthless when therefore basilides has been discovered not in spirit alone but also in the actual expressions and names transferring the tenets of aristotle into our evangelical and saving doctrine what remains but that by restoring what he has appropriated from others we should prove to the disciples of this heretic that christ will in no wise profit them inasmuch as they are heathenish basilides therefore and isidorus the true son and disciple of basilides say that matthias communicated to them secret discourses which being specially instructed he heard from the saviour let us then see how clearly basilides simultaneously with isidorus and the entire band of these heretics not only absolutely belies matthias but even the saviour himself time was says basilides when there was nothing not even however did that nothing constitute anything of existent things but to express myself undisguisedly and candidly and without any quibbling it is altogether nothing but when he says i employed the expression was i do not say that it was but i speak in this way in order to signify the meaning of what i wish to elucidate i affirm then he says that it was altogether nothing for he says that it is not absolutely ineffable which is named so although undoubtedly we call this ineffable but that which is non-ineffable for that which is non-ineffable is not denominated ineffable but is he says above every name that is named for he says by no means for the world are these names sufficient but so manifold are its divisions that there is a deficiency of names i do not take it upon myself to discover he says proper denominations for all things undoubtedly however one ought mentally not by means of names to conceive after an ineffable manner the peculiarities of things denominated for an equivocal terminology when employed by teachers has created for their pupils confusion and a source of error concerning objects the basilidians in the first instance laying hold on this borrowed and furtively derived tenet from the peripatetic sage play on the folly of those who herd together with them for aristotle born many generations before basilides first lays down a system in the categories concerning homonymous words and these heretics bring this system to light as if it were peculiarly their own and as if it were some novel doctrine and some secret disclosure from the discourses of matthias since therefore nothing existed i mean not matter nor substance nor what is insubstantial nor is absolute nor composite nor conceivable nor inconceivable nor what is sensible nor devoid of senses nor man nor angel nor god nor in short any of these objects that have names or are apprehended by sense or that are cognized by intellect but are thus cognized even with greater minuteness still when all things are absolutely removed since i say nothing existed god non-existent whom aristotle styles conception of conception but these basilidians non-existent inconceivably insensibly indeterminately 
involuntarily impassively and unactuated by desire willed to create a world now i employ he says the expression willed for the purpose of signifying that he did so involuntarily and inconceivably and insensibly and by the expression world i do not mean that which was subsequently formed according to breadth and division and which stood apart nay far from this for i mean the germ of a world the germ however of the world had all things in itself just as a grain of mustard comprises all things simultaneously holding them collected together within the very smallest compass namely roots stem branches leaves and innumerable grains which are produced from the plant as seeds again of other plants and frequently of others still that are produced from them in this way non-existent god made the world out of non-entities casting and depositing some one seed that contained in itself a conglomeration of the germs of the world but in order that i may render more clearly what it is those heretics affirm i shall mention the following illustration of theirs as an egg of some variegated and particolored bird for instance the peacock or some other bird still more manifold and particolored as the egg i say of such a bird though being one in reality contains in itself numerous forms of manifold and particolored and much compounded substances so he says the non-existent seed of the world which has been deposited by the non-existent god constitutes at the same time the germ of a multitude of forms and a multitude of substances End of plagiarizing aristotle from the refutation of all heresies by hippolytus of rome 170 to 235 a.d rambles about rome little journeys of interest around the eternal city by anne hollingsworth wharton this is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. It may not be wise to abide by a hard and fast schedule in lands where more pleasure is often to be found in byways than in highways, but it is well to have some definite plan for each day, especially in Rome, where the best may sometimes be overlooked amid the tempting distractions that meet one at every turn we usually made our plans for the day at breakfast which was served in our own parlor because the paterfamilias of the party had an unconquerable aversion to the cheerless breakfast table at the salle a manger travelers plans naturally depend much upon the weather and we had become epicurean as to weather having had the good fortune in the course of our journeyings to encounter a succession of springs landing upon the island of madeira in february we found the mountain sides curtained by the rich purple bougainvillea although snow still lingered upon the summits as we ascended the heights behind funchal upon which the cathedral stands we were pelted with roses and japonicas by the children 
who follow the train hoping for a few pennies in return for their floral tributes on our way back to the town through precipitous streets in one of the sledges peculiar to madeira we were feasted upon delicious wild strawberries from the mountain nearby in granada although the mountain air was keen the february sun was so warm that in the gardens of the alhambra roses like those of june were filling the air with their delicate fragrance while in southern italy the fields and roadsides were carpeted with narcissus cyclamen english daisies and american wildflowers here in rome during march we have had fitful glimpses of spring in the hillside garden upon which our windows open and upon the sheltered terrace below the pincian hill where carnations and roses bloom abundantly but it was not until april and easter time that we fully realized the joyous awakening of the spring after a fortnight of clouds and rain the sun shone forth gaily and every leaf and blossom in rome seemed to spread itself forth to bask in the genial warmth and every inhabitant was out of doors forestieri and peasants crowding the narrow sidewalks of the corso dark-eyed women were to be seen on all sides some of them with babies in their arms sitting on church steps or sunning themselves and their bambini on the spanish steps which were like a flower garden in these april days with all nature rejoicing over the return of spring it seemed the part of wisdom to listen to the general voice and turn from galleries and churches to wander in the open the borghese garden with its shaded paths and green sward dotted with many flowers is as tempting now as when hawthorne described miriam and donatello dancing under the elixis and stone pines no lovelier spot could be found in which to spend a spring afternoon than this palace garden with its shaded avenues and picturesque fountains unless we chose to stroll over to the pincio where many flowers were blooming and where the band plays gaily to the rich in their carriages and with equal gaiety to the poor on foot or seated on the wooden chairs placed conveniently near the music stand which can be hired for a soldo or two looking forth upon all rome from the commanding heights of the pincio with the incomparable castle of st angelo and the tiber in the foreground and the more distant st peter's and the janiculum hill standing out sharply against the sapphire sky we are not inclined to echo goethe's words written more than a hundred years ago i am perfectly convinced that no city of the ancient world was worse situated than rome since the days when goethe wrote his impressions of the eternal city from that little house still standing on the corso near its opening out into the piazza del popolo and also near a place dear to weary sightseers the little english tea-rooms much of ancient rome has risen from the depths of the earth ruins of ancient palaces have taken the place of the luxuriant growth of vines and flowers that long covered the forum and a new beautiful and gay rome has spread itself forth in wide streets and gardens over in the veneto quarter it seems now as if no city could have been better situated than this rome upon her seven hills with water dashing and gushing from her many fountains in the valley between when goethe was in rome and even when mr w w story wrote in eighteen fifty six of its long damp narrow dirty streets 
the new city the creation of king victor emmanuel and his successor had not yet arisen and the compagna which is now like a garden dotted with wild flowers and glorified by the blossoms of peach almond and judas trees was much of it a pestilential marsh we realized what a change had been wrought by the draining of the marshes when we walked out to the tre fontaine one afternoon as our way lay through the porto san paolo we stopped at the great basilica of the apostle whose name it bears a noble monument the vastness of whose interior impressed us even more than that of st peter's although still unfinished this church with its columns of oriental alabaster its rich malachite pedestals the gift of a russian emperor and its transept glorified by portrait medallions of all the popes is worthy of several visits instead of the brief one made by us on this lovely spring afternoon when the charms of the compagna were calling us into the open the cloisters of st paul's we thought especially beautiful and only excelled by the exquisite arches and columns of the lateran a road leading to the tre fontaine turns off to the left a little way beyond san paolo and a few yards from the gates of rome we found ourselves upon a country road bordered by green meadows the portion of the compagna through which our way lay for about two miles is no longer deserted as earlier travellers have described it but is dotted here and there with farmhouses and gardens around which troops of pretty dark-eyed children were at play but not so busily that they were unwilling to pause in their games to accept a soldo or a bit of chocolate from the forestieri whom they eyed furtively passing by an ancient fort and descending some hillocks we reached a gate which admitted us to an avenue of eucalyptus trees through which we finally gained the celebrated abadia de la tre fontaine originally a cistercian monastery whether the present healthfulness of this place which was at one time abandoned on account of the prevailing malaria is due to the planting of the eucalyptus trees or to the general draining of the marshes and the vigorous war urged against the mosquitoes we know not the gardens and buildings under the judicious cultivation and care of the trappists who occupy the premises now wear a look of thrift and as much comfort as befits a monastery we were told that huge cans of milk were sent to rome every morning as well as hampers of fruit and vegetables from the monastery garden for some reason perhaps because of this profusion of native products and the subtle charm of this lovely spot in its spring beauty the extreme austerity of the trappist's life with its motto le plaisir de mourir sans peine vaut bien la peine de vivre sans plaisir did not impress us as it might have done had we visited the tre fontaine on a bleak winter's day neither did the silence which in the order weigh upon our spirits in the church of san paolo alle tre fontana a young monk was explaining the legend for which the place is celebrated to some students who drank in the story reverently the most interesting of the three churches that of san paolo alle tre fontaine is built over the spot where st paul is said to have been beheaded the legend is that the head of the apostle made three distinct leaps and wherever it touched the ground a fountain gushed forth a service was being held in the church and the monks were singing a low monotonous chant 
among the voices we noticed one that of a young monk which was very beautiful later when we met the singer in the grounds he asked us most ingenuously how we liked his singing and was frankly pleased with our praise as he proved by sending some of the acolytes to gather huge clusters of wisteria and neapolitan roses for us to which he added some branches of eucalyptus which has a pungent aromatic odor when we finally quitted the tre fontaine after buying several bottles of eucalyptus cordial made by the monks and sold in their little pharmacia the shadows were dark in the eucalyptus grove and an indescribably delicate and lovely purple mist was floating over the campagna had we been tempting providence by lingering so late in this once pestilential spot perhaps and yet we have so often been guilty of this sort of imprudence without serious results that we have come to the conclusion that danger that way like many other traditions belongs exclusively to the past and that the roman compagna at sunset is as healthful as most other low-lying lands at that hour another pleasant afternoon ramble is to the geniculum hill to see the fine equestrian statue of garibaldi from the commanding plateau upon which the statue is situated we could see all rome with her four hundred churches more or less distant and below us quite near the trastevere bounded by the windings of the tiber on our way home we stopped at st peter's in montorio in which interesting old church is the tomb of beautiful unhappy beatrice cenci we had seen her fair girlish portrait at the barberini palace and the little cell at the castle of st angelo in which it was painted and we naturally wished to see the tomb it is unmarked however and not particularly impressive and we were glad to wend our way to the church of san onofrio where is the tomb of tasso his statue and some remains of the great oak under whose shade he wrote his jerusalem delivered here we sat on the semicircular seats where the arcadian academy formerly held its meetings and wandered among the cypresses where tasso once walked looking forth as he must often have looked upon the city of many domes framed in by the sabine and alban hills now touched and glorified by the roseate glow of the setting sun end of rambles about rome by anne hollingsworth wharton read by betty b robert fulton this is a librivox recording all librivox recordings are in the public domain for more information or to volunteer please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Avahi in January 2020. Robert Fulton from the Scientific American, Volume 2, Issue 1, September 1846. Edited by Rufus Porter. Robert Fulton, a celebrated engineer whose name is connected with steamboat navigation, was born in the town of Little Britain in the state of Pennsylvania in 1765. His genius disclosed itself at an early period. He was attracted to the shops of mechanics, and at the age of seven he painted landscapes and portraits in Philadelphia. Thus he was enabled in part to purchase a small farm for his widowed mother. 
at the age of twenty-one he by the advice of his friends repaired to london to place himself under guidance of mr west the painter and by him was kindly received and admitted as an inmate of his house for several years prosecuting his business as painter he spent two years in devonshire where he became acquainted with the duke of bridgewater and with lord stanhope well known for his attachment to the mechanic arts in seventeen ninety three he engaged in the project of improving inland navigation and in seventeen ninety six he obtained patents for a double inclined plane and for machines for spinning flax and making ropes the subject of canals now chiefly occupied his attention and at this period in seventeen ninety six his work on canals was published in his profession of civil engineer he was greatly benefited by his skill in drawing and painting he went to paris in seventeen ninety seven and being received into the family of joel barlow he there spent seven years studying chemistry physics and mathematics and acquiring a knowledge of the french italian and german languages in december seventeen ninety seven he made his first experiment on submarine explosion in the seine but without success his plan for a submarine boat was afterwards perfected in eighteen o one while he was residing with his friend mr barlow he met in paris chancellor livingston the american minister who explained to him the importance in america of navigating boats by steam mr fulton had already conceived the project as early as seventeen ninety three as appears by his letter to lord stanhope he now engaged anew in the affair and at the common expense of himself and mr livingston built a boat on the seine in eighteen o three and successfully navigated the river the principle of the steam engine he did not invent he claimed only the application of that machine to water wheel for propelling vessels in eighteen o six he returned to america he and mr livingston built in eighteen o seven the first boat the clermont one hundred thirty feet in length which navigated the hudson at the rate of five miles an hour nothing could exceed the surprise and admiration of all who witnessed the experiment the minds of the most incredulous were changed in a few minutes before the boat had made the progress of a quarter of a mile the greatest unbeliever must have been converted the man who while he looked on the expensive machine thanked his stars that he had more wisdom than to waste his money on such idle schemes changed the expression of his features as the boat moved from the wharf and gained her speed and his complacent expression gradually softened into one of wonder the jeers of the ignorant who had neither sense nor feeling to suppress their contemptuous ridicule and rude jokes were silenced for a moment by a vulgar astonishment which deprived them of the power of utterance till the triumph of genius extorted from the incredulous multitude which crowded the shores shouts and acclamations of congratulation and applause in february eighteen o nine he took out his first patent in eighteen eleven and eighteen twelve he built two steam ferry-boats for crossing the hudson he contrived also a very ingenious floating dock for the reception of those boats in eighteen thirteen he obtained a patent for a submarine battery 
conceiving the plan of a steam man-of-war the government in march eighteen fourteen appropriated three hundred twenty thousand dollars for constructing it and appointed him the engineer in about four months she was launched with the name of fulton the first but before this frigate was finished fulton had paid the debt of nature End of Robert Fulton from the Scientific American, Volume 2, Issue 1, September 1846. The Sunbeam and the Spectroscope by Howard Townsend. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Lavoisier has very beautifully said, The fable of Prometheus is but the overshadowing of a philosophic truth. Where there is light, there is organization and life. But where light cannot penetrate, there death forever holds his silent court. If a sunbeam be allowed to enter a darkened room, it falls on the floor and forms a disk of bright light this is radiated to the eye which conveys the impression to the brain and the phenomenon of vision is established should the hand be placed in the track of the sunbeam the sensation of warmth is communicated and we feel there is heat in the ray if a piece of paper covered over with chloride of silver which is purely white be placed so that the sunbeam falls upon it a darkened track will be immediately produced over the space the sun's ray has passed it has liberated the chlorine leaving the metallic silver such remarkable phenomena teach us that we have to deal with agencies in the solar rays which are in their visible effects very dissimilar actinism which means ray power is now the term adopted to express the chemical principle of the sunbeam that these three functions of the sunbeam light heat and actinism all differ from one another may be thus proven a piece of black mica will allow no light to pass through it but offers no obstruction to solar heat a plate of glass stained apple green with oxide of copper is perfectly transparent to light but opaque or impermeable to heat glass which has been stained yellow with oxide or chloride of silver allows a flood of light to pass through it but permits no permeation of an actinic ray and on the contrary if we use a glass colored deeply blue with the oxide of cobalt though but very little light can pass through it experiment proves that it offers no obstruction to the chemical rays that is it permits the permeation of the actinic ray this fact of yellow glass interfering with and intercepting the actinism of the sunbeam has lately been taken advantage of in photography the photographer no longer shuts himself and his prepared plate in a dark dungeon for now the old dark chamber camera oscura is beautifully illumined by the sun's rays passing through yellow glass which effectually excludes the actinic the chemical rays which alone the photographer dreads in this part of his process but which allows all illuminating rays to be transmitted the strength of evidence appears to be in favour of considering light heat and actinism as three distinct principles or powers 
active in regulating the great phenomena of nature these agents are unceasingly at work it is impossible to expose any body however solid and persistent it may appear to the influence of sunshine without its undergoing a molecular or chemical change in darkness all bodies appear to possess the power of restoring themselves to their normal state should the sun shine uninterruptedly upon a granite monolith or a bronze statue it would perish independently of any other destructive influences night seems as necessary to secure the permanence of the inorganic world as darkness and sleep are essential to maintain in healthful life the organized creations at the enormous distance of ninety-five million miles from us is the sun a great orb having a diameter of eight hundred eighty two thousand miles forming the centre of the solar system not only is the earth and all the other planets chained to the sun by the attractive power of its rays but their motions are determined by its motion and the physical forces which regulate all cosmical phenomena have their source within its body the sun is termed the fountain of light it is equally the source of every other power with which science has made us acquainted since the time when newton analyzed the solar beam the advance of our knowledge has been most rapid we are acquainted with luminous rays which had never been seen by newton and of actinism or the chemical power of the sunbeam he knew nothing the beautiful phenomena of the polarization of light were unknown to him and he had not the most remote idea of the existence of numerous dark lines crossing even the most brilliant divisions of the newtonian spectrum and which promised to advance our knowledge by the discovery of many sublime truths if we place a triangular prism in the path of the sunbeam the rays are bent out of their course or refracted and by this means decomposed into a beautiful flame-like chromatic image now if this solar spectrum be received upon a screen it will be found to consist of several coloured bands crimson red and orange passing into yellow from the least refracted end while from the most refrangible one we have lavender violet indigo blue and green also passing into yellow as they advance to the true centre of the spectral image these rays constitute the newtonian spectrum thus called because newton was the first to examine with precision the relative condition of these coloured bands and to establish with any approach to correctness the laws regulating the relations of colour and refraction anno sixteen seventy five beyond the most refrangible end of this spectrum there exists another class of rays which are not visible under ordinary circumstances if though the rays of light be intercepted by a solution of sulphate of quinine or of horse-chestnut bark or by a crystal of fluor spar these extra-spectral rays are rendered apparent these rays which were unknown to newton have been investigated by professor stokes who has named them the fluorescent rays they are luminous probably under all circumstances to those animals whose eyes are adjusted as are the eyes of most of the night-roaming creatures to admit the rays of the highest refrangibility and to vibrate in unison with their vibrations but 
unless peculiar conditions be established the fluorescent rays are not sensible to the human eye such then is the amount of our knowledge respecting the luminous principle of the sunbeam it must be remembered that these rays vary considerably in the intensity of their illuminating power the maximum exists in the yellow ray and it diminishes as we recede from it towards either end of the spectrum the least refrangible or the red rays give a modified amount of light but the maximum of heat exists in them the most refrangible or the blue end of the spectrum is less luminous but the maximum of chemical action is fixed at this extremity the fluorescent rays beyond the spectrum of newton being only visible under the peculiar circumstances already mentioned if now we examine these beautifully coloured bands of light when well defined upon a screen with a small telescope a new set of phenomena will become apparent the spectrum is then seen crossed by a number of black lines every ray even the most brilliant will be found to have spaces in which there is an entire absence of light it was dr wollaston who first observed these non-luminous spaces in the prismatic spectrum fraunhofer however was the first to make a full investigation of these lines and to publish a map of them and they have hence generally been called fraunhofer's lines these lines are of so fixed a character in relation to the coloured bands of the spectrum that if it be desired to indicate with great precision any special ray of the spectrum we refer to them by their letters or numbers the origin of these dark lines spaces in which there is no light can scarcely be said to be yet resolved fraunhofer and others following him thought that the light emitted from the photosphere was from the first deficient in these rays or that they were lost either by absorption in passing through the solar atmosphere or possibly in passing through that of the earth the investigations of bunsen and kirchhoff remarkable alike for the delicacy and caution observed in the inquiry and for the refined nature of their deductions lead us probably up to the true explanation of these phenomena these investigations of bunsen and kirchhoff from their exceeding interest have lately been attracting great attention angstrom discovered many bright lines in the spectra from artificial light he and others have proved that spectra obtained from the light emitted from incandescent mineral bodies differ from that obtained from the sun that the lines from artificial sources of light are in many cases peculiar and that in the majority of instances bright lines appear to take their place so rigidly exact were the positions and characters of the lines obtained from differently coloured flames that spectral or prismatic analysis has been adopted as a means of determining the presence of exceedingly minute quantities of any substance these lines dark and bright have not only been employed in the analysis of the solid mass of the sun but also in ordinary analysis and the extreme delicacy of the indications is proved from the discovery by bunsen of two new metallic bodies one called cosium meaning bluish grey and the other rubidium from the latin rubidus used to express the darkest red colour which exists in infinitesimally small quantities in some mineral waters of germany 
Bunsen discovered these two new alkaline metals in the mineral waters of Durkheim in the Palatinate. In examining the spectra of the alkalis contained in these waters, he observed some bright lines which he had never seen in any other alkalis which he had investigated. He was sure that no other metals but those of the alkalis could be present, because, by well-known chemical processes, he had separated every other kind of metal. Hence he concluded that these new lines indicated the presence of an alkaline metal whose existence has as yet been overlooked. So certain was Bunsen of his method, and so confident was he that his bright lines could not fail him, that although the weight of the substance from which he obtained his result only amounted to the one thousandth part of a grain, he hesitated not a moment, but began to evaporate forty tons of the water in order to get enough material to separate out his new metal and examine all its chemical relations. No sooner had he obtained more than a mere trace of the new substance than he found that with it was associated a second new metal. He got from the forty tons in question only about a hundred and five grains of the chloride of one metal and a hundred and thirty-five grains of the chloride of the other. In such minute quantities do these substances occur. Still owing to the skill and industry of Bunsen, the great chemist of Heidelberg, we now possess a chemical history of these two new alkalis as complete and well authenticated as that of the commoner alkalis. Their names, which Bunsen has wisely chosen, indicate the nature of their origin and point out the property by means of which they were discovered. Cosium, bluish-gray, thus called because its spectrum is distinguished by two splendid violet hues. Rubidium, owing to the presence of two bright red rays at the least refrangible extremity of its spectrum. Since the publication of the discovery of these metals, their salts have been found to be pretty commonly diffused, but owing to their close resemblance to the compounds of potassium, they were not recognized as separate substances. In fact, had it not been for this new method, we should not have been able to distinguish them from the well-known alkali potash. Cosium and rubidium occur in the water of almost every salt spring and they have likewise been found in the ashes of plants, especially in those of beetroot, so that they must be contained in the soil, but in all these cases the quantity in which they are found is very minute. The mineral lepidolite contains a certain quantity of rubidium, which now may be obtained by the pound, but cosium is still extremely rare. In a similar manner, the existence of another new metal has been pointed out by Mr. Crookes, which is characterized by a spectrum containing one bright green band, and has been called thallium, thallos, green shoot. This has lately been prepared in somewhat larger quantities by Mr. Lamy, from the residue of the Belgian sulfuric acid chambers. He finds that in specific gravity and outward properties it closely resembles lead, but that it possesses very peculiar chemical characteristics. To render the foregoing phenomena and the hypothesis involved intelligible to those who may not have studied the subject, it will be necessary to enter a little into detail. The image produced by decomposing a white sunbeam consists of certain brilliantly colored rays, but those rays are crossed by spaces giving no light, dark lines, 
which dark lines are always found in the same places in the solar spectrum the spectra obtained from some artificial sources of light exhibit the colored rays shading one into the other while those produced by some others consist of a series of luminous bands separated by dark spaces and these luminous bands are frequently found to coincide with the dark lines of the solar spectrum kirchhoff and bunsen say in arguing upon these lines and the hypothesis of the representing the solar dark lines it was proved from theoretical considerations that the spectrum of an incandescent gas becomes reversed that is that the bright ones become changed into dark ones when a source of light of sufficient intensity giving a continuous spectrum is placed behind the luminous gas from this we may conclude that the solar spectrum with its dark lines is nothing else than the reverse of the spectrum which the sun's atmosphere would alone produce hence in order to effect the chemical analysis of the solar atmosphere all that we require is to discover those substances which when brought into the flame produce bright lines coinciding with the dark ones of the solar spectrum the next step in the process of the investigation instructs us in the fact that the vapours producing those coloured flames are opaque to their own rays that is to say if we produce a yellow soda flame and from it obtain a spectrum showing the peculiar soda lines in their bright yellow colour and then impregnate the air with some soda vapour by volatilizing soda between the flame and the spectrum the bright yellow line becomes at once a black line this holds true for all the substances which have yet been examined the coloured bright lines are converted into dark lines if the rays from the coloured flames are made to permeate vapours of the same constitution as those which produced the particular spectrum under examination professor kirchhoff wishing to test the accuracy of the frequently asserted coincidence of the bright metallic and dark solar lines made the following very remarkable experiment which is interesting as giving the key to the solution of the problem regarding the existence of sodium and other metals in the sun he states i obtained a tolerably bright solar spectrum and brought a flame colored by sodium vapor in front of the slit i then saw the dark lines d change into bright ones the flame of a bunsen's lamp threw the bright sodium lines upon the solar spectrum with unexpected brilliancy in order to find out the extent to which the intensity of the solar spectrum could be increased without impairing the distinctness of the sodium lines i allowed the full sunlight to shine through the sodium flame and to my astonishment i saw that the dark lines d appeared with an extraordinary degree of clearness i then exchanged the sunlight for the drummond's or oxyhydrogen limelight which like that of all incandescent solid or liquid bodies gives a spectrum containing no dark lines when this light was allowed to fall through a suitable flame colored by common salt dark lines were seen in the spectrum in the position of the sodium lines the same phenomenon was observed if instead of the incandescent line a platinum wire was used which being heated in a flame was brought to a temperature near its melting point by passing an electric current through it 
the phenomenon in question is easily explained upon the supposition that the sodium flame absorbs rays of the same degree of refrangibility as those it emits whilst it is perfectly transparent for all other rays this opacity of heated sodium vapour for the particular kind of light which it is capable of giving off was strikingly exhibited by professor roscoe in one of a course of lectures on spectrum analysis lately delivered by him in london at the royal institution a glass tube containing a small quantity of metallic sodium was rendered vacuous and then closed on heating the tube the sodium rose in vapour filling a portion of the empty space viewed by ordinary white light this sodium vapour appeared perfectly colourless but when seen by the yellow light of a soda flame the vapour cast a deep shadow on a white screen showing that it did not allow the yellow rays to pass through incandescent gases and vapours give off light of certain definite degrees of refrangibility or they furnish spectra consisting of certain fixed lines and these incandescent gases or vapours absorb light of the same degree of refrangibility as that which they emit this after all is only the expression in relation to light of the celebrated statement made in regard to sound that a body absorbs all the oscillations which it can propagate sound is produced by the vibration of the particles of gravitating matter whilst light is supposed to be produced by a similar vibration of the particles of a non-gravitating matter called the luminiferous ether we are all acquainted with the principle of resonance if we sound a given note in the neighbourhood of a pianoforte the string capable of giving out the vibrations producing that note takes up the vibrations of the voice and we hear it answering the sound the intenser vibrations proceeding in one direction are absorbed by the string and emitted as waves of slighter intensity in every direction all the bright lines of the spectra produced by the vapours of known metals which have yet been examined appear to be represented by the dark lines of the solar spectrum that is to say dark lines always existing in the solar spectral image correspond with every line produced by a spectrum obtained by burning iron and just so with regard to the other metals which have been examined the conclusion therefore is that the radiations from the centre of our system the sun producing the phenomena of light heat and actinism are due to the combustion of metallic bodies such as we find on this earth the mass of the sun is according to this hypothesis regarded as being intensely incandescent matter in all respects similar to that with which we are acquainted is undergoing combustion and of course surrounding the sun with a vaporiform atmosphere consisting of the emanations from the ignited nucleus but for this atmosphere or photosphere a better term the solar spectrum would give a series of brilliantly coloured bright bands it has been stated that vapours are opaque to their own class of rays therefore since the rays produced by burning iron or magnesia or lithium or other metals are not transmitted through the vapours produced by the combustion of those metals the solar spectrum gives an extensive series of dark bands that every black line in the solar spectrum represents rays emitted from some metallic body in the state of combustion in the sun is exceedingly doubtful 
it has been already shown that many of the dark lines are due to the want of absolute transparency of our own atmosphere but kirchhoff's view of the coincidence of the black lines of the solar spectrum with the bright lines of terrestrial flames is a fair deduction from his experimental observations whilst these inquiries of kirchhoff bunsen and others have been progressing investigations elsewhere have brought corroborative evidence the party of astronomers who went to spain in eighteen sixty to note with all accuracy the phenomena of the solar eclipse of that year brought back evidence of tongues of flame or clouds glowing with the reflected lights of an intense combustion coming strongly into view when the bright light of the sun was obscured by the moon's body professor airy states it as his belief that the sun is boiling up and that the prominences observed were fumes given off the sun's disk is covered by masses of curiously shaped and ever-moving forms called by their discoverer mr hastings the willow leaves the inference is that these are tongues of flame ever bursting from this incomprehensible mass and dispersing light and its attendant forces to all the planets by the aid of optical science of chemical experiments and astronomical observations we are advanced to the following deductions that the sun is constituted of matter similar to that which we find in this world that this matter is ever burning but as newton supposed returning in a changed form into itself by the force of attraction in the mass that the physical forces which are developed by those vast chemical changes are radiated in waves through space of stellar chemistry we have at present but little knowledge fraunhofer observed that the spectra of the fixed stars contained dark lines differing from those seen in the solar spectrum a half century has elapsed since fraunhofer made these observations and our knowledge on this point is no further advanced though we have become assured of the truth of his statements in the spectrum of sirius he observed no dark lines in the orange-coloured region but in the green there was a distinct line and in the blue two dark bands none of which were seen in solar light the spectra of other stars were likewise examined by fraunhofer and they appeared each to differ from the other the difficulties attending the exact observation and measurement as regards dark lines in the spectra of the stars are very great but doubtless with the vastly improved optical instrument of the present day astronomers will overcome these difficulties the astronomer royal of england in his last annual report announces that he is about to undertake the examination of the spectra of the fixed stars and perhaps ere long we will know why mars looks so red and some of the other stars so blue how wonderful is it that man by the power of mind is enabled to extend his investigations from the earth directly to the sun and that he can determine the chemical composition of a body millions of miles distant from him is most surprising and proves the divine origin of his intelligence and even more than this has he accomplished by his philosophy in proving the completeness of the balance of forces throughout the universe vast chemical changes are taking place in the sun and for every grain of matter altering its form there an equivalent of physical forces is given out in a radiant state these rays 
pass through space and reach our earth where they are employed in producing exact equivalents of vital and other phenomena the minutest terrestrial organism is the result of chemical changes taking place in the sun which stupendous orb is the great laboratory where those powers are generated by whose agencies all the planets of the system are regulated in obedience to the fiat of the great creator who causeth the day spring to know his place those mysterious agencies whose source man is now becoming acquainted with are flooding out in profuse abundance from the sun causing crude inert matter to pulsate into life and beauty upon every rolling orb within the solar realm End of the Sunbeam and the Spectroscope by Howard Townsend Theory and Practice in Government Reform by Wilhelm von Humboldt, 1767-1835 This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. From the Sphere and Duties of Government, Chapter 16, Practical Application of the Theory Proposed. Every development of truths which relate to human nature, and more especially its active manifestations, is attended with a wish to see worked out in practice what theory has shown us to be just and good to man whose mind is seldom satisfied with the calmly beneficent influence of abstract ideas this desire is perfectly natural and it increases in liveliness with the spirit of benevolent sympathy in social happiness and well-being but however natural in itself and however noble in its origin this desire has not unfrequently led to hurtful consequences nay often to greater evils than the colder indifference or as from the very opposite cause the same effect may follow the glowing enthusiasm which comparatively heedless of reality delights only in the pure beauty of ideas for no sooner has anything that is true struck deep root in human nature even though it should be but in the heart of one man than slowly and noiselessly it spreads its blessed influence over the surface of actual life while on the contrary that which is at once transferred into living action becomes not unfrequently changed and modified in its form and does not even react at all on the ideas hence it is that there are some ideas which the wise would never attempt to realize in practice nay reality is in no age sufficiently ripe for the reception of the most matured and beautiful thoughts and before the soul of the artist whatever his art may be the fair image of the ideal must still hover like a model that is inapproachable such considerations therefore serve to point out the necessity of more than common prudence in the application of even the most consistent and generally accepted theory and they urge it the more on me to examine before concluding my task as fully and at the same time as briefly as possible 
how far the principles herein developed can be transferred into actual practice this examination will at the same time serve to defend me from the charge of having thought to prescribe immediate rules to actual life in what i have said or even to disapprove of all which contradicts the results of my reasoning in the real state of things a presumption i should be loath to entertain even although i had sure grounds for supposing the system i have unfolded to be perfectly just and unquestionable in every remodelling of the present the existing condition of things must be supplanted by a new one now every variety of circumstances in which men find themselves every object which surrounds them communicates a definite form and impression to their internal nature this form is not such that it can change and adapt itself to any other a man may choose to receive and the end is foiled while the power is destroyed when we attempt to impose upon that which is already stamped in the soul a form which disagrees with it if we glance at the most important revolutions in history we are at no loss to perceive that the greatest number of these originated in the periodical revolutions of the human mind and we are still more strikingly convinced of this when on watching the influences that have most operated to change the world we observe that those which accompany the exercise of human power have been the mightiest to alter and modify the existing order of things for the influence of physical nature so calm and measured in their progression and so uniformly revolving in their ever-returning cycles are less important in this respect as are also the influences of the brute creation when we consider these apart and of themselves human power can only manifest itself in any one period in one way but it can infinitely modify this manifestation at any given epoch therefore it betrays a single and one-sided aspect but in a series of different periods these combine to give the image of a wonderful multiformity every preceding condition of things is either the complete and sufficient cause of that which succeeds it or at least exercises such modifying influences that the external pressure of circumstances can produce no other this very prior condition then and the modifications it receives act also to determine in what way the new order of circumstances shall exercise an influence on human nature and the force of this determination is so great that these very circumstances are often wholly altered by it hence it comes that we might be justified in regarding everything which is done on earth as both good and beneficial since it is man's internal power which masters and subdues everything to itself of whatever nature it may be and because this internal power in any of its manifestations can never act otherwise than beneficially since each of these operates in different measures to strengthen and develop it in view of this consideration we understand how the whole history of the human race could perhaps be represented merely as a natural result of the revolutions of human power
and while the study of history in this light would be perhaps more pregnant than any other in interest and instruction it would at the same time point out to him who designs to act upon his fellow-men the way in which he should attempt to sway and guide human forces successfully and the direction in which he must never expect them to go while therefore this human power deserves our especial regard commanding our respect and admiration as it does by its precious and intrinsic worth it has double claims on our consideration when we recognize the mighty influence with which it subjects all other things to its sway whoever then would attempt the difficult task of interweaving artificially a new condition of things with that which is already existing should never lose sight of this all-important agency he must wait therefore in the first place for the full working out of the present in men's minds should he rashly attempt to cut through the difficulty he might succeed perhaps in creating anew the external aspect of things but never the inner disposition of human nature which would surely re-manifest itself in everything new that had been forcibly imposed on it it must not be supposed that in proportion as full scope is allowed to the influence of the present men become more averse to any subsequent change in human history it is extremes which lie most closely together and the condition of external things if we leave it to continue its course undisturbed by any counteracting agency so far from strengthening and perpetuating itself inevitably works out its ruin this is not only proved by the experience of all ages but is in strict accordance with human nature for the active man never remains longer with one object than his energy finds in it sufficient scope and material for exercise and hence he abandons it most quickly when he has been most uninterruptedly engaged on it and as for the passive man although it is true that a continuing pressure serves to blunt and enfeeble his powers it causes him to feel on the other hand the stringent influence more keenly now without directly altering the existing condition of things it is possible to work upon the human mind and character and give them a direction no more correspondent with that condition and this it is precisely which he who is wise will endeavour to do only in this way is it possible to reproduce the new system in reality just as it has been conceived in idea and in every other method setting aside the evils which arise from disturbing the natural order of human development it is changed modified disfigured by the remaining influence of preceding systems in the actual state of circumstances as well as in the minds of men but if this obstacle be removed if the new condition of things which is resolved upon can succeed in working out its full influence unimpeded by what was previously existing and by the circumstances of the present on which this has acted then must nothing further be allowed to stand in the way of the contemplated reform 
the most general principles of the theory of all reform may therefore be reduced to these one we should never attempt to transfer purely theoretical principles into reality before this latter in its whole scope and tendency offers no further obstacles to the manifestation of those consequences to which without any intermixture of other influences the principles arrived at would lead two in order to bring about the transition from the condition of the present to another newly resolved on every reform should be allowed to proceed as much as possible from men's minds and thoughts in my exposition of abstract theoretical principles in this essay i have always proceeded strictly from considerations of human nature i have not presupposed in this moreover any but the usual measure of power and capability yet still i imagine man to exist in that state alone which is necessary and peculiar to his nature and unfashioned by any determinate relation whatever but we never find man thus the circumstances amidst which he lives have in all cases already given him some or other determinate form whenever a state therefore contemplates extending or restricting its sphere of action it must pay especial regard to this varying form which human nature assumes now the misrelation between theory and reality as regards this point of political administration will in all cases consist as may easily be foreseen in an insufficient degree of freedom and hence it might appear that the removal of existing bonds would be at all times possible and at all times beneficial but however true in itself such a supposition may be it should not be forgotten that the very thing which cripples men's power on the one side furnishes it on the other with the food and material of its activity i have already observed in the beginning of this essay that man is more disposed to domination than freedom and a structure of dominion not only gladdens the eye of the master who rears and protects it but even the meanest underworkers are uplifted by the thought that they are members of a majestic whole which rises high above the life and strength of single generations wherever then there is still such a commanding spectacle to sway men's admiration and we attempt to constrain men to act only in and for himself only in the narrow circle of his own individual power only for the brief space during which he lives all living energy must slowly pine away and lethargy and inaction ensue it is true that this is the only way in which man can act on the most illimitable space and on the most imperishable duration but at the same time he does not thus act immediately he rather scatters vital and self-germinating seeds than erects structures which reveal at once the traces of his hand and it requires a higher degree of culture to rejoice in an activity which only creates powers and leaves them to work out their own results rather than in that which at once realizes and establishes them before our eyes 
this degree of culture it is which shows the ripe moment for freedom but the capacity for freedom which arises from such a degree of culture is nowhere to be found perfect and matured and this perfection i believe is ever destined to remain beyond the reach of man's sensuous nature which is always disposing him to cling to external objects what then would be the task of the statesman who should undertake such a reform first then in every new step which is out of the course of things as they exist he must be guided strictly by the precepts of abstract theory except where there are circumstances in the present on which to try to graft it would be to frustrate wholly or in part the proper consequences of that theory secondly he must allow all restrictions on freedom to remain untouched which are once rooted in the present so long as men do not show by unmistakable signs that they regard them as enthralling bonds that they feel their oppressive influence that they are ripe for an increase of freedom in these respects but when this is shown he must immediately remove them finally he must make men thus ripe for enlarged freedom by every possible means this last duty is unquestionably the most important and at the same time as regards this system the simplest for by nothing is this ripeness and capacity for freedom so much promoted as by freedom itself this truth perhaps may not be acknowledged by those who have so often made use of this want of capacity as a plea for the continuance of repressive influences but it seems to me to follow unquestionably from the very nature of man the incapacity for freedom can only arise from a want of moral and intellectual power to elevate this power is the only way to counteract this want but to do this presupposes the exercise of that power and this exercise presupposes the freedom which awakens spontaneous activity only it is clear we cannot call it giving freedom when fetters are unloosed which are not felt as such by him who wears them but of no man on earth however neglected by nature and however degraded by circumstances is this true of all the bonds which oppress and enthrall him let us undo them one by one as the feeling of freedom awakens in men's hearts and we shall hasten progress at every step there may still be great difficulties in being able to recognize the symptoms of this awakening but these do not lie in the theory so much as in its execution which it is evident never admits of special rules but in this case as in every other is the work of genius alone theoretically i should thus endeavor to solve this confessedly intricate problem the legislator should keep two things constantly before his eyes one the pure theory developed to its minutest details two the particular condition of actual things which he designs to reform he must command a view of the theory not only in all its parts 
and in its most careful and complete development but must further never lose sight of the necessary consequences of each of its several principles in their full extent in their manifold interconnection and where they cannot all be realized at once in their mutual dependency on each other it is no less his duty although it is doubtless infinitely difficult to acquaint himself with the actual condition of things with the nature of all restrictive bonds which the state imposes on the citizens and which these under shelter of the political power impose on each other contrary to the abstract principles of the theory and with all the consequences of these restrictions he should now compare these two pictures with each other and the time to transfer a theoretical principle into reality would be thus recognized when it has been shown by the comparison that after being transferred the principle would be unaltered and would produce the results represented in the first picture or when if this coincidence should not be perfect it might yet be anticipated that this difference and shortcoming would be removed after reality had more closely approximated to theory for this last-mentioned goal this continual approximation should never cease to attract the regard of the legislator there may seem to be something strange in the idea of these imaginative representations and it might be supposed impossible to preserve the truthfulness of such pictures and still more to institute an exact comparison between them these objections are not without foundation but they lose much of their force when we remember that theory still yearns for freedom only while reality in so far as it differs from theory is only characterized by coercion that we do not exchange coercion for freedom only because it is impossible and that the reason for this impossibility can only be found in one of these two considerations either that man or the condition in which things are is not yet adapted to receive the freedom which in either case frustrates the natural results without which we cannot conceive of existence not to say freedom or that the latter a consequence which follows only from the first supposition or the actual incapacity of man does not produce those salutary effects with which otherwise it is always attended now we cannot judge as regards either of these cases without carefully picturing the present to our minds and the contemplated change in its full extent and instituting an exact comparison between their respective forms and issues the difficulty still further decreases when we reflect that the state itself is never in a position to introduce any important change until it observes in the citizens themselves those indications which show it to be necessary to remove their fetters before these become heavy and oppressive so that the state only occupies the place of a spectator and the removal of restrictions on freedom implying nothing more than a calculation of possibility is only to be guided by the dictates of sheer necessity lastly 
it is scarcely needed to observe that we are alluding here to cases in which a change proceeding from the state is not only physically but morally possible and which contain therefore no contradiction to principles of right only it is not to be forgotten with regard to this last condition that natural and general right is the sole true basis of all positive law that therefore we should always revert to that natural foundation and hence that to adduce a point of law which is as it were the source of all the others no one can at any time or in any way obtain any right with regard to the powers or means of another against or without his will under this supposition i would venture to lay down the following principle with regard to the limits of its activity the state should endeavour to bring the actual condition of things as near to the true and just principles of theory as this is possible and is not opposed by reasons of real necessity now the possibility consists in this that men are sufficiently right to receive the freedom which theory always approves and that this freedom can succeed in producing those salutary consequences which always accompany its unhindered operation the other consideration or that of opposing necessity reduces itself to this that freedom if once granted is not calculated to frustrate those results without which not only all further progress but even existence itself is endangered in both of these cases the statesman's judgment must be formed from a careful comparison between the present condition of things and the contemplated change and between their respective consequences this principle proceeds absolutely from the application in this particular case of the principle we before laid down with regard to all methods of reform for as well when there is an incapacity for greater freedom as when the essential results we have referred to would suffer from the increase the real condition of things prevents the abstract principles of theory from manifesting themselves in those consequences which without the intermixture of any foreign influence they would invariably produce i shall not add anything further as to the development of the principle i propose i might perhaps go on to classify the possible positions which reality may assume and illustrate the manner of its application to those but in attempting this i should only contradict my own principles for i have observed that every such application requires a commanding view of the whole and all its parts in their closest interconnection and such a whole can never be exhibited by any mere process of hypothesis if we add to this rule which we have laid down for the practical guidance of the state those laws which are imposed on it by the theory we previously developed we shall conclude that its activity should always be left to be determined by necessity for the theory we have advanced allows to it only the solicitude for security since security alone is unattainable by the individual man and hence this solicitude alone is necessary 
and the practical rule we have proposed for the state's direction serves to bind it strictly to the observance of the theory in so far as the condition of the present does not necessitate a departure from the course it prescribes thus then it is the principle of necessity towards which as to their ultimate centre all the ideas advanced in this essay immediately converge in abstract theory the limits of this necessity are determined solely by considerations of man's proper nature as a human being but in the application we have to regard in addition the individuality of man as he actually exists this principle of necessity should i think prescribe the grand fundamental rule to which every effort to act on human beings and their manifold relations should be invariably conformed for it is the only thing which conducts to certain and unquestionable results the consideration of the useful which might be opposed to it does not admit of any true and unswerving decision it presupposes calculations of probability which even setting aside the fact that from their very nature they cannot be free from error always run the risk of being falsified by the minutest unforeseen circumstances while on the other hand that which is necessary urges the soul with an influence that is resistless and whatever necessity demands is not only useful but absolutely indispensable the useful moreover since its degrees are as it were infinite presupposes a constant succession of new arrangements and expedients while the limitations on the contrary which necessity enjoins tend to lessen its very demands since they leave ampler scope to the original power lastly the solicitude for the useful encourages for the most part the adoption of positive arrangements that for the necessary chiefly requires negative measures since owing to the vigorous and elastic strength of man's original power necessity does not often require anything save the removal of oppressive bonds from all these reasons to which a more detailed analysis of the subject might add many more it will be seen that there is no other principle than this so perfectly accordant with the reverence we owe to the individuality of spontaneous beings and with the solicitude for freedom which that reverence inspires finally the only infallible means of securing power and authority to laws is to see that they originate in this principle alone many plans have been proposed to secure this great object to most it has appeared the surest method to persuade the citizens that the laws are both good and useful but even although we admit that they possess these qualities in given cases it is always difficult to convince men of the usefulness of an arrangement different points of view give different opinions and men are often prone to oppose convictions and however ready to embrace the utility of anything they have themselves recognized to resist aught that is attempted to be thrust upon them but to the yoke of necessity everyone willingly bows the head still 
wherever an actual complicated aspect of things presents itself it is more difficult to discover exactly what is necessary but by the very acknowledgment of the principle the problem invariably becomes simpler and the solution easier i have now gone over the ground i marked out at the beginning of this essay i have felt myself animated throughout with a sense of the deepest respect for the inherent dignity of human nature and for freedom which is alone becoming that dignity may the ideas i have advanced and the expressions i have lent to them be not unworthy such a feeling End of Theory and Practice in Government Reform by Wilhelm von Humboldt, seventeen sixty seven to eighteen thirty five. Chapters five through seven of Thomas Andrews Shipbuilder by Sean F. Bullock. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Read by Chad Horner from Ballyclare in County Antrim, Northern Ireland, situated in the northeast of the island of Ireland. Chapter 5. We come back then to Andrews, as Mr. Childers saw him on that day in the yard, big, strong, inspiriting, full of enthusiasm and mastery, a genuine captain of industry, there on the scene of his triumphs yet revealing himself as modestly we know as any of the great army of workers under his direction before attempting to give some further and completer account of the relations which existed between him and the islanders it may be well to give a letter written by andrews in nineteen o five to a young relative then beginning work as an engineer i am sorry i did not get a shake of your fist old chap before leaving just to wish you good luck at your business and a good time at please accept from me the enclosed small gift to go towards a little pocket money you are such a sensible boy i know that you require no advice from me but as an old hand who has come through the mill myself i would just like to say how important it is for you to endeavour to give your employers full confidence in you from the start this can best be gained one by punctuality and close attention to your work at all times but don't allow your health to suffer through overwork two always carry out instructions given by those above you whether you agree with them or not and try to get instructions in writing if you are not sure of your man three always treat those above you with respect no matter whether they are fools or no less than yourself four never give information unless you are perfectly sure better to say you are not sure but will look the matter up five never be anxious to show how quick you are by being the first out of the shop when the horn blows it is better on these occasions to be a bit slow now this is a sermon by thomas but not one of your father's only that of an old cousin who has high expectations of you and is interested in your welfare good-bye and good luck that little sermon by thomas with its admixture of shrewdness wisdom and kind-heartedness may be taken as embodying the work-a-day rules of duty perfected by andrews through a varied experience of sixteen years 
rules doubtless as faithfully observed by himself as they were commended for the guidance of others what may be called its hoarse sense its blunt avowal of how to play the game helps us towards a fuller understanding of the man puts him in the plain light through which every day in view of every one he passed it shows us why he succeeded why in any circumstances and irrespective almost of his higher qualities he was bound to succeed it explains to some extent what a workman meant in calling him a born leader of men it helps us to understand why some called him a hard man and why he made a few enemies helps us also to understand why the islander who threatened to drop a bag of rivets on his head was threatened to laugh amenity what andrews demanded of others he exacted in greater measure of himself if at times he enforced his code of conduct with sternness in that as all who felt the weight of his hand would eventually acknowledge he was but doing his plain duty did men skulk or scamp their job they must be shown decisively that a shipyard was no place for them someone discovered asleep on a nine-inch plank spanning an open ventilator must be taught discretion but no bullying no unfairness above all no show of malice if in andrew's nature was no trace of maliciousness neither did there lurk in it any meanness not once but a thousand times during the past black months has his character been summed with characteristic terseness by the island shipwrights just as a judge straight as a die there wasn't a crooked turn in him simple phrases conveying a magnificent tribute for what better in any one can you have than the straightness of a die whether you regard him as a man or master and such straightness in a shipbuilder is not the supreme quality at all events this quality of absolute rectitude so indispensable in other respects was the main quality which in their personal relations with him won for andrews the admiration and esteem of the islanders they could trust him he would see fair play if he caught you doing wrong he wasn't afraid to tell you so if he found you breaking a rule he wouldn't fire you straight away but would give you the rough side of his tongue and a friendly caution so long as one reported a mistake honestly he had consideration but try to hide it away and he blazed at you he had a grand eye for good work and a good man and the man who did good work no matter who he was got a clap on the shoulder so the islanders this man and that and then once more comes the crowning judgment on the tongue of so many he was straight as a die but not that one quality alone gained for andrews his great one might say his unique popularity in the yard his vast knowledge his mastery of detail his assiduity his zest all these merits had their due effect upon the men and effective too was the desire he showed always to get the best possible out of every worker it was not enough to do your job he expected you to think about it and if from your thinking resulted a suggestion it got his best consideration it might be worthless never mind better luck next time if it were worth a cent he would make it shine in your eyes like a dollar in addition were those more personal qualities emanations so to speak of the man's character his generosity kindliness patience geniality humour humility courage that great laugh of his the whining smile the fine breezy presence 
of those also the men had constant and intimate experience any one in trouble might be sure of his sympathy after a spell of sickness his handshake and hearty greeting stirred new life in your blood once he found a great fellow ill-treating a small foreman who for sufficient reason had docked his wages whereupon andrews took off his coat and hammered the bully during labour and party troubles he several times at risk of his life saved men from the mob one day in a gale he climbed an eighty-foot staging rescued the terrified man who had gone up to secure those loose boards and himself did the work another day he lent a hand to a shipwright toiling across the yard under a heavy beam and as they went andrews asked how is it micklewain you always like to be besides me ah sir was the reply it is because you carry up well these incidents chosen from so many enable us to see why in the words of the island poet though andrews was our master we loved him to a man he always carried up well stood foursquare to all the winds that blew too often those in authority rule as tyrants using power like some juggernaut crushing under the beasts of burden but andrews following the example of his uncle preferred to rule beneficently as a man among his fellows one evening writes mrs andrews my husband and i were in the vicinity of queen's island and noticing a long file of men going home from work he turned to me and said there go my pals nelly i can never forget the tone in his voice as he said that it was as though the men were as dear to him as his own brothers afterwards on a similar occasion i reminded him of the words and he said yes and they are real pals too you see now why a colleague mr saxon payne secretary to lord perry could write it was not a case of liking him we all loved him and why during those awful days in april when hope of good news at last had gone the yard was shrouded in gloom and rough men cried like women they had lost a pal and not they only on both sides of the atlantic wherever men resort whose business is in the great waters owners commanders directors managers architects engineers ship officers stewards sailors the name tom andrews is honoured to-day as that of one whose remarkable combination of gifts claimed not only their admiration but their affection what we are to do without andrews said a belfast ship owner i don't know he was probably the best man in the world for his job knew everything was ready for anything could manage everyone and what a friend it's irreparable surely of all men worth saving he ought to have been saved yes saved by force for only in that way could it have been done here too it may be mentioned that during his business career andrews received many acknowledgments of a gratifying description for those whom in various ways he had served amongst others from the white star company the hamburg american company and what i dare say he valued as much from the stewards of the olympic following the announcement of his marriage a committee was organized at the yard for the purpose of showing him in a tangible way the esteem of the islanders but for business reasons or perhaps feeling a delicacy in accepting a compliment without parallel in the history of the yard he whilst making it plain how much the kindly thought had moved him felt constrained to ask the committee to desist one may end this imperfect chapter with two more tributes 
themselves without any great literary merit perhaps yet testifying sincerely one thinks to the love which andrews inspired in everyone long ago poor dr o'loughlin wrote in collaboration with the pursuer of the oceanic some verses to be sung to the air timothy atkins doubtless they have been sung at ship's mess on many a voyage and perhaps have elsewhere been printed one verse is given here neath a gantry high and mighty she had birth and she'd bulk and length and height and mighty beam and the world was only larger in its girth and she seemed to be a living moving dream then she rode so grandly o'er the sea that she seemed a beauty decked in bright array and the whistle sounded loudly and she sailed along so proudly that we all cried out she must be quite okay oh tommy tommy andrews we are all so proud of you and to say we have the finest ship that e'er was built is true may your hand ne'er lose its coming we don't care how winds may roar for we know we have a frigate that can sail from shore to shore the second tribute is taken from a lament written by the island poet in the ballad form so popular in ireland and circulated widely in the yard a queen's island trojan he worked to the last very proud we all feel of him here in belfast our working men knew him as one of the best he stuck to his duty and god gave him rest chapter six it remains before giving account of the finest action of his life to consider briefly by way of rounding his portrait what we may call andrew's outside aspect the side that is he might turn to some committee of experts sitting in solemn judgment upon him as a possible candidate for political honours that side it may be said at once is singularly unpretentious and indeed when we think of his absorption heart and soul in what he knew for him was best who could expect or wish it to be otherwise in ulster heaven knows are publicists galore and sufficient men too willing to down tools at any outside hornblow that we should the less admire one who spoke only once in public took no open part in politics and was not even a strong party man he was however a member of the ulster reform club twice he was pressed to accept the presidency of unionist clubs frequently he was urged to permit his nomination for election to the city council the belfast harbour board shared the opinion of one of its leading members that his youthful vigour his undoubted ability and his genial personality would have made him an acquisition to this important board his fellow directors in a resolution of condolence expressed their feeling that not only had the firm lost a valued and promising leader but the city an upright and capable citizen who had he lived would have taken a still more conspicuous place in the industrial and commercial world even in the south where admiration of northerners is not commonly fervent it was admitted by many that an andrews ulster had at last found the makings of a leader for such straws blown in so prevailing a wind we may determine the estimation in which andrews as a prospective citizen stood amongst those who knew him and their own needs the best and also perhaps may roughly calculate the possibilities of that future which he himself in stray minutes of leisure may have anticipated but some there will be 
doubtless whose admiration of andrews is the finer because he kept the path of his career straight to its course without any deviation to enticing havens such a man however the son of such a father could not fail to have views on the burning topics of his time and no estimate of him would be complete which gave these no heed he was we are told an imperialist loving peace and consequently in favour of an unchallengeable navy he was a firm unionist being convinced that home rule would spell financial ruin to ireland through the partial loss of british credit and of the security derived from connection with a strong and prosperous partner at times he was known to express disapproval of the policy adopted by those irish unionists who strove to influence british electors by appeals to passion rather than by means of reasoned argument also he felt that ireland would never be happy and prosperous until agitation ceased and promise of security were offered to the investing capitalist though no believer in modern cities he was of opinion that an effort should be made to expand and stimulate irish village life it seeming to him that a country dependent solely on agriculture was like a man fighting the battle of life with one hand where however an approved system of agriculture such as that advocated by sir horace plunkett joined with a considerable scheme of town and village industries he believed that emigration would cease and ireland find prosperity to the practical application of tariff reform he saw many difficulties but thought them not insuperable in view of the needs of the world-wide and growing empire the necessity of preserving british work for british people and the injury done to home trade by the unfair competition of protected countries he judged that the duties upon important necessities should be materially reduced and a counterbalancing tax levied on all articles of foreign manufacture he advocated modern social reform on lines carefully designed to encourage thrift temperance and endeavour and as one prime means towards improving the condition both moral and physical of the workers he would have the state either directly or through local authorities provide them with decent homes to the consideration of labour problems particularly those coming within the scope of his own experience he gave much thought and when it is considered that his great popularity with all classes held steady through the recent period of industrial unrest we may judge that his attitude towards labour in the mass as in the unit was no mere personal expression of friendliness as his real pals he wanted to help the workers educate and lift them other things being equal he always favoured the men who used their heads as well as their hands and if in the management of their own affairs they used their heads but also so much the better for all concerned he considered that both in the interests of men and masters it was well for labour to be organised under capable leaders but honest agreements should he thought be binding on both sides and not liable to governmental interference politicians and others should in their public utterances he felt endeavour to educate the workers in the principles of economics relative to trade wages and the relations between capital and labour but publicists who for party or like reasons strove to foster class hatreds and strifes he would hang by the heels from a gantry where economically possible 
the working day should he thought be shortened especially the day of all toiling in arduous and unwholesome conditions similarly he was disposed to favour when economically possible encouragement of the workers by means of a system of profit sharing he would furthermore give them every facility for technical education but such he knew from experience was of little value unless supplemented by thorough practical knowledge gained in the workshop these views and opinions whatever their intrinsic value in the eyes of experts are at least interesting sooner or later had andrews lived he would perhaps have made them the basis of public pronouncements and then indeed might his abounding energy applied in new and luring directions have carried him to heights of citizenship chapter seven happily there is no need in these pages to attempt any minute estimate of the share andrews had in building the titanic such a task were it feasible would offer difficulties no less testing than those met courageously by half the world's journalists when attempting to describe the wonders of that ill-fated vessel her length that of a suburban city her height the equivalent of a seventeen-story building her elevator cars coursing up and down as through a city hotel her millionaire suites her luxuries of squash raquette courts turkish and electric bath establishments salt-water swimming pools glass enclosed some parlours veranda cafes and all probably no one man was solely responsible for the beautiful thing she was an evolution rather than a creation triumphant product of numerous experiments a perfection embodying who knows what endeavour from this a little from that a little more of human brain and hand and imagination how many ships were built how many lost how many men lived wrought and died that the titanic might be so much being said it may however be said further that to her building andrews gave as much of himself as did any other man all his experience of ships gained in the yards on voyages by long study was in her all his deep knowledge too gathered during twenty years and now applied in a crowning effort with an ardour that never flagged it was by the titanic her vast shape slowly assuming the beauty and symmetry which are but a memory to-day that mr childers met andrews and noted in him those qualities of zest vigour power and simplicity which impressed him deeply yet andrews then was no whit more enthusiastic we feel sure than on any other day of the great ship's fashioning from the time of her conception slowly down through the long process of calculating planning designing building fitting until at last she sailed proudly away to the applause of half the world whatever share others had in her his at least cannot be gainsaid as lord priory's assistant he had done his part by way of shaping into tangible form the projects of her owners as chief designer and naval architect he planned her complete as managing director he saw her grow up frame by frame plate by plate day after day throughout more than two years watched her grow as a father watches his child grow assiduously minutely 
and with much the same feelings of parental pride and affection for andrews this was his ship whatever his hands in her and in that she was efficiently designed and constructed as is now established his fame as a shipbuilder may well rest as surely none other did he knew her inside and out her every turn in art the power and beauty of her from keel to truck knew her to the last rivet and because he knew the great ship so well as a father knows the child born to him therefore to lose her was heartbreak on tuesday morning april the second nineteen twelve at six a m the titanic left belfast an ideal weather and was towed down channel to complete her trials on board was andrews representing the firm her compasses being adjusted the ship steamed towards the isle of man and after a satisfactory run returned to the lock about six p m throughout the whole day andrews was busy receiving representatives of the owners inspecting and superintending the work of internal completion and taking notes just a line he wrote to mrs andrews to let you know that we got away this morning in fine style and have had a very satisfactory trail we are getting more shipshape every hour but there is still a great deal to be done having received letters and transferred workmen the ship left immediately for southampton andrews still on board and with him amongst others the eight brave men from the island yard who perished with him they were william henry marsh power assistant manager electrical department roderick chisholm ships droughtsman anthony w frost outside foreman engineer robert knight leading hand engineer william campbell joiner apprentice alfred fleming cunningham fitter apprentice frank parks plumber apprentice ennis hastings watson electrician apprentice during the whole of wednesday the third until midnight when the ship arrived at southampton andrews was ceaselessly employed going round with representatives of the owners and of the firm in taking notes and preparing reports of work still to be done all the next day from an early hour he spent with managers and foremen putting work in hand in the evening he wrote to mrs andrews i wired you this morning of our safe arrival after a very satisfactory trip the weather was good and everyone most pleasant i think the ship will clean up all right before sailing on wednesday and then he mentions that the doctors refused to allow lord perry to make the maiden voyage thereafter from day to day until the date of sailing he was always busy taking the owners round ship interviewing engineers officials agents managers subcontractors discussing with principals the plans of new ships and superintending generally the work of completion through the various days that the vessel lay at southampton writes his secretary mr thompson hamilton mr andrews was never for a moment idle he generally left his hotel about eight thirty for the offices where he dealt with his correspondence then went on board until six thirty when he would return to the offices to sign letters during the day i took to the ship any urgent papers and he always dealt with them no matter what his business nothing he allowed to interfere with duty he was conscientious to the minutest detail he would himself put in their place such things as racks tables chairs berth ladders 
electric fans saving that except he saw everything right he could not be satisfied one of the last letters he wrote records serious trouble with the restaurant galley hot press and directs attention to a design for producing the number of screws in stateroom hat hooks another of earlier date in the midst of technicalities about cofferdams and submerged cylinders on the propeller boss expresses agreement with the owner that the colouring of the pebble dashing on the private promenade decks was too dark and notes a plan for staining green the wicker furniture on one side of the vessel withal his thought for others never failed now he is arranging for a party to view the ship now writing to a colleague i have always in mind a week's holiday due to you from last summer and shall be glad if you will make arrangements to take these on my return as although you may not desire to have them i feel sure that a week's rest will do you good on the evening of sunday the seventh he wrote to mrs andrews giving her news of his movements and dwelling upon the plans he had in mind for the future on the ninth he wrote the titanic is now about complete and will i think do the old firm credit to-morrow when we sail on the tenth he was aboard at six o'clock and thence until the hour of sailing he spent in a long final inspection of the ship she pleased him the old firm was sure of its credit just before the moorings were cast off he bade good-bye to mr hamilton and the other officials he seemed in excellent health and spirits his last words were remember now and keep mrs andrews informed of any news of the vessel the titanic carrying two thousand two hundred and one souls left southampton punctually at noon on april tenth there was no departure ceremony on her way from dock she passed the majestic and the philadelphia both giants of twenty years ago and now by contrast with leviathan humbled to the stature of dwarfs about a mile down the water she passed test quay where the oceanic and the new york lay berthed her wash caused the new york to break her moorings and drift into the channel as the titanic was going dead slow danger of a collision was soon averted but as andrews wrote that evening the situation was decidedly unpleasant from cherbourg he wrote again to mrs andrews we reached here in nice time and took on board quite a number of passengers the two little tenders looked well you will remember we built them about a year ago we expect to arrive at queenstown about ten thirty a m tomorrow the weather is fine and everything shaping for a good voyage i have a seat at the doctor's table one more letter was received from him by mrs andrews and only one this time from queenstown and dated april eleventh everything on board was going splendidly he said and he expressed his satisfaction at receiving so much kindness from everyone here all direct testimony ceases proudly in eye of the world the titanic sailed westward from the irish coast then for a while disappeared only to reappear in a brief scene of woefulest tragedy round which the world stayed mute if as is almost certain a chronicle of the voyage was made by andrews both it and the family letters he wrote now are gone with him but fortunately we have other evidence plentiful and well attested and on such our story henceforward runs the steward henry e etches who attended him says that during the voyage right to the moment of disaster andrews was constantly busy with his workmen he went about the boat all day long putting things right and making note of every suggestion of an imperfection 
afterwards in his stateroom which is described as being full of charts he would sit for hours making calculations and drawings for future use others speak of his great popularity with both passengers and crew i was proud of him writes the brave stewardess mrs may sloane of belfast whose testimony is so invaluable he came from home and he made you feel on the ship that all was right and then she adds now because of his big gentle kindly nature everyone loved him it was good to hear his laugh and have him near you if anything went wrong it was always to mr andrews one went even when a fan stuck in a stateroom one would say wait for mr andrews he'll soon see to it and you would find him settling even the little quarrels that arose between ourselves nothing came amiss to him nothing at all and he was always the same a nod and a smile or a hearty word whenever he saw you and no matter what he was at two of his table companions mr and mrs albert a dick of calgary alberta also tell how much they came to love andrews because of his character and how good it was to see his pride in the ship but upon every occasion and especially at dinner on sunday evening he talked almost constantly about his wife little girl mother and family as well as of his home this preoccupation with home and all there was noticed too by miss sloane sometimes between laughs he would suddenly fall grave and glance you might say back over a shoulder towards donallan and ardara off near stamford lock i was talking to him on the friday night as he was going into dinner writes miss sloane in a letter dated from the lapland on april twenty seventh the dear old doctor was waiting for him on the stair landing and calling him by his christian name tommy mr andrews seemed loth to go and wanted to talk about home he was telling me his father was ill and mrs andrews not so well i was congratulating him on the beauty and perfection of the ship he said the part he did not like was that the titanic was taking us further away from home every hour i looked at him and his face struck me as having a very sad expression one other glimpse we have of him then in that brief time of triumph whilst yet the good ship of his which everyone praised was speeding westwards in perfectly clear and fine weather towards the place where was no moon the stars were out and there was not a cloud in the sky for more than a week he had been working at such pressure that by the friday evening many saw how tired as well as sad he looked but by the sunday evening when the ship was as perfect so he said as brains could make her he was himself again i saw him go into dinner said miss sloane he was in good spirits and i thought he looked splendid an hour or two afterwards he went aft to thank the baker for some special bread he had made for him then back to his stateroom where apparently he changed into working clothes and sat down to write he was still writing it would seem when the captain called him end of chapters five through seven of thomas andrews shipbuilder by shan f bullock Celebrated Travellers Before the Christian Era by Jules Verne, translated by Dora Lee. 
from celebrated travels and travellers part one the exploration of the world this is a librivox recording all librivox recordings are in the public domain for more information or to volunteer please visit LibriVox.org. hanno 505 herodotus 484 pythias 340 nearchus 326 eudoxus 146 caesar 100 strabo 50 hanno the carthaginian herodotus visits egypt libya ethiopia phoenicia arabia babylon persia india media colchis the caspian sea scythia thrace and greece pythias explores the coasts of iberia and gaul the english channel the isle of albion the orkney islands and the land of thule nearchus visits the asiatic coast from the indus to the persian gulf eudoxus reconnoitres the west coast of africa caesar conquers gaul and great britain strabo travels over the interior of asia and egypt greece and italy the first traveller of whom we have any account in history is hanno who was sent by the carthaginian senate to colonize some parts of the western coast of africa the account of this expedition was written in the carthaginian language and afterwards translated into greek it is known to us now by the name of the periplus of hanno at what period this explorer lived historians are not agreed but the most probable account assigns the date b c five hundred and five to his exploration of the african coast hanno left carthage with a fleet of sixty vessels of fifty oars each carrying thirty thousand persons and provisions for a long voyage these emigrants for so we may call them were destined to people the new towns that the carthaginians hoped to found on the west coast of libya or as we now call it africa the fleet successfully passed the pillars of hercules the rocks of gibraltar and ceuta which command the strait and ventured on the atlantic taking a southerly course two days after passing the straits hanno anchored on the coast and laid the foundations of the town of thumiaterion then he put to sea again and doubling the cape of solois made fresh discoveries and advanced to the mouth of a large african river where he found a tribe of wandering shepherds camping on the banks he only waited to conclude a treaty of alliance with them before continuing his voyage southward he next reached the island of cerne situated in a bay and measuring five stadia in circumference or as we should say at the present day nearly nine hundred and twenty-five yards according to hanno's own account this island should be placed with regard to the pillars of hercules at an equal distance to that which separates these pillars from carthage they set sail again and hanno reached the mouth of the river cretes which forms a sort of natural harbour but as they endeavoured to explore this river they were assailed with showers of stones from the native negro race inhabiting the surrounding country and driven back and after this inhospitable reception they returned to cerne we must not omit to add that hanno mentions finding large numbers of crocodiles and hippopotami in this river twelve days after this unsuccessful expedition the fleet reached a mountainous region where fragrant trees and shrubs abounded and it then entered a vast gulf which terminated in a plain this region appeared quite calm during the day but after nightfall it was illuminated by tongues of flame which might have proceeded from fires lighted by the natives 
or from the natural ignition of the dry grass when the rainy season was over. In five days Hanno doubled the Cape, known as the Hesperaceras. There, according to his own account, quote, he heard the sounds of fives, cymbals, and tambourines, and the clamor of a multitude of people. End quote. The soothsayers who accompanied the party of Carthaginian explorers counseled flight from this land of terrors, and in obedience to their advice they set sail again, still taking a southerly course. They arrived at a cape which, stretching southwards, formed a gulf called Notuqueras, and according to Monsieur d'Avezac, this gulf must have been the mouth of the river Ouro, which falls into the Atlantic almost within the Tropic of Cancer. At the lower end of this gulf they found an island inhabited by a vast number of gorillas, which the Carthaginians mistook for hairy savages. They contrived to get possession of three female gorillas, but were obliged to kill them on account of their great ferocity. This Notuqueras must have been the extreme limit reached by the Carthaginian explorers, and though some historians incline to the belief that they only went to Bojador, which is two degrees north of the tropics, it is more probable that the former account is the true one, and that Hanno, finding himself short of provisions, returned northwards to Carthage, where he had the account of his voyage engraved in the temple of Baal Moloch. After Hanno, the most illustrious of ancient travellers was Herodotus, who has been called the father of history, and who was the nephew of the poet Paniasis, whose poems ranked with those of Homer and Hesiod. It will serve our purpose better if we only speak of Herodotus as a traveller, not as historian, as we wish to follow him as far as possible through the countries that he traversed. Herodotus was born at Halicarnassus, a town in Asia Minor, in the year B.C. 484. His family were rich, and having large commercial transactions, they were able to encourage the taste for explorations which he showed. At this time there were many different opinions as to the shape of the earth, the Pythagorean school having even then begun to teach that it must be round. But Herodotus took no part in this discussion, which was of the deepest interest to learned men of that time, and, still young, he left home with a view of exploring with great care all the then known world, and especially those parts of it, of which there were but few and uncertain data. He left Halicarnassus in 484, being then twenty years of age, and probably directed his steps first to Egypt, visiting Memphis, Heliopolis, and Thebes. He seems to have specially turned his attention to the overflow of the banks of the Nile, and he gives an account of the different opinions held as to the source of this river, which the Egyptians worshipped as one of their deities. Quote, when the Nile overflows its banks, he says, you can see nothing but the towns rising out of the water, and they appear like the islands in the Aegean Sea. End quote. He tells of the religious ceremonies among the Egyptians, their sacrifices, their ardor in celebrating the feasts of honor of their goddess Isis, which took place principally at Busiris, whose ruins may still be seen near Bushir, and of the veneration paid to both wild and tame animals, which were looked upon almost as sacred, and to whom they even rendered funeral honors at their death. He depicts in the most faithful colors the Nile crocodile, its form, habits, and the way in which it is caught, and the hippopotamus, the momot, the phoenix, the ibis, and the serpents that were consecrated to the god Jupiter. 
Nothing can be more lifelike than his accounts of the Egyptian customs, and the notices of their habits, their games, and their way of embalming the dead, in which the chemists of that period seemed to have excelled. Then we have the history of the country, from Menes, its first king, downward to Herodotus's time, and he describes the building of the pyramids under Cheops, the labyrinth that was built a little above the Lake Moeris, of which the remains were discovered in A.D. 1799, Lake Moeris itself, whose origin he ascribes to the hand of man, and the two pyramids which are situated a little above the lake. He seems to have admired many of the Egyptian temples, and especially that of Minerva at Sais, and of Vulcan and Isis at Memphis and the colossal monolith that was three years in course of transportation from the elephantina to sais though two thousand men were employed on this gigantic work after having carefully inspected everything of interest in egypt herodotus went into libya little thinking that the continent he was exploring extended thence to the tropic of cancer he made special inquiries in Libya as to the number of its inhabitants, who were a simple nomadic race principally living near the sea-coast, and he speaks of the Ammonians, who possessed the celebrated temple of Jupiter Ammon, the remains of which have been discovered on the northeast side of the Libyan desert, about 300 miles from Cairo. Herodotus furnishes us with some very valuable information on Libyan customs. He describes their habits, speaks of the animals that infest the country serpents of a prodigious size lions elephants bears asps horned asses probably the rhinoceros of the present day and cynocephali quote, animals with no heads and whose eyes are placed on their chest end quote. to use his own expression foxes hyenas porcupines wild zarus panthers etc he winds up his description by saying that the only two aboriginal nations that inhabit this region are the Libyans and Ethiopians. According to Herodotus, the Ethiopians were at that time to be found above Elephantina, but commentators are induced to doubt if this learned explorer ever really visited Ethiopia, and if he did not, he may easily have learned from the Egyptians the details that he gives of its capital, Meroe, of the worship of Jupiter and Bacchus, and of the longevity of the natives there can be no doubt however that he set sail for tyre in phoenicia and that he was much struck with the beauty of the two magnificent temples of hercules he next visited tarsus and took advantage of the information gathered on the spot to write a short history of phoenicia syria and palestine we next find that he went southward to arabia and he calls it the ethiopia of asia for he thought the southern parts of arabia were the limits of human habitation he tells us of the remarkable way in which the arabs kept any vow that they might have made that their two deities were uranus and bacchus and of the abundant growth of mirth cinnamon and other spices and he gives a very interesting account of their culture and preparation we cannot be quite sure which country he next visited as he calls it both assyria and babylonia but he gives a most minute account of the splendid city of babylon which was the home of the monarchs of that country after the destruction of nineveh and whose ruins are now only in scattered heaps on either side of the euphrates which flowed a broad deep rapid river dividing the city into two parts on one side of the river the fortified palace of the king stood and on the other the temple of jupiter belus which may have been built on the site of the tower of babel 
Herodotus next speaks of the two queens, Semiramis and Nicotris, telling us of all the means taken by the latter to increase the prosperity and safety of her capital, and passing on to speak of the natural products of the country, the wheat, the barley, millet, sesame, the wine, fig tree, and palm tree. He winds up with a description of the costume of the Babylonians and their customs, especially that of celebrating their marriages by the public crier. After exploring Babylonia, he went to Persia, and as the express purpose of his travels was to collect all the information he could relating to the lengthy wars that had taken place between the Persians and Grecians, he was most anxious to visit the spots where the battles had been fought. He sets out by remarking upon the custom prevalent in Persia of not clothing their deities in any human form, nor erecting temples nor altars where they might be worshipped, but contenting themselves with adorning them on the tops of the mountains. He notes their domestic habits, their disdain of animal food, their taste for delicacies, their passion for wine, and their custom of transacting business of the utmost importance when they had been drinking to excess their curiosity as to the habits of other nations, their love of pleasure, their warlike qualities, their anxiety for the education of their children, their respect for the lives of all their fellow creatures, even of their slaves, their horror both of death and lying, and their repugnance to the disease of leprosy, which they thought proved that the sufferer, quote-unquote, had sinned in some way against the sun. The India of Herodotus, according to Monsieur Vivant de Saint-Martin, only consisted of that part of the country that is watered by the five rivers of the Punjab adjoining Afghanistan, and this was the region where the young traveller turned his steps on leaving Persia. He thought that the population of India was larger than that of any other country, and he divided it into two classes, the first having settled habitations, the second leading a nomadic life. Those who lived in the eastern part of the country killed their sick and aged people and ate them, while those in the north, who were a finer, braver, and more industrious race, employed themselves in collecting the auriferous sands. India was then the most easterly extremity of the inhabited land, as he thought, and he observes, quote, that the two extremities of the world seem to have shared nature's best gifts, as Greece enjoyed the most agreeable temperature possible, quote. and that was his idea of the western limits of the world. Media is the next country visited by this indefatigable traveller, and he gives the history of the Medes, the nation which was the first to shake off the Assyrian yoke. They founded the great city of Ecbatana, and surrounded it with seven concentric walls. They became a separate nation in the reign of Deosis, after crossing the mountains that separate Media from Colchis, the Greek traveller entered the country, made famous by the valour of Jason, and studied its manners and customs with the care and attention that were among his most striking characteristics. Herodotus seems to have been well acquainted with the geography of the Caspian Sea, for he speaks of it as a sea, quote-unquote, quiet by itself, and having no communication with any other, he considered that it was bounded on the west by the Caucasian mountains, and on the east by a great plain inhabited by the Massagete, who both Arian and Diodorus Siculus think may have been Scythians. These Massagete worshipped the sun as their only deity, and sacrificed horses in its honour. 
he speaks here of two large rivers one of which the araxes would be the volga and the other that he called the ista must be the danube the traveller then went into scythia and he thought that the scythians were the different tribes inhabiting the country that lay between the danube and the don in fact a considerable portion of european russia he found the barbarous custom of putting out the eyes of their prisoners was practised among them and he noticed that they only wandered from place to place without caring to cultivate their land herodotus relates many of the fables that make the origin of the scythian nation so obscure and in which hercules plays a prominent part he adds a list of the different tribes that composed the scythian nation but he does not seem to have visited the country lying to the north of the euxine or black sea he gives a minute description of the habits of these people and expresses his admiration for the pontus euxinus the dimensions that he gives of the black sea the bosphorus and the propontis the palus meotis and of the aegean sea are almost exactly the same as those given by geographers of the present day he also names the large rivers that flow into these seas the ister or danube the boristenes or dnieper the tanais or don and he finishes by relating how the alliance and afterwards the union between the scythians and amazons took place which explains the reason why the young women of that country are not allowed to marry before they have killed an enemy and established their character for valour after a short stay in thrace during which he was convinced that the getae were the bravest portion of this race herodotus arrived in greece which was to be the termination of his travels to the country where he hoped to collect the only documents still wanting to complete his history and he visited all the spots that had become illustrious by the great battles fought between the greeks and persians he gives a minute description of the pass of thermopylae and of his visit to the plain of marathon the battlefield of platea and his return to asia minor whence he passed along the coast on which the greeks had established several colonies herodotus can only have been twenty-eight years of age when he returned to halicarnassus in caria for it was in b c four hundred and fifty-six that he read the history of his travels at the olympic games his country was at that time oppressed by Ligdamis, and he was exiled to samos but though he soon after rose in arms to overthrow the tyrant the ingratitude of his fellow-citizens obliged him to return into exile in four hundred and forty-four he took part in the games at the pantheon and there he read his completed work which was received with enthusiasm and towards the end of his life he retired to thurium in italy where he died b c four hundred and six leaving behind him the reputation of being the greatest traveller and the most celebrated historian of antiquity after herodotus we must pass over a century and a half and only note in passing the physician ctesias a contemporary of xenophon who published the account of a voyage to india that he really never made and we shall come in chronological order to pythias who was at once a traveller geographer and historian one of the most celebrated men of his time it was about the year b c three hundred and forty that pythias set out from the columns of hercules with a single vessel but instead of taking a southerly course like his carthaginian predecessors he went northwards passing by the coast of iberia and gaul to the furthest points which now form the cape of finisterre 
and then he entered the English Channel and came upon the English coast, the British Isles, of which he was to be the first explorer. He disembarked at various points on the coast and made friends with the simple, honest, sober, industrious inhabitants who traded largely in tin. Pythias ventured still further north and went beyond the Orcades Islands to the furthest point of Scotland, and he must have reached a very high latitude, for during the summer the night only lasted two hours. After six days' further sailing, he came to lands which he calls Thule, probably the Jutland or Norway of the present day, beyond which he could not pass, for he says, quote, there was neither land, sea, nor air there, end quote. He retraced his course, and changing it slightly, he came to the mouth of the Rhine, to the country of the Ostians, and further inland to Germany. Thence he visited the mouth of the Tanais, that is supposed to be the Elbe, or the Oder, and he returned to Marseille, just a year after leaving his native town. Pythias, besides being such a brave sailor, was a remarkably scientific man. He was the first to discover the influence that the moon exercises on the tides, and to notice that the polar star is not situated at the exact spot at which the axis of the globe is supposed to be. Some years after the time of Pythias, about B.C. 326, a Greek traveller made his name famous. This was Nearchus, a native of Crete, one of Alexander's admirals, and he was charged to visit all the coasts of Asia from the mouth of the Indus to that of the Euphrates. When Alexander first resolved that this expedition should take place, which had for its object the opening up of a communication between India and Egypt, he was at the upper part of the Indus. He furnished Nearchus with a fleet of thirty-three galleys, of some vessels with two decks, and a great number of transport ships and two thousand men. Nearchus came down the Indus in about four months, escorted on either bank of the river by Alexander's armies, and after spending seven months in exploring the delta, he set sail and followed the west line of what we call Belochistan in the present day. He put to sea on the 2nd of October, a month before the winter storms had taken a direction that was favourable to his purpose, so that the commencement of his voyage was disastrous, and in forty days he had scarcely made eighty miles in a westerly direction. He touched first at Stura and at Corestis, which do not seem to answer to any of the now existing villages on the coast, then at the island of Crocala, which forms the Bay of Carantia. Beaten back by contrary winds, after doubling the Cape of Monze, the fleet took refuge in a natural harbour, that its commander thought that he could fortify as a defence against the attacks of the barbarous natives, who, even at the present day, keep up their character as pirates. After spending twenty-four days in this harbour, Nearchus put to sea again on the 3rd of November. Severe gales often obliged him to keep very near the coast, and when this was the case, he was obliged to take all possible precautions to defend himself from the attacks of the ferocious Beluchis, who are described by Eastern historians, quote, as a barbarous nation with long dishevelled hair and long flowing beards who are more like bears or satyrs than human beings, end quote. Up to this time, however, no serious disaster had happened to the fleet, but on the 10th of November, in a heavy gale, two galleys and a ship sank. Nearchus then anchored at Crocala, 
and there he was met by a ship laden with corn that alexander had sent out to him and he was able to supply each vessel with provisions for ten days after many disasters and a skirmish with some of the natives nearchus reached the extreme point of the island of the orites which is marked in modern geography by cape morant here he states in his narrative that the rays of the sun at midday are vertical and therefore there are no shadows of any kind but this is surely a mistake for at this time in the southern hemisphere the sun is in the tropic of capricorn and beyond this his vessels were always some degrees distant from the tropic of cancer therefore even in the height of summer this phenomenon could not have taken place and we know that his voyage was in winter circumstances seemed now rather more in his favour for the time of the eastern monsoon was over when he sailed along the coast which is inhabited by a tribe called ichthyophagi who subsist solely on fish and from the failure of all vegetation are obliged to feed even their sheep upon the same food the fleet was now becoming very short of provisions so after doubling cape posmi nearchus took a pilot from those shores on board his own vessel and with the wind in their favour they made rapid progress finding the country less bare as they advanced a few scattered trees and shrubs being visible from the shore they reached a little town of the name of which we have no record and as they were almost without food nearchus surprised and took possession of it the inhabitants making but little resistance Kanasida, or Ktubar, as we call it, was their next resting-place, and at the present day the ruins of a town are still visible in the bay. But their corn was now entirely exhausted, and though they tried successively at Kanate, Trois, and Dagasira for further supplies, it was all in vain, these miserable little towns not being able to furnish more than enough for their own consumption. The fleet had neither corn nor meat, and they could not make up their minds to feed upon the tortoise that abound in this part of the coast just as they entered the persian gulf they encountered an immense number of whales and the sailors were so terrified by their size and number that they wished to fly it was not without much difficulty that nearchus at last prevailed upon them to advance boldly and they soon scattered their formidable enemies having changed their westerly course for a north-easterly one they soon came upon fertile shores and their eyes were refreshed by the sight of cornfields and pasture-lands interspersed with all kinds of fruit-trees except the olive they put into baris or jask and after leaving it and passing maseta or mosendon they came in sight of the persian gulf to which nearchus following the geography of the arabs gave the misnomer of the red sea they sailed up the gulf and after one halt reached harmozia which has since given its name to the little island of ormuz there he learned that alexander's army was only five days march from him and he disembarked at once and hastened to meet it no news of the fleet having reached the army for twenty-one weeks they had given up all hope of seeing it again and great was alexander's joy when nearchus appeared before him though the hardships he had endured had altered him almost beyond recognition alexander ordered games to be celebrated and sacrifices offered up to the gods then nearchus returned to harmozia as he wished to go as far as susa with the fleet and set sail again having invoked jupiter the deliverer he touched at some of the neighbouring islands 
probably those of Arek and Kismis, and soon afterwards the vessels ran aground, but the advancing tide floated them again, and after passing Bestion, they arrived at the island of Caish, that is sacred to Mercury and Venus. This was the boundary line between Carmania and Persia. As they advanced along the Persian coast, they visited different places, Gilam, Indarabia, Chevaux, etc., and at the last named was found a quantity of wheat which Alexander had sent for the use of the explorers. Some days after this, they came to the mouth of the river Araxes that separates Persia from Susiana, and thence they reached a large lake situated in the country now called Dorgestan, and finally anchored near the village of Degela, at the source of the Euphrates, having accomplished their project of visiting all the coast lying between the Euphrates and Indus. Nearchus returned a second time to Alexander, who rewarded him magnificently, and placed him in command of his fleet. Alexander's wish that the whole of the Arabian coast should be explored as far as the Red Sea was never fulfilled, as he died before the expedition was arranged. It is said that Nearchus became governor of Lycia and Pamphylia, but in his leisure time he wrote an account of his travels which has unfortunately perished, though not before Arian had made a complete analysis of it in its Historia Indica. It seems probable that Nearchus fell in the battle of Ipsu, leaving behind him the reputation of being a very able commander. His voyage may be looked upon as an event of no small importance in the history of navigation. We must not omit to mention a most hazardous attempt made in B.C. 146 by Eudoxus of Sisychus, a geographer living at the court of Eurgetes II to sail round Africa. He had visited Egypt and the coast of India. When this far greater project occurred to him, one which was only accomplished 1600 years later by Vasco da Gama, Eudoxus fitted out a large vessel and two smaller ones, and set sail upon the unknown waters of the Atlantic. How far he took these vessels we do not know, but after having had communication with some natives, whom he thought were Ethiopians, he returned to Mauritania. Thence he went to Tiberia, and made preparations for another attempt to circumnavigate Africa, but whether he ever set out upon this voyage is not known. In fact, some learned men are even inclined to consider Eudoxus an impostor. We have still to mention two names of illustrious travellers living before the Christian era, those of Caesar and Strabo. Caesar, born B.C. 100, was preeminently a conqueror, not an explorer, but we must remember that in the year B.C. 58 he undertook the conquest of Gaul, and during the ten years that were occupied in this vast enterprise he led his victorious legions to the shores of Great Britain, where the inhabitants were of German extraction. As to Strabo, who was born in Cappadocia, B.C. 50, he distinguished himself more as a geographer than a traveller, but he travelled through the interior of Asia and visited Egypt, Greece and Italy, living many years in Rome and dying there in the latter part of the reign of Tiberius. Strabo wrote a geography in seventeen books, of which the greater part has come down to us and this work with that of Ptolemy are the two most valuable legacies of ancient to modern geographers. End of Celebrated Travellers Before the Christian Era by Jules Verne
the trial of captain john kimber for the murder of two female negro slaves on board the recovery african slave ship tried at the admiralty sessions held at the old bailey the seventh of june seventeen ninety two before sir james marriott etc taken in shorthand by a student of the temple to which are added observations on the above trial this is a librivox recording all librivox recordings are in the public domain for more information or to volunteer please visit librivox.org introduction on a business which has so long agitated the public mind as the slave trade everything that can be said must in some manner be interesting the atrocity of that unnatural and abominable custom could not in any instance have been more abundantly manifested than in the late decision of a large majority in the house of commons perhaps the procrastination of the same important question in a superior house may be productive of greater good than the people of england are aware of perhaps it may upon the next discussion lead to an immediate and total abolition of a cruel and inhuman traffic it cannot but be lamented that a personage of the first rank who could have no other motive except that of love for uncontrollable tyranny should become so strenuous an advocate for slavery he has more than once expressed his sentiments in public and on the present occasion seemed to have comported himself with an extraordinary degree of zeal which whether it became the dignity of a p-dash in such a cause we shall not take on us to determine but leave it to the world to judge of the propriety of such conduct whatever the public opinion may be relative to the prosecution carried on against captain kimber who has been we suppose fairly acquitted by an english jury it was evidently a necessary and a useful measure it may afford a salutary lesson to those captains of slave ships and masters of slaves who should hereafter attempt to commit such horrid outrages as he has been charged with and it may from the circumstances here related for such barbarities have doubtless been often practised fill the minds of men universally with horror against the present system until tyranny shall at length give way to public opinion and liberty and happiness be restored to human beings this trial came on at the admiralty sessions held at the old bailey on thursday the seventh of june seventeen ninety two before sir james marriott judge advocate of the admiralty mr justice ashurst and mr baron hotham the prisoner was indicted for having feloniously wickedly and with malice aforethought beaten and tortured a female slave so as to cause her death and he was again indicted for having caused the death of another female slave 
mr broderick on the side of the prosecution first opened the cause sir william scott next stated that the prisoner captain kimber had commanded the ship recovery which traded in slaves from the coast of africa to the west indies that in seventeen ninety one he arrived in the river of calabar whence he had in some time after departed with a cargo of slaves among whom was that negro girl for whose murder the prisoner now stood indicted she had been for a considerable time afflicted with a loathsome distemper and a lethargic complaint which prevented her from eating or mixing in any of those exercises which the other slaves on board were accustomed to practice the prisoner had her punished for this supposed obstinacy flogged her and had her raised up by pulleys from the deck so that the tortures she endured caused her to languish for a few days until she died i shall not said the learned counsel enter into a detail of circumstances for that must appear by the evidence which is to be laid before you gentlemen of the jury nor is it necessary that i should make any observations on the heinousness of this offence as that is the province of the court and no doubt your verdict will be given with that discretion and impartiality which has always been shewn on similar occasions mr thomas dowling was first called and examined by mr attorney-general he had been a surgeon on board the recovery the ship which the prisoner commanded in the beginning of june he had arrived in the river of calabar on the coast of africa where in the end of august they had completed their cargo of slaves about the time of sailing he had under his care a female slave aged about fourteen or fifteen years who had been afflicted with a virulent gonorrhea and lethargy or drowsy complaint of which latter ailment he could never learn the real cause she was not then in a convalescent state but her diseases were stationary and bore every probable appearance of recovery in this situation she could not eat as the other slaves did nor join in any of their amusements at which the captain was so irritated that he used to flog her himself with a whip the handle of which was one foot long and the lash two about three weeks after they had sailed he beat her in this manner with uncommon severity and on the twenty-second of december perceiving her not to dance with the other negro women he ordered a boy to bring a teakle one end of which was fastened to the mizzen stay and the other to one of her hands and by this she was lifted up from the deck and remained suspended for about five minutes and during that time she was bounced up and down or in other words lifted up and let fall again by the way who had a hold of the teakle 
she was then taken down and suspended in the same manner by the other arm she was next lifted up by one leg and afterwards by the other until at last she was taken up for the fifth time by both hands and underwent the fifth excruciating suspension the whole time from the first to the last suspension this witness said might have been half an hour while she continued hung up by both hands the prisoner lashed her inhumanly with his whip and when she was let down he forced her to walk without any assistance down the hatchway this she was unable to do having got but two or three steps when she slipped all the rest of the way when this witness next saw her she was welted in several parts of the body her hands were swelled in consequence of the hanging and her legs disfigured in a shocking manner after this the witness saw her in convulsions had her brought on deck and rubbed her with volatile spirits but every remedy was ineffectual she languished away in this miserable state for three days and on the third expired all this happened in the middle passage about two hundred leagues from granada whither the recovery with her cargo was bound and the witness was positive that the death of the slave was occasioned by the ill-treatment she had received the witness was cross-examined by mr pigott leading counsel for the prisoner question has it been your undeviating opinion that the girl died in consequence of the punishment said to have been inflicted on her answer it has question was her death the subject of no conversation at that time among the ship's crew answer it was between me and mr devereux and i heard the two boys pearson and cruz speak of it question how many men did the whole crew consist of answer about six and twenty question at what time of the day did the fact happen which you have related answer some time in the forenoon question you heard no conversation about it except that between the two boys answer no question are these boys now absent answer i heard so but cannot say question how many of the mariners do you think are now in this country answer i do not know i mean to relate every fact which may go as well to subvert my own evidence as make against the prisoner question what time did you arrive at granada answer on the twenty eighth of october question did you disclose the death of this girl to any person at granada answer no question how long were you there answer about a month question did you go to the custom house while you were there answer i did question 
Did you keep a journal while you were on the Middle Passage? Answer. Yes, of whites, but not of blacks. Question. Did you deliver in your journal? Answer. Yes. Question. And swore to it? Answer. The form of an oath was read to me by a person sitting at a desk. I took the book and returned it without swearing. Question. Did you sign the journal as sworn to it? Answer. Yes, I did. Here Mr. Piggott read his oath, which declared that his journal was a just and true one. And the attested copy being handed to the witness, he declared, he did not recollect whether he had signed it or not. Question. Is not that your name to the oath, and is it false or true? Answer. I do not recollect that I signed it. Question. Is your bond discharged? Answer. Yes, I produced this copy at Bristol to have it discharged. Question. Why did not the cause of the death of the Negro girl appear in your journal? Answer. The apprehensions I had for my own safety while I sailed with the prisoner prevented me from relating it. Question. Is it from disclosing a barbarous murder? Answer. Yes, because the prisoner and I had often quarreled, and I might have been judged an improper evidence against him. Question. At what place did you quarrel? Answer. At the river of Calabar. Question. Did you not mutiny? Answer. Never. Question. Did you not strike the prisoner? Answer. I did, after he had abused and struck me on board his ship. Question. You collared and held him? Answer. Yes, at the cabin door, when the first and second mate came and seized me, and by the prisoner's orders I was put into irons, where I continued twenty-four hours and i was afterwards excluded from the cabin and obliged to mess with the common men question did you not tell a mr jacks that you would be revenged on captain kimber answer no i never said so question did you not say you would work his ruin answer never there is not such baseness in my nature. I never made a declaration of the kind to any person, but I said I would advertise him for his treatment of me. After my arrival in Bristol, about Christmas last, I applied to Mr. Jacks, who was part owner of the recovery, for my wages. He only paid me a part of them. I then complained to him of Captain Kimber's treatment but did not disclose the murder question did you not tell a mr riddle that you would ruin captain kimber answer no but i said i would commence a suit against him for his severe treatment of me and that i would put myself under the protection of the first king's ship i met with 
this conversation took place before we sailed from calabar question did you never say anything to the prisoner's servant answer no question did you ever administer any mercury to the girl who died answer no it was improper for her complaint question can you pretend to say that the suspension of this girl was intended as a punishment answer i shall not say that but it was obvious that it was a punishment question might not the captain have had reason to conclude that this suspension was necessary answer he might have had a motive but i did not know it he never consulted any person in what he used to do and he has often interrupted me in the discharge of my duty question in what part of the ship did the suspension take place answer on the awning deck question and when it happened in so open and conspicuous a situation as that it was impossible it must not have been seen by the ship's company why was it not a more general subject of conversation answer i suppose it was but i had not an opportunity of hearing it except between pearson and cruz question what was the cause of your having at length disclosed this murder with which you now charge the prisoner answer i was solicited by mr lloyd a banker at birmingham to give an account of the firing on the town of calabar and from that relation this account followed as a casual circumstance i told it to mr wilberforce the day before he made his speech in the house of commons but i never intended to prosecute or appear in evidence against captain kimber question so then this murder remained a secret until the day before mr wilberforce made his speech in the house of commons answer no i told it to persons in private question how often had you sailed as a surgeon before this time answer that was my first voyage and it shall be my last the witness was re-examined by mr attorney-general in order to account for some of those circumstances which came out on his cross-examination and might go to invalidate his testimony he said that he and the two boys were on the awning deck when the girl was suspended that between this deck and the other part of the ship there was a barricade about nine feet high which prevented those persons in the forepart from seeing what was done abaft by this means many of the ship's crew who were on deck might have remained without seeing or knowing what was done to the girl and this might have been the cause why the circumstance had not been generally spoken of on board when i gave in my journal said the witness at granada i wished to omit every mention of the negro girl from the apprehensions i was under for my safety not knowing what the prisoner might have done 
i therefore wished to evade the oath which is made on those occasions and accordingly when the officer tendered it to me i took the book from him and returned it without kissing it he was sitting at a desk and did not see me the witness requested that the court would examine the log-book where they should see that this death which he omitted in his journal did really happen and the prisoner he said had told him that a journal was a mere matter of form he said also that when mr lloyd and mr wilberforce had examined him relative to the firing upon the town of calabar the latter gentleman questioned him as to the treatment of the slaves on board the ships and it was upon that occasion he told him the circumstance of the murder for which the prisoner was now indicted without having had the remotest intention of prosecuting him and he moreover observed that outrages of that nature were so common on board the slave ships that they were looked upon with as much indifference as any trifling occurrence their frequency had rendered them familiar stephen devereux the next witness on the side of the prosecution was examined by mr solicitor general he deposed that he had sailed to the coast of guinea in the wasp from whence after he arrived there he changed as third mate into the recovery which sailed from africa on the first of september he remembered the deceased negro girl very well after he had been ten days on board he saw captain kimber endeavoring to straighten her knees which were bent and contracted and afterwards flogging her with a whip while i was standing said the witness on the starboard side of the quarter-deck i saw the girl running up by the gun-tackle which was fastened by a block to the mizzen-stay she was suspended by one of her arms and continued raised above the deck for four or five minutes she was let down and lifted up again by the other arm and pearson the boy who held the tackle jerked the fall in this situation the boys were endeavoring to make her legs straight she was taken up the third time by one leg and the fourth time by the other after which she was suffered to remain on the deck for some time in this situation with her head drooping between her knees captain kimber who was present during the whole of her torture lifted her up gave her a slap on the face and said the bitch is sulky and then again endeavored to straighten the contraction in the knees with the intention of inflicting punishment on her the fifth and last time she was lifted up by both hands but her feet touched the deck and in this posture the prisoner flogged her severely when she was about going down the hatchway he would not suffer any body to assist her but said the bitch is sulky she must find her own way after she had got down two or three steps with great struggling and difficulty she slipped along the rest of the ladder all this happened in the morning i saw her the next day and helped her up on deck she was in a very filthy and shocking condition 
quite weak and feeble her body was covered with wails and bruises she was not put down along with the other women but was suffered to languish until she died on the third day after the suspension question what other persons belonging to the ship's company were in sight of this business besides the captain the surgeon and yourself answer the man at the wheel and one or two more he was cross-examined by mr sylvester question was you not dancing with the women at the time this business was going forward answer i was looking at the women dancing but when the girl was suffering the punishment they attended more to it than to anything else question were there any and what other persons with you at the time answer i don't know question could you attempt to say that it was by way of punishment that the prisoner endeavored to straighten the girl's knees answer i know of no other motive he could have question why did you not mention this business at granada on your arrival there answer i did not wish to concern myself about it particularly as captain kimber had behaved to me as a friend besides every seaman on board must have heard of or known it and the surgeon and i have often talked of it since question did you ever give any information of this affair till you were sent for to london answer no question and when you appeared before the magistrate in london did you not say that you were ignorant of the cause of the girl's death answer i did for the reason i already mentioned being delicate of doing anything that might endanger the prisoner's life but i am now certain that if she had not been punished in the manner she was she would have lived and been fit for market here mr sylvester read the deposition of this witness which was taken before sir sampson wright at bow street about two months ago when the prisoner at the bar was brought before him charged with the murder for which he was now tried in this deposition the present witness devereux had stated that he did not believe the girl died in consequence of the punishment inflicted on her a contrary testimony to which he now gave to the court question did you venture to take any of your ship's crew along with you to give evidence of this business you now swear to answer no they were all taken up at bristol and sent away question are there not some of them now in london answer i do not know question were you not dismissed your ship as first mate for mutiny while on the coast of africa answer no i did not mutiny question were you not charged with having mutinied and tried before six captains answer the charge against me was giving the lie to the captain 
here mr sylvester read the charges against him wherein he was stated to be a pernicious dangerous and troublesome fellow and accordingly was turned away from the ship but there was no specific offence mentioned on his re-examination by mr solicitor general he said that he had mentioned the murder of the slave to several persons before he came to give evidence of the firing upon the town of calabar and to a gentleman at bristol after kimber had been brought up to town he did not know where the rest of the crew had been captain kimber he said was one of those who formed the court that tried him on the coast of africa and that he afterwards took him into his ship and treated him in a friendly manner these two were the only witnesses who appeared on the side of the prosecution mr walter jacks was first called on behalf of the prisoner and examined by mr piggott he said he was a merchant in bristol and had a share in the recovery which the prisoner commanded he knew the prisoner six years for three or four of which he had been in his service and he was always satisfied with his conduct for he was good to the ship's company mr dowling who had been surgeon to the ship attended this witness at bristol to demand the balance of his wages which had been due to him at that time he complained that captain kimber had engaged to allow him two privileged slaves and that afterwards he would give him but one the witness told him it was impossible he could have double privilege as one slave was all that was ever given to the surgeon of that ship but in paying him his wages he gave him sterling money instead of currency as a small compensation for the hardships he said he sustained on the tenth of last january after dowling had received his wages and thanked the witness he told him that captain kimber was a rascal and a cheat and that he would ruin him if it was in his power and immediately after the prisoner had been taken into custody these words occurred to the witness thomas lar lived at birmingham he had frequent conversations with dowling about the slave trade who said he had frequent quarrels with captain kimber in one of which he struck him and was afterwards put in irons turned out of the cabin and obliged to eat salt provisions with the foremast men the captain allowed him but one privileged slave and had behaved very ill towards him for which he was determined to be revenged these words he often used benjamin riddle was examined by mr morgan he said he had been surgeon on board the thomas which was on the coast of africa at the same time with the recovery there he heard dowling say that he had been maltreated by captain kimber and that he would ruin him if possible that he had a memorandum in his possession which he could produce against him when he came home the witness asked to see the paper but dowling would not shew it 
this was a sober deliberate conversation and dowling thought he was speaking to a friend after this the witness heard captain kimber say that dowling's conduct was so bad he could not keep him he used to bleed when it was evidently dangerous and commit other improprieties in his professional line the witness also knew devereux to have been dismissed from the wasp for mutiny mr dowling was again called and asked whether it was true that he had told mr jacks lar and riddle that he would be revenged of and ruin captain kimber if he could he persisted in his former assertion and declared that he had never said any such thing he told the court that if they would indulge him with a hearing he should clear every matter to their satisfaction but having proceeded in a desultory manner he was prevented from speaking captain thomas phillips was examined by mr knowles he deposed that he was on the coast of africa when the prisoner was there devereux had been turned out of the wasp for mutiny and had acknowledged the charges against him to be true and the witness knew him to be a bad man there were he said on board captain kimber's ship great quantities of oranges which dowling used to give to the slaves the witness told him often that fruits were bad for them that they would cause the flux which disease it appeared the deceased girl was afflicted with and he knew for twenty years he had been in that climate such diseases carry off persons in the space of two days the witness knew the prisoner since he was at school and he never heard anything injurious to his character until the present charge was preferred against him he was always humane and good-natured thomas lancaster was a mate belonging to the wasp he said that devereux had admitted the charges made against him and all the ship's company looked on him as a dangerous fellow after he had been turned out of the ship he remained on shore for two months and if captain kimber had not taken him under his protection it would be impossible to tell what should become of him devereux was again called and questioned as to the truth of what had been said against him and he declared it was as false as that one was two he was proceeding to make a defense when the jury said they were all satisfied from what had appeared to them that there was no credit to be given to the two witnesses on the side of the prosecution and therefore found the prisoner not guilty it still remains for us to make a few observations on the above extraordinary trial nothing that may now be said can in any manner affect captain kimber as he has been acquitted and cannot be tried a second time for the same offence we shall not declare what impressions we lie under as to the guilt or innocence of captain kimber but lay before the public a few points from which they may draw such conclusions as their feelings and reason shall dictate 
and first we shall ask why was there not such a defense set up by captain kimber as could in the minds of the people have acquitted him of the horrid act which was sworn against him did he bring forward a single witness to contradict the charges of his accusers what became of all the seamen and servants on board his ship who were in england at the time he was apprehended and who might have been brought into court to declare at once that the prisoner did not commit murder without having recourse to the miserable shift of proving perjury against mr dowling and devereux in points that had nothing to do with the prosecution were none of the recovery's crew to be found or was captain kimber afraid that they would have all conspired against his life one of the witnesses on the side of the prosecution said that all the crew were taken up at bristol and sent out of the way the event has given us no reason to doubt the truth of this assertion as to mr dowling's not having disclosed the murder when he came on shore nor keeping a complete journal these are circumstances which those persons who know anything of ships in general or the african slave trade will pay no attention to journals which are considered mere matters of form are generally imperfect and the barbarous treatment of slaves on board the ships is so frequent as to be looked upon with indifference perhaps mr dowling perhaps the whole crew might have conceived that the killing of a slave on board a ship was an offence not punishable by law as there was no other evidence to support the second indictment than what supported the first the jury also acquitted the prisoner on it the trial lasted near five hours his royal highness the duke of clarence was present the whole time and appeared from his looks and gestures to be particularly interested in favor of the man who was accused of having murdered a slave end of the trial of captain john kimber for the murder of two female negro slaves on board the recovery african slave ship verse old and nascent a pilgrimage by william faulkner this is a librivox recording all librivox recordings are in the public domain at the age of sixteen i discovered swinburne or rather swinburne discovered me springing from some tortured undergrowth of my adolescence like a highwayman making me his slave my mental life at that period was so completely and smoothly veneered with surface insincerity obviously necessary to me at that time to support intact my personal integrity that i cannot tell to this day exactly to what depth he stirred me just how deeply the footprints of his passage are left in my mind it seems to me now that i found him nothing but a flexible vessel into which i might put my own vague emotional shapes without breaking them it was years later that i found in him much more than bright and bitter sound more than a satisfying tinsel of blood and death and gold and the inevitable sea true i dipped into shelley and keats who doesn't at that age but they do not move me 
i do not think it was assurance so much merely complacence and a youthful morbidity which counteracted them and left me cold i was not interested in verse for verse's sake then i read and employed verse firstly for the purpose of furthering various philanderings in which i was engaged secondly to complete a youthful gesture i was then making of being different in a small town later my concupiscence waning i turned inevitably to verse finding therein an emotional counterpart far more satisfactory for two reasons one no partner was required two it was so much simpler just to close a book and take a walk i do not mean by this i ever found anything sexual in swinburne there is no sex in swinburne the mathematician surely and eroticism just as there is eroticism in form and colour and movement wherever found but not that tortured sex in say d h lawrence it is a time-honoured custom to read omar to one's mistress as an accompaniment to consummation a sort of stringed obbligato among the sighs i found that verse could be employed not only to temporarily blind the spirit to the ungraceful posturings of the flesh but also to speed onward the whole affair ah women with their hungry snatching little souls with a man it is quite often art for art's sake with a woman it is always art for the artist's sake whatever it was that i found in swinburne it completely satisfied me and filled my inner life i cannot understand now how i could have regarded the others with such dull complacency surely if one be moved at all by swinburne he must inevitably find in swinburne's forerunners some kinship perhaps it is that swinburne having taken his heritage and elaborated it to the despair of any would-be poet has coarsened it to tickle the dullest of palates as well as the most discriminating as used water can be drunk by both hogs and gods therefore i believe i came as near as possible to approaching poetry with an unprejudiced mind i was subject to the usual proselyting of an older person but the strings were pulled so casually as scarcely to influence my point of view i had no opinions at that time the opinions i later formed were all factitious and were discarded i approached poetry unawed as if to say now let's see what you have having used verse i would now allow verse to use me if it could when the coordinated chaos of the war was replaced by the uncoordinated chaos of peace i took seriously to reading verse with no background whatever i joined the pack belling loudly after contemporary poets i could not always tell what it was all about but this is the stuff i told myself believing like so many that if one cried loudly enough to be heard above the din and so convinced others that one was in the know one would be automatically accoladed i joined an emotional b p o b the beauty spiritual and physical of the south lies in the fact that god has done so much for it and man so little i have this for which to thank whatever gods may be that having fixed my roots in this soil all contact saving by the printed word with contemporary poets is impossible that page is closed to me forever i read robinson and frost with pleasure and aldington conrad aiken's minor music still echoes in my heart 
but beyond these that period might have never been i no longer try to read the others at all it was the shropshire lad which closed the period i found a paper-bound copy in a bookshop and when i opened it i discovered there the secret after which the moderns course howling like curs on a cold trail in a dark wood giving off it is true an occasional note clear with beauty but curs just the same here was reason for being born into a fantastic world discovering the splendour of fortitude the beauty of being of the soil like a tree about which fools might howl in which winds of dissolution and death and despair might strip leaving it bleak without bitterness beautiful in sadness from this point the road is obvious shakespeare i read and spencer and the elizabethans and shelley and keats i read thou still unravished bride of quietness and found a still water withal strong and potent quiet with its own strength and satisfying as bread that beautiful awareness so sure of its own power that it is not necessary to create the illusion of force by frenzy and motion take the odes to a nightingale to a grecian urn music to hear etc here is the spiritual beauty which the moderns strive vainly for with trickery and yet beneath it one knows our entrails masculinity occasionally i see modern verse in magazines in four years i have found but one cause of interest a tendency among them to revert to formal rhymes and conventional forms again have they too seen the writing on the wall can one still hope or is this age this decade impossible for the creation of poetry is there nowhere among us a keats in embryo someone who will tune his lute to the beauty of the world life is not different from what it was when shelley drove like a swallow southward from the unbearable english winter living may be different but not life time changes us but time self does not change here is the same air the same sunlight in which shelley dreamed of golden men and women immortal in a silver world in which young john keats wrote endymion trying to gain enough silver to marry fanny braun and set up an apothecary shop is not there among us someone who can write something beautiful and passionate and sad instead of sadness End of verse Old and Nason, The Pilgrimage by William Faulkner. Wild in America from The True Republican, Sycamore, DeKalb County, Illinois, 24th of April, 1895. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Rob Marland Wild in America The ex-apostle of aestheticism as he appeared to us. Stories of his experiences while on his tour. Caricatured by de Maurier and satirised by Gilbert. Some account of his plays. Oscar Wilde first achieved notoriety as a prostrate apostle and then as the leader of the then infantile aesthetic craze he carried his aesthetic peculiarities so far that he became the subject of de maurier's caricaturing pencil and gilbert's satirising fun that may have been what he was trying for 
neither the caricaturist nor the satirist diminished the ardour with which wilde pursued what was vaguely called aestheticism the bunthorns of patience made up in exact imitation of wilde and he posed in the lobbies of the same theatres and composed phrases which outdid in lily-like languor the phrases gilbert had thought to be satires one of the songs of patience which seems to contain a more or less pointed allusion to wilde runs then a sentimental passion of a vegetable fashion should excite your languid spleen an attachment a la plato for a bashful young potato or a not too french french bean though the philistines may jostle you will rank as an apostle in the sentimental band if you walk down piccadilly with a poppy or a lily in your mediaeval hand and every one will say as you walk your mystic way if he's content with a vegetable love that would certainly not suit me why what a most particularly pure young man this pure young man must be the more limp de maurier drew his caricature the limper was oscar when he confronted the next assemblage the longer de maurier made his people's hair the longer wilde stayed away from the barbers up to that time fifteen years ago wilde had done little else to attract attention to himself he was known to be the son of exceptionally clever parents and winner of the newdigate at oxford but besides cleverly advertising himself and writing a few verses he had done no clever original work and was not seriously considered his reputation as lecturer man of fashion wit poet novelist essayist playwright has been made in most particulars in the last half-dozen years all since his lecturing tour in this country he came here about twelve years ago frankly advertised as a freak lecturing on aestheticism he wore knee-breeches silk hose lace cuffs and was otherwise variously freakish in his dress at boston a half-hundred harvard boys marched into his lecture-hall dressed as he was each carrying a lily wilde's noted imperturbability did not desert him he merely lisped how tenderly droll and went on with his lecture in a western city he was the guest of a club among whose members were a number of stout drinkers they undertook to tank up the aesthete as they expressed it the process was long as the sun was breaking into the club windows wilde looked about over a room strewn with falling braves and said to the one man still able to comprehend speech we've had a charmingly quiet little evening don't you feel like a bit of a runabout town before breakfast but those who met him under normal conditions found mr wilde a witty engaging talker unusually well informed on a wide range of literary and art subjects and quite able to care for himself in any mental encounter the public at large not knowing this of him 
refused to accept him or his cult seriously and wilde returned to england richer only in experiences and a few hundred pounds he had apologists not of his class for his lily-like eccentricities about three years ago his play lady windermere's fan was produced in london and later here and that at once made him one of the most talked-about playwrights living there was not much seriously objectionable in the sentiments expressed in this play not to theatre-goers who had become accustomed to divorcant and its kind and this did not seem to satisfy mr wilde he wrote salome wrote it in french and arranged with sarah bernhardt to produce it in london but the lord chamberlain refused to authorise its production or to put it the familiar way prohibited it and wilde threatened to go to france to live which the marquess of queensbury expressed a longing for him to do but he did not a year and a half ago mr wilde managed to contrive and have ventilated in the pall mall budget a quarrel with t p o'connor in which he expressed his opinion of the ordinary journalist in a manner intended to increase the scope of the quarrel but it did not in spite of the harsh things which have been written lately about the moral quality of his later literary work a recent london critic wrote of him mr oscar wilde has a very wholesome influence upon contemporary thought though there are people who think otherwise it is not that he is original or even absurd he is never entirely either but he sticks his pen into the somewhat torpid consciousness of the average englishman and digs up the clods of truth which have caked and hardened therein he turns upside down the proverbial wisdom which most of us regard as eternal verity and shows us that it looks as well one way as the other new york sun end of wild in america